Everyone and welcome to a special edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites RPG of the Year podcast, where we have gathered the site staff and contributors together to help us determine our website's RPG of the Year for 2023. If you are a regular listener of the TetraCast, you'll recognize many of the voices here. But we've gathered quite a large crowd of it looks like at the moment ten participants, eleven counting, ten participants. So let me introduce everyone. My name is Brian Vitali. I will be your host. Joining me today, I've got Josh Torres. Most wonderful time of the year. Adam Vitali. Hello. James Galizio. Hey, folks. Chow Min Wu. Pando, Pando. Josh Tolentino. Hello. Junior Miyai. This podcast is going to be great. Quentin O'Connor. How's it going? Paige Chamberlain. It is 4.20 a.m. Oh, no. And of, and, of course, Alex Donaldson. Hello. Not that late here. Not that early here. You, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of people in here, and we are across all the time zones uh, here in North America. We're in the morning. It's early evening for Alex. We've got some people, uh, juniors in Japan. We've got uh, Josh Tolentino from the, uh, in the Philippines. And then we've got Paige in Australia. So it is, we have somehow managed to get all, all of us in the same room here to talk about video games. So that is quite an accomplishment. Uh, and of course that does mean that I will do my, my damn best to try to make sure that we, Pass the proverbial microphone around as as efficiently as possible because we're used to you know conducting this podcast with about uh you know four to five people and now we've got ten so we will do our best um just to kind of set the uh the stage of what exactly it is you're listening to before we proceed so we are recording this in kind of the first part uh, the second week of December what this is going to be is our deliberations for the RPG site RPG of the year for 2023. This is a podcast that will be published alongside a handful of site features to, you know, here is our, our game of the year, here is our, our reader's choice game of the year, our most anticipated games, things like that. So as you're listening to this, there will already be a published article on our website saying exactly what our selection was. So what this is providing is basically a recording of our deliberations about exactly how we came to the decision that we come to. So as you are listening to this, you know what we're going to do, what, what the outcome is going to be as we are recording this. We actually don't. So that's kind of like a fun little wriggle about exactly what it is you're listening to. Of course, if you've managed to listen to this podcast uh, and you don't know the result because it was pushed to your podcast feed or your Spotify or exactly, well, you will learn alongside with the rest of us uh, how we come to our final decision. So uh I think that covers most of the ground rules. I will say uh if if you're a longtime listener of the podcast or a follower of the website, you'll know that we cover our year from December to November. So games that came out in December 2022 will be in the running for this year's uh, decisions. Games that come out in December 2023, of course, as I said, we're recording this in December. 
So those will be on the slate for next year. I believe that's kind of the same uh, posture that a lot of different awards take. So that's the same here. Um, without uh, further ado, I'll just go ahead and do a little bit of an intro, a recap of the year. It's been, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I think 2023, I've been contributing to this site uh, in some capacity for about seven or eight years. And I'm not sure we've had a year as big as this one. I think maybe 2016 or 2017 uh, got pretty close. Of course, we've got things like the pandemic that kind of affected uh, some of the slates from the last couple of years. But this year, I just constantly felt like we had new games to talk about. We had uh, big hitters like Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Baldur's Gate 3, of course, Final Fantasy 16 interspersed throughout the year. We had su surprising indies such as Chain Echo, Sea of Stars. We had new IPs like Wild Hearts kind of show up out of nowhere, uh, Wolong, Fallen Dynasty. Uh, we had entries in existing IPs like Octopath Traveler, Fire Emblem Engage. Uh, and then we had new studios, veteran studios. It just felt like all year we had a ton of games and they're all going to be talked about today in some capacity. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like it's been just absolutely hectic, like trying to cover everything this year. And it seems like next year is going to be just as, uh, just as hectic for us going by the early release calendar. We know so far just great time for RPGs. I think the, this year really encapsulates like a really strong, um, offering from each like kind of layer of game development from triple A's to more mi medium sized, uh, RPGs down to, uh, indie single person studios. Like this, this year has given us a, a great spectrum of that. And, you know, it's kind of almost like a David versus Goliath situation of like, even, even like the most like kind of niche indie RPGs have really like a, a really stellar quality to them that's like undeniably um alluring about them compared to like some of the more well-known featured productions and i think um what you're about to hear in these discussions uh to be had is like th there will be some games you've never heard of and it's like where did this game come th come from how did no one know about this and i think this uh, this year really encapsulates like a lot like the strength of like how varied game development has become over the years and how this year has really made RPG shine in a, in a really great way. Yeah. I mean, like it feels like almost like emblematic of the year as a whole that like, like obviously we still need to deliberate, but it feels like the game year for most people, Baldur's Gate three, unless you were like in our, like in our space, like really like covering like, games like it, it kind of came out of nowhere to just like take up the zeitgeist in the last moment. And that's a good thing to bring up because obviously one thing that is always kind of a push and pull in a deliberation like this is that we will have, we'll, we'll, we'll have a few different categories, like our kind of our specialized uh, topical awards and then we'll have our main list. And of course, as with every year, we'll have some games that will go ahead and be brought to the table that eight of us have played. And then some games that only two of us have played, and we don't want to initially penalize that. So it'll be a combination of, you know, strength of the argument, coming to a consensus to the best that we can, uh, cons consensus, conceding, things like that in terms of determining what belongs, what doesn't. Because you might have a game that someone really feels passionate about, only one or two people played it. Or we might have a game where we have eight people played it and two of them have very, very different, you know, response to how they how they felt the game, you know, stacks up. So those are all sorts of things that will be uh, sussed out here today. Um, going through some of the features that are up on the site at the time this podcast is posted. Uh, we're going to have, obviously, our primary feature, our RPG of the Year uh, results. 
how we organized this is that we were going to go through all of the games that we've covered this year on the site. So these are all going to be RPG or RPG adjacent games uh, that we've covered to some extent or another. So if it's not here, it either means we didn't cover it. We didn't have anyone interested in it. Uh, if it is here, it usually just meant we had some people uh, interested in playing it, doing news for it, writing a review for it, previewing it in some way. So if you're wondering why something is missing, usually it's, it just boils down to whether or not, like we said, it's been a very busy year and we've only got so many times and so many contributors in the day. Uh, we will also have a reader's choice. So that was a poll on our social media channels that was open throughout the month of December. So that we always kind of pair with our site staff deliberations. See, do we align? Do we not align? What was the reader's choice uh, result versus our our pick? Um, and then we also will do most anticipated. And again, it'll kind of come in two flavors. We'll have our sites. Uh, most anticipated game for 2024, and then we'll have the readers uh, most anticipated game for 2024 and see how those compare. So all of those features will be up on the site by the time this podcast is public. Um, another uh, bit of detail, as I'm calling out names here in the recording, we do have two Joshes. We have Josh Torres and Josh Tolentino. So for uh, just for administrative purposes, we're going to cost Josh Torres, Josh one and Josh Tolentino, Josh two. So if you're wondering what the heck that's about, that's what that is. Um, and then uh, English releases only. So people who have played uh, Trails into Daybreak 2 or whatever uh, came out, or Yeast 10, things like that, um, those are not out in English officially. So we are only talking about uh, official English releases. At least uh, we might be able to bring up some other games in passing if you're using it as a point of comparison or, or if you're looking down the road. But in terms of in consideration for our awards, it's anything with an official English release because we're an English-facing uh, website at the end of the day. Finally, I've waited three years to show Labyrinth of Gloria. <laughs> yep, that's, so that's one that we've probably brought up in a, in a previous Game of the Year podcast in passing, and now here's our chance to actually uh, deliberate on it. Uh, just some history before we go on to our categories for this year, just some uh, from last year, our favorite RPG of 2022 from last year was Elden Ring. Our reader's choice was Xenoblade Chronicles 3. And then for uh, most anticipated for this year, for both our staff and our readers, it was Final Fantasy 16. So we'll see if that one ended up living up to our expectations or not. But with that all out of the way, I think that kind of puts uh, a pin in the introduction section, and we'll go into our first real segment. Before we do that, just quickly, you know, we talked about how good a year it's been. I think it's important to briefly acknowledge that it's also been a bit of a crappy year in some ways, oh, not yeah. in terms of good point. video games, but in terms of um, the world around video games, well, the real world, but also mm-hmm. just in the world of video games, a lot of, an enormous amount of developers uh, have been, you know, made redundant, laid off uh, this year. Um, and actually also a lot of peers in the media space as well. There's been a lot of, Shakeups and a lot of people have lost roles and, and we've even had some people join our team through some of that, right? And so, yeah, I mean, there's not much we can say or do about it. And I don't think it's something we need to go on and on and on about, except to acknowledge that, um, it's been a weird year for video games, uh, because we have had some of the most fantastic games. I think we owe a lot of that to the pandemic. It's like, uh, if games come this year, or I was, uh, hanging out with some of the team behind I think one of the games that will be one of our top games this year and I was chatting to those guys about it and 
the big boss of that studio was saying to me, yeah, you're never going to get another year like this. Uh, and he's like, because it, this is COVID, right? Um, it's, it's a backlog of, of games that got delayed through COVID all coming out at once. Um, and it's sort of just very sad actually that in that sense, we had this backlog get unplugged. And at the same time, um, lots of, you know, we've had whole studios closed. We've had studios downsized. We've had projects cancelled. Um, it's a bummer. So yeah, I mean, I think it's important to just briefly acknowledge <laughs> that it's, it's a, it's, it's been a Jekyll and Hyde sort of year. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, it can't be stated enough that it's just like, we wish the, the, the situation between like both industries, both the, the, the media press sphere and both the development sphere was better. Like this industry is amazing at the same time. The, it is horrible, you know, and like you said, we wish we could make it better, but you know, we, we can only do so much. And, you know, to do right by our audiences, you know, we can only do what we can do. Well, it's important to celebrate the good stuff, which is what we're going to do now for the rest of this. And, you know, you also hope uh, to some degree for art out of adversity for some of those people who have been laid off to start new things. And, mm-hmm. you know, in years to come, we'll be playing games from studios that wouldn't have existed had all mm-hmm. this crap not gone down. So, um, but, you know, as far as the games go, this year is pretty good. And so, I guess that brings us on to categories, right? Right. And, and, and also, uh, yeah, we did have a, uh, uh, you'll get into it, Brian, but there's been a shakeup in categories in terms of like, we've, we've slimmed it down to make it, uh, to, to have a, a better discussion on like the, the categories that we have this year. Yeah. And, um, I just do want to say before we move on to the categories, like, yeah, we've seen, uh, layoffs at some pretty large places like Embracer Group, Bungie, Electronic Arts, Epic Games. But then also in the media space, and I know RPG site, uh, we are, we're, we're a site run by hobbyist enthusiasts. Um, we're, we, you know, we're born out of a, of a volunteer site. So I'm really glad that we still have that look and feel and are still able to do this every year. It's, uh, but Way, Waypoint shut down, Geo Media had layoffs and Washington, Washington Post launcher, which to my understanding was always doing really well, but got kind of ceremoniously, you know, shuttered. I'm glad I, that we are able to in this way continue to contribute to that space uh go ahead james yeah i just wanted to say like i personally have been doing all these events this year and everyone i've talked to has said that we rpg site are one of the lucky ones partly because we're private but also it's been like as we said excellent year for rpgs even had some people say that we're probably better positioned for next year than most outlets because like again most of the games that we know that are coming out are rpgs and it's just it we've been very lucky and i I appreciate it and can only speak for myself, but yeah, it's like, I, I, I'm just glad that like listeners like you guys and readers like you guys uh, help make it possible that we can keep going like this. And also Alex is just a business whiz. So thank you, Alex. Oh, and I guess that does remind me, uh, early on here, uh, cause we won't get another time to, to shout him out, but shout out to Mike who does so much for us on the uh, back end for the site. Everything about our management system to the way our site looks to our light and dark themes, all of that. Uh, shout out to Mike. He's a rock star. Yeah. And, and who is, who is literally, uh, didn't ask him to, but literally pops up to fix bugs like two days, 48 hours after the birth of his child. Yeah. Two <laughs> days after his baby was born, he's sitting there doing tech support and we're like, dude, 
Yeah, Mike. Mike is a legend. Yeah, uh, obviously, you know, to to our, our readers and listeners, they don't uh, know Mike as much. Not really a front facing, but he is the the engineer whiz that makes the site uh, run uh, as well as it does. And it, like you know, just a bit behind the scenes, like we had like a big shakeup in our uh, content management system behind the scenes this year. And Mike spearheaded it, headed it on. I uh, personally, I really liked you know all the changes that uh, he's done. He's very very great at you know. Uh, Listening to feedback, like a thing, like you know, asking like, "Hey, how do you think? What what, what are some of the problems that we can, that we can tackle?" And is very very receptive on like, hearing everyone out and seeing what he can do to kind of accommodate people uh, in terms of like look and feel and uh, and and to better you know help help uh, improve their workflow uh, in a you know in a pretty meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Well, on to our categories. So the reason why we kind of do these first is that way we can kind of discuss some of the game's uh, strengths before going to the main list. So that when we do go to a main list, if we're talking about, I'm just going to pull some out of a hat, Zelda or Baldur's Gate or Final Fantasy, we don't have to tee it up from ground zero because likely it will have shown up in some specific category to its strength, storytelling, gameplay, design, art, whatever, ahead of time. So it's doing a lot of the groundwork for that. Um, like Josh stated, we, we're going ahead with the same categories from previous years. There are no new categories. However, we are deciding to remove a couple of them that have just kind of been less interesting, a lot less, uh, you know, thorough discussion on it. Um, we used to have a category for a non RPG, which you can kind of see why this one was on the chopping block. It was a good idea. And I do like that our standard podcast does allow us to tangent into games like Armored Core and things like that, uh, because we don't only play RPGs here. But in this, in terms of the context of this discussion specifically, it did kind of feel like a little bit of a, of a tack on. So we're deciding to not do a non RPG entry this year. And then the other one that we're deciding to uh, pull back from from this year is we had a category for, like, ongoing support or DLC. Uh, that one, it usually ended up boiling down. We kind of looked at the result from last couple of years, and it almost always resulted in being a, a Monster Hunter game or a MMO, likely Final Fantasy XIV. And not saying that those games don't, don't um, deserve recognition for the ongoing support that they do, but it just became a little bit inherently, like whether you're playing that game, you're up to date with it or not. It's, it's just something that was a little bit harder to discuss because usually there'd be one person who had been kept up to date and other people who hadn't. Uh, so usually for that, we'll kind of keep those sorts of discussions with our, our regular weekly podcast. So with those two taken care of, our categories that we're going to be going over here are Best re-release, and we'll discuss more about the details of that in a bit. Best writing, best art, best music, and best design or immersion. So we're going to start out, and we always start out with this category of best re-release. And you might be asking, what is re-release? And we some of those determinations we might actually decide as a group here and now. The reason why we start with best re-release, we started this, uh, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, this kind of came in vogue upon the release of Persona 5 Royal. And the idea was, is that we are living in a space where games in some fashion are remastered, re-released, upported, gold editioned, and then you'd have the same game cropping up on multiple lists. And in the case of Persona 5 Royal, we had just, you know, the few years prior discussed Persona 5. And it's like, is this worth, is this worth a new entry? Is this worth its own category? And the idea was, is that we wanted to kind of have a place to 
kind of celebrate games that did get a re-release or a remaster in a way where we could shout out our favorite for the year, but then kind of have it kind of considered separately from the main list. Yeah, so Persona 5 Royal wasn't the only game, but that was just kind of like a, a headline game where it's like two years two years prior we had discussed it, you know, in depth, very, you know, thoroughly about all of its components and whatnot, and we had it on our top ten list. Like, do we want to do that again for Royal? And not only that, but, you know, remasters have become much more common in the last five, ten years. So we just kind of figure, hey, let's just have a category for re-releases, remasters, remakes, remakesters. <laughs> so um, now there are a couple of games where it's sort of... We, this, this, this category does not include, like, full-on remakes. So, like, Final Fantasy VII Remake obviously is, like, from the ground up new. So that doesn't that wouldn't fall in this category. But sometimes games skirt the line a bit, and we have to decide, does that go in this category? Or our main list, because those are mutually exclusive. All right, so I think how we're going to start this out is I'm going to go ahead and read our nominations. And then there's a couple of these that you could argue could be in the main list, and we will kind of get to those in turn. So let me first read them out. So these are the nominated games that are in the best remaster or re-release category for 2023. We have Romancing Saga Minstrel Song Remastered. The Etrian Odyssey Origins Collection, Baton Kaitos 1 and 2 HD Remaster, Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection, Advance Wars 1 Plus 2 Reboot Camp, Rune Factory 3 Special, Star Ocean The Second Story R, Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion, and then Super Mario RPG. So that is, you can kind of see with a list like that, why we have a category like this, because that is a, a lot of, you know, well-regarded games. I was just going to say, that's also, uh, something being in this category doesn't exclude it from later. So we're sort of just acknowledging what the best sort of do-over is, uh, but that mm-hmm. could still be in the top 10 of the year, right? So, yeah. Well, I, well that's actually, that, that, them, that's actually a really here. weird one. There's a, actually a really weird one because remember last year we had the Live Alive remake and that was a weird one because technically on its face, it is a remake of an old game that came out, um, you know, way back when, but that never got an official release in the US. So we put that in the top 10 and not in the best remaster we released category nominee because of that one thing and i know i know i've been creating this list uh brian made a, a comment on a few of these like star ocean the second story r crisis core and super mario rpg are like okay do can, can we should it should it be only for this list or can, can we can or can we roll these in the top 10 instead so that that kind of gets into this weird fuzzy category of like this will set you know a, a precedent on like whether we keep them here or do we also roll them into the top 10 list because of that live alive um situation from uh last not not last year maybe two years ago i forgot um, it was last year okay it was, yeah, it was last year that debate is going to define this whole category and and i will come out right at the start and say like star ocean for instance gray Enix calls it a remake i think it's a remake um so i think i, I, I do saying, think star ocean is the big one out here yeah, well, I think also Mario RPG, right? Like, it's a ground-up thing that looks relatively mm. significantly different. And so my argument would be, 
See, it's a fuzzy line when you have an extremely, an extremely faithful remake, which is what Mario RPG is. Like, it's so faithful that until you get the post-game stuff, it's relatively unrecognizable in terms of difference from the original. Um, are, so are we doing it like this because they're, because, uh, because on, on the surface, they're so visually different, they're rolled over to the top 10 list. Because Sam Star Ocean, for example, looks very visually different, but at its core, like it's, like it's core mechanics, it is still pretty much that PSP version of Star Ocean with, you know, a lot of like quality of life improvements. But at its core, like in terms of like characters, characters you can recruit, their, their old conditions, the main story, um, you know, it's pretty much identical to what Star Ocean 2 or Second Story and was. Let me just be clear about precedent. In previous years, if we had a game in this category, it was not in the main list. There were, we never crossed yeah. the streams. They were always yeah. separate. Mm-hmm. Live Alive was an exception because our argument was it technically wasn't a re-release in English because it was the first mm-hmm. release. So it yes, wasn't yep. in this category. Do you know what won this category last year? It was Tactics Ogre. We called that a re-release, and it was in this category, and it was not in our main list. So um, I personally, I'm only speaking for myself here, Mario RPG, Star Ocean, and Crisis Core, those games all changed a bit, but I, if I'm putting up my personal top 10 for this year, I would not include those, because to me, that's like, those are two PSP games and a Super Nintendo game. Um, or Star Ocean's earlier, but it's the PSP version. But still, we'll have to decide, do we want to include Star Ocean in this list, or do we sort of like shunt it over to our main list as it's significantly different from being right. just a I, release? So we'll have to do this somewhat democratically. I'm thinking that Crisis Core can stay in this list because it is more clearly a remaster compared to the other two, in my opinion. Then Super Mario. I would I would still put in this list because it is so faithful to the original game. Star Ocean's the only one that I think is questionable, but I'm okay also with it being in this list and not in the main list. Yeah, is is I wanna, anyone? I, I want to hear other like what what do other people think about like uh, uh, the situation? Star Ocean so, kind of rips me apart on this. Yeah, like I I can see both arguments so clearly. Um, I'm I definitely think maybe. It stays here personally, but I, I wouldn't blame anyone for going the other direction. Okay. I think like my one argument for why maybe Star Ocean would uh, make sense in the main list is that, yeah, like it's the same game at its core, but there have been some pretty major changes of like the way that dungeons are laid out where it's now like one seamless, uh, screen instead of it being a bunch of smaller screens. And that was a lot of work to actually get that working in any sort of sense. And then like all the changes with like the world map. So again, I kind of feel the same way. I would, I wouldn't necessarily be angry at it staying in this list or like moving over or either way. Yeah. Because uh, my, my argument, like in terms of like why they shouldn't be on the main list is the main list should be there to highlight brand new releases. Uh, just like completely new original releases that came out this year. And like, that's why it always felt weird for Live Alive to make that main list. I understand why the stipulation was there for last year. So I was like, okay, sure. But for this year, like these, these games are amazing. All of them are. But, uh, like I think the, the spirit of the main list, uh, you know, highlighting new releases for this year, I think those three should remain in this category. It is a tough category this year. Uh, uh Junior, did you have a comment on, on those? It looked like you were trying to speak I, earlier. Yeah, I did. Um, I have not, played Star Ocean 
remake or Super Mario RPG. And I'm also one of the people here that has not played the original versions of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, what would define whether in my eyes it would be worth moving to the main list would be if the remake or remaster added significant new content to the original material. Uh, and my understanding is like crisis core does not aside from updated graphics. It's still the core story mechanics, uh, and so on from the PSP game. Um, so that, that, that that's just that, my thoughts yeah. on it. Yeah. So it sounds like we're mostly in, uh, we're in agreement on two things. We're in agreement. It seems like that we're okay keeping these kind of separated in their own category, but also in agreement that it's a very hard thing to do, uh, because so many, like, what do you consider significant? Crisis Core completely revamped its combat. Uh, but didn't change any of the content. Super Mario RPG added more content, but then it's built uh, and it uh, altered the combat with the new uh, the timed inputs. But I think the whole point of this category is that we want to give these games time in the sun. So we're going to do that to the best extent that we can. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and go down the list and uh, we're going to go and see uh, some of these. We are putting on the list either because we really believe they are in the running for the category. Sometimes we might have a game, and that's for this category or future categories that might be getting nominated because they have they do one thing very well or one thing that we wanted to shout out, even if they end up ultimately not taking the the award for the category. So I'm just going to go on the order listed here. This is the order they were nominated. Uh, Romancing Saga Minstrel Song Remastered. This came out last December, so it's in consideration for this year. I know uh, Adam has played this game and has opinions on it. Uh, but before I just hand the mic straight to him, has anyone else here played the Minstrel Song Remaster that came out last December? I'm able to get around to it. I played a, a tiny bit of it, but I didn't haven't actually been able to put some time into it. I think it's, I, I, from everything I've seen from people who played it, it's a very, very, very good remaster of that game. Yeah, I also yeah. haven't gotten around to it quite yet. Been meaning to, just, it's like, especially with how busy this year has been, it's been kind of hard to play some of these uh, less intensive remasters just because there's been so much else to play. If you played other Romancing Saga or Saga re-releases, um, this one is similar in the sense that it adds similar quality of life uh, enhancements in terms of better tutorials, better UI, um, and also things like... So these games... Um, they have multiple protagonists, so like, and especially the way Romancing Saga Minstrel Song is set up, uh, when you play through this game, the the storylines you run into, the characters you meet or recruit or whatnot, can be very, very different. In fact, that's part of the inherent design of Saga. Um, but in the original release, if you wanted to play a new character, you'd have to start from scratch. You don't have to do that anymore. Now there's a carryover feature, a new game plus, and a lot of the Romantic Saga 3 had this. Um, uh, Scarlet... Saga Scarlet Grace has this also. So it's sort of like expected that this remaster would have it. And it is an extremely good game. I actually think this is one of the best RPGs ever made, personally, in that weird saga bubble. Um, but the knock against it, as far as this re-release uh, goes, is that they added some new content with a new character who was present in the original game, um, but was never recruitable. And... Um, it's cool content, but the, the weird thing about it is that it's kind of hidden away in something you can only access in a third playthrough after doing like a bunch of very kind of obscure, tricky, small, hard to find things. So like only the most dedicated of people like me 
are ever going to see that new content. It's kind of very hidden away. Is this uh, the the was the is the witch character? I yes, the, I think I yeah. I think I joked about this on the yeah. uh, on when we talked about it last year on the podcast. It was like a hundred floor dungeon. Or yes, something you have like to do the hundred floor dungeon, yes. which no one does, uh, and then you have to do other things to make sure you actually access this character. And it's just kind of like I would have liked. I would have. It would have been really cool if they had like. So one of the great things about saga games is that there's little scenarios that pop up very organically in terms of of uh, you just go to a place, an event happens, there's a little story there. And that's basically the, the narrative of the game are all these, all these sorts of like interlocking quests and events that pop up naturally. Um, and it would have been nice if they added just like a few more of those, you know, why not throughout the game? But the only one they added was like this really obscure one that you're only going to get to on a third playthrough. I'm just kind of like, yeah. what's your, what's your hour though. count at the point you're, you're seeing that? Sorry. Like what's your hour count at the point oh, you're seeing that? Like I'm an hour like, 80. Yeah. My third place. <laughs> so, okay. um, but yeah, so I think it's a really good remaster. It has a lot of the uh, additions and quality of life improvements that we've seen in other Saga re-releases. Um, and I think it's an exceptional game. Keep it in the running uh, I don't... There is very strong competition here. So it, that, that, that new content kind of flaw, if you will, is what's holding it back. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. All right, and the next one on the list is Etrian Odyssey Origins Collection. I know you've also played this, Adam. Did anyone else play this collection then when it released uh, on Steam? And it has the update from the original DS versions? No, I'll tell you why I did it. Uh, I think the the biggest knock about this game, oddly enough, is its price. Uh, and the way 80 fucking it. dollars or $40 for each game separately. Just buy Etrian Odyssey 3 if you're gonna get, if you're gonna get any of them. <laughs> Like I feel like the the the, the biggest knock up against this collection is like I love Etrian Odyssey. They're great games. I love, like it's it's I'm not a big dungeon explorer uh, person, but Etrian Odyssey I I come back for each one. I think it's a really big shame that the way that they they they, they distributed this release with like the the pricing structure. I think it's just it's just kind of yucky. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I reviewed this I and I never mentioned I never mentioned prices in reviews except I did in this one. It's just yeah. very weird. Yeah. yeah, it's cool that they they're, they brought Etrian Odyssey back, and it's clearly a test bed of like, okay, how do we make a new Etrian Odyssey game without the the DS and 3DS like touch functionality? Because that's so core to the identity of that series of like uh, drawing your own dungeons. Okay, so they're trying to do like, okay, how do you do that now? Because that I remember when they were showing off trailers for this game, like, what well, they had this like. Uh, some of the screens that you can use to manipulate the UI was like, okay, for like one half of the screen is like your dungeon view, uh, the top right is like your inventory, and then the bottom right is like your your like actual map that you're filling out, and like that's really funny to see, like as, as like that's all displayed to you at once, and it's clearly the actually an Odyssey team trying to figure out like how do we show this game without the DS screens? I don't know, <laughs> and it's really funny. I like the how do you show the VR games. You know, look mm-hmm. good and and play well. When yeah, you're yeah, you know it. yeah. So I, I think I think it's really cool, but man, they I, I will pick it up when it's like at a more agreeable price point. I, I think the one thing that kind of really stuck out to me, like as as far as relative comparison goes, is like I could buy one Etrian Odyssey game for forty dollars, or for the same forty dollars, you can buy both the original Persona Three or Persona Three Portable and Persona Four because those are twenty dollars each, much more reasonable price. It's just kind of like mm-hmm. from the same company in relatively the same time frame. It was very strange. 
The next one on the list was Baton Kaito's 1 and 2 HD Remaster. Of course, these are the Monolith Soft RPGs that we released on Switch this year. I know Scott played these, but Scott wasn't able to attend this podcast today. Did anyone else play these uh, these Switch releases? I'm not sure who nominated it for the list here. I, I played like I've seen a little bit of it. I didn't actually play it myself, but like I, I've you know we've, we've spoken to Scott about it. And while like it's mm-hmm. cool that they remastered Baton Kaito's one and two, and definitely too because like that's an excellent game. I think some, like the remaster features break some parts of the game, like when you're doing the turbo feature, some like the timed. It's I, I believe in uh, in these uh, in this game or like the auto battle or something. Yeah. Uh, so like, what Scott's criticism okay. was is when you do so these games add a bunch of quality of life features that you would sort of expect. Like in it's got like those like cheats that you see in some of those Final Fantasy classic Final Fantasy ports where you know you just kill people in one hit. You have you know infinite health or whatnot. But one of the things in this game is an auto battle, but it doesn't work. I believe it's the first game. Because in the first game, you have, like, elements. So you might do, like, a fire card and a water card. But if you do a fire card and a water card, they, like, cancel each other out, and they don't work. But when you do auto-battle, the auto-battler is dumb and doesn't realize this, so it's just going to be, like, canceling out its own attacks. Um, So it's, like, not very useful. Um, There's also, like, like, bugs in that that game release as well. And also, there was... um, There's a turbo mode. Like, (laughs) I'm trying to remember exactly how he phrased it. But if you don't pick your cards fast enough, it'll just, like, skip your turn. That's what uh, it was, yeah. And uh, Scott's, Scott made a joke about this, which is sort of amusing. He's like, so they, so your characters are just standing there while you're auto-battling, but at least they're standing there very fast. <laughs> so, so, so um, and then, um, actually, I just, I kind of wish this game was on more than just Switch, but that's not really yep. here or there. <laughs> Um, I so hope, hopefully, I hope it comes to other platforms eventually. Yeah. I do appreciate, like, I've played Baton Kaitos 2, but not 1. I want to play through it eventually. And then, you know, 2 was, uh, what, they're both GameCube games, so it's not everyone has their GameCube still hooked up. So I do appreciate these releases because now I can just pull out my Switch or hopefully Switch 2 or Switch HD or whatever and play these at some point. But unfortunately, it just seems uh, outside of that, the, what they added to the actual product is kind of hit and miss. The next game on the list was uh, another collection, Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection. Uh, I believe was a junior that covered these for us. Um, no, so this Scott. one is not a game. Oh, it was Scott, but Junior did play these. I have, yes. Okay, so yeah, what what tee us up on what this collection kind of uh, brought to the table in terms of uh, for the package deal this year? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to go ahead and preface this entire thing by saying I'm a huge Mega Man fan. Uh, James visited Japan and saw my Mega Man collection. I love Mega Man, especially Battle Network. I didn't um, realize he had uh, gotten with you during his trip. Yeah, yeah he, he came visit uh, Kyoto. Yeah, I visited for a couple of days. Um, also got him like a Mega Man uh, yes. Battle Network uh, mug or something. <laughs> Which I, I drink out of pretty much every day. It's Thank you. Um, so I'm a huge <laughs> Mega Man nerd. And uh, I'm going to say some very unkind things about the Legacy Collection. Um, It is a good collection in that it took uh, previously inaccessible games. These were originally released on the Game Boy Advance and later, I believe, on the DS uh, and packaged them together for modern systems, which is great. These are straight ports. So a lot of the localization errors in, like, uh, Mega Man Battle Network 1, 2, 3, 4, like... 
mistranslations like legs go land, misspellings, that sort of thing, uh, are still in the game. So they didn't make any attempt to fix the, the localization. They put the weird, like smoothing filter on the pixel graphics. You can turn it off. So that's fine. But that's like one of the only features that they added to the collection. The other being online competitive play, um, and trading. So that's all great. And I love the battle network games, but it is literally just straight ports of an easily like, Obviously, I'm not going to advocate for, you know, too much piracy, but you can, you can get these ROMs, no problem. Like, you know, uh, yeah, it's just it sort of straight sounds like something that, that just would have came out on Nintendo Switch online, you know. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, th- I think, yeah, like, I think it's a really impressive collection. I think that it is a really, really big shame that they didn't go back and, like, you know, fix the localization because I, th- I think this would have been an easy tee-up to maybe be a competitive top three game if they did that because I think... Uh, like outside of that, like the, uh, like a, a lot of this collection, I love a lot. Like uh, adding in like that online competitive play, which is huge for that community. Like the battle network yeah. competitive com- community is like so so loyal to that type of game. And also like be- finding a way to get those like uh, limited uh, cards back in the day that were uh, done in promotions to able to roll the majority of them into this re-release. My understanding about the competitive Mega Man Battle Network community is that they're still using the Tango client with ROMs. So the Legacy yeah. Collection is good for people who are maybe more casual fans, but it's yeah. not. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not a perfect collection. Yeah. But it's nice to know if you, if you, if you want to show support for it, there is an official way to show support to Capcom with it. I, I did buy three copies. So. There you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, despite all this. I did support the release. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the next one on the list. So just, we've gone through Romancing Saga, Etrian Odyssey, Bait and Kaido's Mega Man Battle Network. So it seems like we kind of know what the heavy hitters are in the back half of the list here. Uh, but I'm glad we're getting the opportunity to kind of at least talk about uh, recognizing that these games were made available this year for those that did not see their original releases. Um, the next ones on the list are the Advance Wars 1 Plus 2 Reboot Camp. So it was initially intended to release, uh, I think, 2021, then it was delayed in 2022, then it was delayed indefinitely due to uh, real-world ongoings. Finally released this year, earlier in 2023. I believe Paul and Nathan were the main two that were really excited for this release, uh, but neither of them are on the podcast here today. Did anyone else t- touch the, the new Switch version of these two games? Nope. Not, not even Chow? The Chow? No. Uh, yeah. This is like your favorite game, isn't it? it it's, it's a support to me. If It added these new modes, and in my opinion, I... I play the DS version because I like having the touchscreen for the map all the yeah. time instead of being on the side. You know, that's just for me. And the end, I don't feel it's enough change to kind of like, yeah, this is a whole new experience, you know. It's just an easier way to get access to the game if you've never played the DS version. Also, the, 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 the shift in art style is pretty divisive among the community, too. Uh, this new re-release is kind of like mm-hmm. the... Not, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a big authority enough to say it's the biggest working against it but it's definitely the, the the art direction changes you know i have a soft spot for the, the how advanced wars used to look well then we won't we won't belabor the point on that but while while chow has the floor um this is another game that you have opinions on uh, rune factory 3 special released this year uh did you play this one i know um nathan covered the review but i think you also played it i, I did a guide for it and mm-hmm. just like 
similar to Advance Wars, I don't have. It's it's the same thing where it just got you know it's just a port in my opinion. They add some features, but I don't think it's enough. You know, it's like oh, this is a game changer. You know, mm-hmm. and they add some post game content, and I feel like it's just like oh, let's just add some extra fluff to the game, but it doesn't add much to me. I I feel like okay, it's kind of like my opinion of it. So Chow remind- did not nominate these, but he's going to shoot them down. <laughs> remind me, Brian, for these uh, category awards, are we picking a, a top one or a top three, and then picking a one out of that three? Uh, what we've last year we've done is, is a go ahead. I was going to say a winner and a runner up. Right? Okay. Okay. So, anyways, I think we kind of got to the point now uh, that we kind of expected that we would be at. We've got three games left on the list. We, like this, it's not always as clean. Sometimes we'll go down the list, and someone will say, "No, I'm keeping this on the list." But this one seems like we're kind of in agreement. Uh, the last three on the list for the best remaster or re-release, we've got Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII Reunion, we've got Star Ocean, the Second Story R, and we've got Super Mario RPG. So one of these will be the winner, one of these will be the runner-up, and the, the third will get nothing. So, uh. Uh, does anyone here want to speak to, uh, Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII Reunion? Anyone that hasn't had a chance to speak yet? I want to, I want to get rid of Super Mario RPG from this list because oh, I, I like a, No, oh, like, I don't care about Crisis Core. Oh, I've been thinking about right, Super Mario. Alright, Chow. Okay. Let, let, let's hear Crisis it. Crisis Core, in my opinion, the original PSP game is fucking unplayable in my opinion, but now this We're remaster, it's playable. Now it's actually playable. I, I do want to, so I can speak to, I can speak to Crisis Core a little bit and I did, when we were talking initially about how we were going to define this category, the way I looked at it, I guess I'm not talking specifically just about Crisis Core now, but about the final three that remain. The way I, I looked at it when we got, when we were looking at the Star Ocean issue was basically, um, if Star Ocean is in this category, I think Star Ocean probably wins. But if Star Ocean is not in this category, Crisis Core is the, is the easy, easy winner. Um, which I guess is me also saying that I think Super Mario RPG is lovely and whimsical and nice, um, but it's pretty unremarkable. And I think the the issues they had where they just made it way too easy, um, it felt like they added new stuff but didn't balance the rest of the game for that new stuff. So like the, the new limit breaky sort of attacks and stuff like that. It felt like that stuff was added on top, but they didn't think to rebalance any of the combat for that. So the new stuff, the new options that you have, switching party members, et cetera, et cetera, trivializes um, the, the the combat element of the game, which is Nintendo, so that's probably deliberate. And you take that crisis core, which took this framework of this PSP game that um, was fine in 2007 on a PSP with a single analog stick and stuff like that, but would have been wretched. And actually, I think there's a perfectly good example to point to there, which is uh, type zero HD, which is which is miserable, um, and to their extreme credit, they didn't just you know do what they did with Crisis Core, uh, do what they did with Type Zero, and just do pretty graphics and leave the gameplay as it was on PSP. Therefore, not very good. They rethought all of it, and the result is, in my opinion, pretty astonishing. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I think Crisis, like the Crisis Core Union, is pretty impressive with what they did in it, but it still retains that PSP core structure and, like, and like you know, kind of stage based, and that's fine. But I think, I, I for me, I, I'm more. I, I think Star Ocean wins this, but I think my runner-up would be Super Mario RPG because yes, it is. It, they made it easier, 
But it's also that's it's tuned for kids. Of course, we're not the target audience. So for if we're doing, I can I can see it as like this is not RPG. This is not an RPG site's favors because we're not the target audience for this game anymore. It is. It is. It, it, but also, hits no, but, like, the, but the original game was for kids too, and the yeah, original exactly. game was designed for kids. There is a there is an element just generally. If you want the challenge, you have like the new post-game bosses. Also, I wanted to RPG. say something, uh, Alex. I, I feel like you're being a little uncharitable about say, um, saying that they didn't make any changes to account for the limit break stuff. Like you have the random new, like stronger enemies and battles that show up now and then. And those, like it, it doesn't make the game hard, but it's at least something to show that they were trying to rebalance it at least a little yeah. bit. They just didn't do a good enough job of it, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and personally, I mean, I still had a great time with it. Like, even, like, yeah, it's easy, but it's, like, just, I'm rushed through the game. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's just, you, you're in a category now where it's three really good games, and when I look at it, I look at Crisis Core, which Josh is right, and it, it is a, it, it absolutely still retains the PSP structure, but I actually think if you do much more around the structure of the game, you're moving into, come back to the earlier debate, you're moving towards that sort of remake sort of territory. Because yeah. you would have to significantly rebuild huge amounts of the game. But what they do within that PSP structure, I think so much of it is so clever in terms of, uh, the FF7 remake, bringing the, uh, bringing the remake sort of visual language into the game in terms of the UI and stuff like that, um, and the gameplay system changes. I just think it's, it's, it's like a best in class example of how to do a remaster of a game from that era without actually straight up remaking it. I think Mario RPG is great. I loved it. I'm not saying it's bad by any means. Um, I just think, in terms of the spirit of, of remaking and improving and stuff like that, what Mario RPG is to me primarily is a pretty version of a really of a really great old game, and also perhaps most crucially, a way a legal way to play a really old game. Whereas actually, um, but if you own the original Super Nintendo cart. You know, I'm talking about old people here, but if you own the original Super Nintendo oh, card, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that you need to rush out and buy it. Whereas even if you own the original version of Crisis Core and have a PSP that's in great condition, or, you know, a, a, a full setup of PPSS, PP or whatever, uh, to emulate it, even so, there's no point. Just, yeah, just play, yeah. just play. That makes sense. Well, I, like, I remember, like, and I haven't actually played the full version of, uh, uh, reunion, but I remember when I was at the like pre TGS press event last year, and I played the remaster there. Like the night, uh, the that night, I booted up the original just to get a comparison. And I guess, what is the spirit of this award? Like, what it makes a remaster truly great? What makes a a re release truly great? And for me. The, the, the way I think of it, and this applies for both Star Ocean 2, uh, the second story R, and Crisis Core Reunion, is if a re-release seamlessly replaces the original for most people. And I feel like for Crisis Core Reunion, I would never suggest someone play the PSP original now, just because, yeah, visually it looks better, but crucially, the gameplay is a night and day difference. Well, I um I played I talked about this game very briefly in one of our late November early December podcasts. I guess there's only the one in December podcast. Um, trying to imagine now, imagine playing this game with a single PSP nub. <laughs> like, oof, I don't, I don't remember how that worked. Kind of, um, kind of a weird. Okay, go, go for it. To finish your thought. Well, 
Well, I, was just, I wanted to give uh, Quentin mention that he, uh, he want, uh, they wanted a chance to, to speak to these two games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say like, I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to pile on Super Mario RPG remake too hard. You know, like I had a great time with it. I, I plan on replaying it. I like the the post game stuff they added. Um, and I don't usually harp too much about this particular aspect, but one thing that really sticks out to me, especially when comparing it to Crisis Core Reunion, is there are parts in Super Mario RPG where the slowdown to me personally was bad enough that there, I just for like a split second, I'd almost think like, man, I, I should bust out my SNES cartridge. Um, just like when you're going through the water in, in like the sewers early in the game, that sort of thing. And it, 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 it actually I, hurt my eyes. Really? I, weird. I never had that issue, but I also like played through the entire thing on my uh, switch Lite, So maybe like in handheld mode, it's fine. I never noticed any slowdown. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. It could totally be way better handheld than, yeah, I played it on my TV. Um, but then just comparing that with, I mean, obviously apples and oranges, but when I think about Crisis Core Reunion, the, the first thing that pops into my head is it's just fast and feels great to play. And having played the PSP original too, yeah, oh, oh my goodness, I, I can't imagine how bad it would have been if they just, you know, didn't change I get, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I can, like, you know, it, it's it's definitely hard to, like, you know, pick between Crisis Core and Super Mario RPG for me here. That's fine if, like, more people want Crisis Core to win this. I'm just saying that, like, I I think it's a it's establishing like a weird line of reasoning of like when it when it comes to like what, what in the spirit of the category, like what exemplifies this best remaster Maybe. really more of, of of like of like saying okay well the psp was so bad so this new release is like now so much better than the old bad release so so now that never like it's kind of like it, that, I weird, think... that weird thing of like okay since this new release was so much better than the bad release because the original release was so awful you know that now i think, it's just I like, think that's uh, slightly dis- i think that's slightly disingenuous the point is is that for me at least it's not that the PSP version was bad, because the PSP game was a great PSP game, and it was a great game within the parameters of the PSP, which were admittedly limited. But what I'm getting at, the, the cut and thrust of what I'm getting at is I'm just more impressed by Miles with the thought that went into, you know, sort of how they they approached it. It's a really, really brilliant, especially, you know, uh, like I say, we have a perfect example of of what happens when one of these is done sort of in a careless way. Um, and I think the Mario RPG remake is is actually more similar in that sense to Type Zero HD than it is to Crisis Core. The difference is is that Type Zero wasn't brilliant to begin with, whereas Mario RPG was brilliant to begin with. I guess the argument I would make come back to it is that thing of I think if a remaster can repl- if a remaster slash remake can replace the original game um more or less for the average user um in a quality sense not in not necessarily in an ease of acquisition sense i think you can really say something special about it i think that is true for star ocean i think that is true for crisis core but the funny thing is like i say if they put super mario rpg the super nintendo original into nintendo switch online tomorrow and someone said to me could I go and spend 50, 60 bucks on Super Mario RPG or should I just play it on NSO? I would go, eh, well, it would be a more complicated answer. Whereas if someone said to me, should I, you know, I've got a, I've got a, I've got an old PSP from a thrift store and I can get Crisis Core off eBay for 10 bucks or I can go and buy 
the remaster for 30, I would unreservedly tell them to go and buy the remaster. And yeah, and I understand what you're saying. Where part of that is down. We should we should, put back, we should bring back Etrian Odyssey Origins Collection. Then, if, if we're going with that line of reasoning, like if they were to add Etrian Odyssey to NSO versus buying it on or, or, uh, on the Origins Collection, go buy the original ones. Then, you know, because of, of that uh, price and ease of access. And well, stuff, I stuff I just like feel like you know it changes if, if if one game makes it completely obsolete, it's like and there's no reason to get it. I think it makes it a better product. In general, that's kind of like how I see it. I mean, I feel like the same thing to say for that's fine. That's fine. But I'm saying if we're we're using that line of logic, you know, then apply it to other things as well. I (laughs) I just I disagree because Etrian Odyssey is forty four dollars per per copy, so that's a hundred. Also, also, if they were to to put that like on NSO, right? If they were to put that Etrian Odyssey on NSO, theoretically, you know, I don't I don't think the Etrian Odyssey comparison really works because like. There's still an argument to be made that playing the DS originals of those games is the better experience. Yeah, like, that's why that's like yeah, let's go play them. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it. If, if that is better, then Josh, no. Josh's wording is statement like a disagreement, but it sounds like you're agreeing. You're saying if I'm saying to play the old version, then the new version shouldn't be in consideration, which is kind of what we're saying for Super Mario. Okay, right. I, I misunderstood. Then, yeah. It, one thing I don't want to lose sight of is, and uh, I, I don't want to put any thoughts in anyone's mouth, but we're kind of putting Super Mario versus Crisis Core, and we're kind, we've kind of shelved Star Ocean. Yeah, they're, they're, we're fighting for it, second it, place it, here. It, it, that's what it feels like. It feels like we're kind of fighting for runner-up, but I don't want to state that declaratively. Does anyone feel that Star Ocean doesn't deserve to win over these two? I think the argument is, like, Star Ocean is either going to win this category, or we're going to decide it doesn't belong in this category and it should be in the main <laughs> list. Uh, yeah, so it, it's either, it either wins or it, it wins so hard that it's uh, not even uh, in this category I, anymore. I, I am selfish that I want it to be on this list so that it gets first place because if it goes against the main game. It's just not going to beat Yeah, For me personally, I think Star Ocean Second Story R wins this category because it does, it's like, like you, like you put it, uh, Adam, it's Star Ocean Second Story on, on steroids. It is, <laughs> It's pretty much a lot of like the quality of life that you would want out of Stars of the Second Story presented in a really pretty way for that yeah. game. Yeah. So, uh, okay, I let's talk about Star Ocean just briefly here, just so we can yeah. lump some praise onto it. Uh, Quentin, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I was blown away. Um, there were definitely aspects going into launch that I was iffy on. I mean, I, I already kind of made up my mind, barring surprises and all the places that we hadn't seen yet, but it was going to be pretty, and I was going to love that aspect. Um, I was, you know, mostly on board already with what we saw for, like, the combat changes, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, for some of the things like, oh, we're adding, like, these little extra quests, um, oh, we're adding fishing, I was like, no, I mean, I don't have anything against adding fishing, but, like, why are you know, is it just because every other game's doing it? You know, cute dead joke here about how every JRPG under the sun now is fishing. But, I still really enjoyed everything that they added. And, and that, I think, just kind of shocked me in, in an excellent way. Uh, the fishing, the mechanic itself is, you know, nothing to write home about, but they integrate it well with, like, this new character. Um, the, the little... ...on the fence with, with um, uh, just, like, uh, it gives you an idea to get into the swing of item creation and then it rewards you for it. It's this very, I think one of the things that I said in my review that I keep coming back to mentally is that the rhythm of, of Star Ocean, the second story are, uh, 
is is sublime. I believe um, you every- called it a dance. Yes, it, exactly. Yeah, thank you. It, it feels like a dance. Everything just kind of feeds into something else. I mean, that's kind of always been a strength of of at least the better Star Ocean games with with item creation and that sort of thing. But it's highlighted even more so now. Um, every time I reach a new area, I'm like, ooh, I wonder if there's like a place of interest to interact with. Um, uh, the item creation just makes more sense, I think, now to to people who are coming on board sooner. I, I hesitate to call it like, you know. Oh, well, they've modernized it for a modern audience, because I always kind of find that, like, you know, well, we're all human beings. But things make more sense now, you know, with the tutorials and things. Like, I, I have the a The UI is a lot better, too. Yeah. Yes. Everything is just better. And, yeah, at its core, um, it is, you know, based on the PSP version. It, it has all that going. And on a, on a, But then there are so many things that are added to it, and then on a personal level... Um, I really enjoy the the new artwork for the characters. Um, I mean, it's uh, does anyone want to bat and say that the PSP artwork was actually better? I mean, (laughs) I know it's opinions and all, but (laughs) I didn't want to insult. Yeah, I mean, like some people, some people do genuinely like the anime like art style. Like, you know, there are definitely some people out there who play the second story art and like switch the PSP portraits of those characters, like on the selection screen. That's fine, you know. I mean, it's cool that you can do that. I mean, you you honestly brought up something else that's that's great about the game. Like, they they give you the option between that, between the PSP one, or the PS1 art, rather. um, Just take your pick. And if you're playing it in Japanese, you can go between, like, you know, two different voice tracks, including a brand new one. Um, You can do the old soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, which which I enjoyed, um, and I think I touched up on this in my review, one of the only quibbles I had, and it's completely completely subjective thing is that some of the new arrangements didn't really land with me as well as some of the others but the, I did, the, the only like thing i don't like about this new remake is like that like i feel like the assist actions in battle are feel like almost like underbaked where like you have this divide whether the cameo characters are really fucking good and all the other baseline assist actions for like the the existing cast in the game feel uh underpowered because the cameo characters of the other star oceans are so you know do yeah. a lot more damage. Yeah, yeah the uh, the assist actions are kind of weird in that um, if you're watching, if you're like someone who's familiar with Star Ocean 2, but you hadn't played this remake and you were watching like a stream of it, let's say someone's in the back half of the game, and besides like the obvious like visual differences, that's probably the first thing that'll pop out because you're summoning these, you can summon these assist characters in battle like all the time um, later on in the game. And they're kind of making a lot of noise, and they do a lot of damage. They're very useful, and it's it does kind of feel a little half baked. Where you're just summoning, I don't know, Leticia every battle to do her little attack, or Raymond, or whoever, and it does feel just a little bit strangely implemented. So, but other than that, but I mean, like when you just even the quality of life enhances to like fast travel and uh, showing uh, private actions, like when yeah. they're available, is like that's huge for that game. <laughs> Oh like, man, and the fast like, travel is is some of the best I've ever seen implemented. I, yeah, I, you want to go to that specific, you know, it's like Persona, it's like Persona Five, you know, when you can just like, oh, I want to go to the airsoft shop, but on a game that actually has an old school JRPG world map, you know. Yeah, like I want to just travel to the end of this cave dungeon, and then I'm going to travel in two seconds to the top of the mountain on the other side of the world. Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? How pain in the ass playing the PlayStation One version is. Yeah, you have so to like 
fly to a different city to check if there's a private action or not. Right, you're getting what I was going to say. Um, yeah, so like the private action stuff in the original game, if you wanted to check, are there new private actions now? You would, you could do it one of two ways. One, you just kind of randomly just tour the world slowly on foot to check each town to see if there's a private action, or do what most people did and check game FAQs. Um, where they, where they pop up. And now you can, don't have to, you kind of just cut out the fat, like just, it tells you. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, now I have heard one criticism that like people, I, I, I know at least one person who doesn't quite like that the fact that it shows you where private actions are because they felt it makes it even more of just like a checklist or like you just go and do it versus it being just kind of naturally if you stumble across it, which I kind of understand. But I kind of feel like it was always sort of treated like a checklist, um, just sort of an invisible one. So yeah, I think it's different than like a saga game where events happen kind of randomly um, and genuinely out of nowhere. Versus this is more of just a checklist. So, I, but I just wanted to point out that criticism that like yeah, I know some people yeah. felt it made it more like a checklist, but I don't. I, I don't really agree. And, go, and, go, and go, yeah. going to Josh's initial point with the other two games, we're talking about Star Ocean comparing this remaster to the limitations of the original game. And I do think that's kind of inherent to this category is that a game that improves, whether it's a system limitation or a game design limitation, significantly for its re-release is going to be inherently more compelling as a best remaster or release versus a game uh, that you thought was already you know, superlative. I don't know. Let me just pick a random game like Nier Automata. If that was re-released in 10 years and was again, an excellent game, but didn't really add a whole lot. Are you crediting? I know that's a hypothetical, but crediting an excellent original release versus what makes it for a really good remaster. And it sounds like for both crisis core and star ocean, we can look at the original release, look how the remastered version is improved in some fashion or another. Versus Super Mario, where it doesn't have as that big of a delta. It's it was a good game when it released, and it's a good remaster, but the delta between the two is not as high. That's that's my kind of takeaway at this point point in time, looking at these three remaining games. Yeah, I mean that that, that that's a good summary of it. And I, like I said, I, I won't fight super hard for Super Mario RPG to be the runner up because at the end of the day, both of these are excellent games. But I just I just want to point out that like, hey, we're it feels like we're making false equivalencies between these two. In that regard, and I feel that's unfair to Super Mario RPG. Well, it'll be our unofficial runner-up, runner-up. <laughs> my 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 official thing is because I, I haven't played any of these three games originally, and I didn't play any of the re-releases, so my opinion means nothing. But I've Not seen something. <laughs> I've seen some of the things that you can do in Star Ocean Two. I've seen some of the things you can do in Crisis Core, and I've seen gameplay of like Super Mario RPG. Star Ocean Two looks just way more interesting to me. So that would be my vote. No. Uh, does anyone like we were, it sounds like we're coming to coalescing to a decision here. Star ocean, second story R seems like no one's really stated that they don't feel deserves to win here. No matter what we do and people who have read, you know, they're listening to this podcast and have read our output. If this is going to be our winner, they're going to say, how come this isn't in the main list? But I think we've kind of talked that, to the best extent that we can. We think it's a really, really good re-release of a game that we all thought pretty highly of, and that's why it's looking like it's going to be our winner for this category and excluded from the main list. And then our looks like our runner-up, based on the deliberations we had here today, 
is going to be Crisis Core Final Fantasy Reunion just edging out Super Mario RPG for the runner-up of the best re-release. But clearly these three are a tier above everything else we've discussed in this category. That sound good? Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. So the winner for the RPG site 2023 best remaster re-release, Star Ocean, the second story R, the runner-up Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII Reunion. And that's our first category under our belt. We'll go ahead and move to our second category. Uh, this one is best writing or storytelling. Uh, this is, you know, a bit nebulous, but this can be anything that involves uh, themes, narrative, character writing. Even It can be even like voice acting, anything that involves the narrative delivery of a game. And we've got a... A handful of things here. A lot of a lot of games on this list that have been nominated by the ten of us, plus you know uh, Scott, Paul, Nathan, and others that weren't able to make the podcast for best writing or storytelling. All the games we'll be talking about today. It's, it's a bit of a list, so I'll go through them here. We've got Baldur's Gate three, Final Fantasy sixteen, Octopath Traveler two. I think those three games are going to end up on a couple lists. Labyrinth of Galleria, The Moon Society, Fate Samurai Remnant, Genshin Impact, specifically the Fontaine arc that released this year. Infinity Strash, Dragon Quest, The Adventures of Die, Like a Dragon, Ashin, Like a Dragon, The Man Who Erased His Name, Silent Hope, Cyberpunk 2077, Phantom Liberty, Demon's Roots, and In Stars and Time. So going back to what Alex stated earlier in this podcast, uh, looking at the list of nominations here, we want to make sure that we give a chance to speak to some games that might do one thing really well or one or two things really well. But because we have a list here, if we see any that relative, these all have excellent components to them. That's why they're on this list in the first place. But if there's any of these that are relative to their peers, lower hanging fruit, we can kind of make sure we kind of discuss them and put the ones in consideration up and pull the ones that aren't in consideration down. Uh, I want to make sure we get someone a chance to speak that hasn't quite so yet. So the last game I listed here was In Stars and Time. Uh, I believe this uh, was covered by Junior and Paige on the site. Uh, I'll maybe hand it off to uh, to Junior first. So uh, your thoughts on the writing or storytelling of In Stars and Time. In Stars and Time is genuinely one of the best games to ever write uh, the found family trope, I guess you could call it. Um, it's It's a collection of... People that uh, are not related by by blood, but are related by the fact that they've traveled a long way together, uh, and you really get the sense of that uh, just in their various interactions. Right. Um, my favorite example would be the main character Seifrin bumps into a uh, a countertop, and then he goes nya like a cat, and the rest of his friends immediately and utterly rib him for it. Like, did you just meow? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it, the entire game is just full of stuff like that. In addition to your standard, uh, RPG, like the world is ending, uh, you're caught in a time loop, uh, discussions of what that entails. Are you, if you're in a time loop, are you reliving the same day or actually are you forcing your friends to do the same thing to get certain outcomes that are favorable to you? Right. Uh, it's, it's the type of writing that just compels you. And I would, I'm going to make a very bold claim here. I think it does found family writing better than Final Fantasy 16. 
Yeah, I, 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 it's like I don't want to. From your from you said, I don't think there's like this like anywhere near close to like even being like cut yet at all. Yeah, like yeah. I I, yeah. I don't know about many of the other games here, but I'm personally advocating for Instars in Time. Okay, Paige, I want to hear from you. Um, in Stars and Time, yeah, the writing would be the strong point because mm-hmm. uh, it being a time loop game, it does start to, um, like wear on you. And in that way, it gets very meta, mm-hmm. uh, which is intentional on, like, on the writing part. But I'm like, he, it, you literally do start to feel like the main character where you're just starting to get increasingly desperate and trying new I, things. I think that's a really in. strong, like, narrative point when you do a time loop uh sort of a game not just an rpg but like a time loop uh premise like you if, if it if it does that well and presenting like desperation and and a sense of fatigue because of time loops and you present that well i think that's a really really strong point in time loop premise uh, yeah it, a... it's just like yeah you really yes <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know even if i'm not exactly like the same as Cifrin, i'm definitely like feeling the same that they do at that point and like mm-hmm. they, they do a really good job of that i think this stays on for now for sure i think yeah i don't think this is anywhere near close to like being considered to be cut uh based on what right. you both said so like, we'll definitely I, keep this on for now. I want to know if we're gonna do an immediate like cut. Who the fuck put Infinity Shot here? I, I, I was thinking you might have. I don't. No, know I was. I don't who did. You know. I was like. <laughs> I, I was like, dude. And now that we're laughing about it, someone's got to speak up. Okay, 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 I did not put this on here, but I don't know who did. If you if you put it on here, speak up right now. But um. Maybe maybe I like drank and then I put it on here and I forgot. That's maybe that could have been. You know? Well, uh, I actually spoke to this game very briefly. Uh, obviously, it was spoken to when it released uh, in what September, and then I I just got to it in November. And I stated on a podcast I think two two weeks ago, it's a really good shonen story, but that's just like the anime. Uh, yeah, and the, even the, then, the series from '93. No, from yeah. that comment, I, I thought it was you that put it up, Brian. No, like, <laughs> it's it was it was better than I anticipated, but it's not a new story. And even even if you factor that out, it doesn't stand up to the rest. And of And it's these. also so, the presentation of that story are like still shots from the anime with dialogue voice put over it. It's just just watch the anime if you're into it. So yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, so we won't. Uh, we have a lot of games to get through here, so uh, it has a surprisingly strong story, but it's not a new one, and uh, it doesn't stand up to the rest here. I could cut like so I, the reason I put Silent Hope on here is uh, like obviously we're gonna cut it. It doesn't stand up to a lot of these, but I just wanted to make a like a quick shout out for like, it. Does a really it does some really clever things well because the main the main premise is um, you uh, the the world has been stripped of its um, all all, human, all of humanity is stripped of its voice. The only one who can communicate is uh, this princess that has been imprisoned and uh, uh, her uh, uh, in crystal uh, made of her tears because a, a long time ago uh, her father basically stripped humanity away of being able to speak and, uh, and has uh, uh, got into this abyss. And that's so you take up one of like I believe six or eight mute adventurers to go travel down uh, this abyss and, and try to discover like you know why why was humanity stripped of its voice. Uh, and so forth, and like, and it does like a fake ending sort of deal where you uh, meet the king and like, um, kind of, kind of convince him, hey, like you know, because he's been corrupted, you get rid of the corruption that's surrounding him, and at like the a little like two thirds into the game, you actually regain the ability to speak, like your adventures get regain the ability to speak. Um, it does the fake ending thing where like, 
um, gameplay is done through like d- different uh, dungeon floors, like through an, uh, a very simplistic isometric action RPG. And like the first ending credits is like you get your set back to like the first isometric a- uh, action RPG biome with like uh, and like as you're uh, <laughs> killing enemies in it, uh, like new credit uh, credits of like the developers pop out, but it's not all of the developers. Like you get the whole ending credits as like the extended uh, epilogue ending on that. And what's really, what's a really neat fourth, like subtle fourth wall breaking thing is when you boot up the game, it says, uh, normally before you do the, you free the king for the corruption, then it says, uh, marvelous, uh, from when, uh, you only hear like the marvelous logo from the princess because she's the only one who you can hear communicate to you in the game at that point. But once you free the, the king from corruption and you regain the ability to speak, um, you act, the marvelous logo is actually start, starts being said by the other voice actors from the adventurers in the game, and I just thought that was a That's really, really clever, yeah, like fourth, like subtle fourth wall breaking uh, moment for you. It's like, hey, I can actually hear what my other characters sound like now. So I just thought that was a really, really not, like cool storytelling moment for my game this year. Now, obviously, it doesn't stack up to a lot of these, but I just thought that's really fucking cool. Well, you put it on the list because it does this one really clever thing with its theme in terms of actually presenting that in, and representing it in the game. So I'm glad you did put it on the list. Um, just because it ends up getting cut potentially doesn't mean it's not worth putting on and giving the chance to speak to things like that. Uh, so I see here um, two Like a Dragon games. Mm-hmm. And I kind of agree with... So like the, we had two releases in the last uh, 12 months, and that's Like a Dragon and Shin, which is the first... Uh, it's the remaster, it's also kind of a remaster, but first official English version of playing that game, uh, on PC and PS4. And then, Like a Dragon, The Man Who Erased His Name, the side story spinoff guide end chapter ahead of Like a Dragon 8 next year. So, uh, I assume that Josh, you nominated these, but I don't know for certain. Uh, I, I, I probably did. I, it's just one of those, uh, neat things. Like, Ishin is like, as a pretty cool, like, um, setting, like, the, like, the, the, like a dragon premise into like uh Edo Japan. Um it does kind of like a weird bastardization of history because like you know of Hajime how Hajime Saito was like not a spy who infiltrated the Shin Sangumi um in the you know real life but um it does the like it's just one of those states like hey it's a it's a nice like way they presented like how they tried to incorporate the Yakuza into like the samurai ta- uh, era but it like it's it has a weird bastardization of its history that's hard to shake off, especially the like the last stretch of that game. If you know what I mean, Brian. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to like uh, infiltrating the, the, the emperor, I believe. So, yeah, that, like uh, com- comparatively to like a dragon, the man who erased his name. Um, there's there's a really weird game where it has to bridge the events between uh, uh, Yakuza Seven and Yakuza Eight of like. Um, no, no, not Yakuza 7, Yakuza 8. I mean, um, um, Yakuza 6, Yakuza 6 and Yakuza 7. Um, because like in Kir- Kiryu's involvement in Yakuza 7 felt like out of nowhere. So a lot of the man who erases name has to like, uh, build on this elaborate setup of like, why did Kiryu show up the way he did in Yakuza 7 slash Yakuza like a dragon? Um, a lot of like the main narrative is like, it's okay. You know, it's like, it's, it's like a typical, like, you know, uh, Kiryu story that's like, who's undercover. Why he did, is now under the name Joryu. Like, it does have, like, some nice emotional beats to it. But obviously, as you and, uh, as you and me, Brian, can attest to it, like, the, the big writing storytelling, like, triumph of the man who raised his name is probably, like, the, the ending cutscene in the game when, big spoilers, sorry, but I have to say this, um, where, um, 
yeah, Kiryu is still uh, presumed dead to the outside world. Only only certain members of the Yakuza organization know that he's alive. So the people that he used to take care of in the orphanage that was established in Yakuza Three still believe he's dead. And so the the quote unquote reward for Kiryu's uh, effort, uh, I mean, uh, Kiryu's end of the deal for his, like the the organization that he works for. They kind of have like a a pretty contentious relationship, almost like borderline blackmail. Like so, the reward for his like of what he did in the game was he gets to see this recording of like the the kids that he used to look after uh, visit his grave. Um, two of the kids he used to uh, look after notice that the, the hidden camera uh, in the grave, and like there, and then it's like, oh, do you think like you know uh, Kiryu is still out there like watching us, like you know? So like, it's like and then they're like, let's let's uh, like you know, let's pretend like you know. And the off chance that he's still alive, let's let him know how we're doing, just in case, you know. So you kind of, and this really, really hits hard uh, for people who played Yakuza Three, especially because a, a good chunk of Yakuza Three was looking after this orphanage and getting to know these kids. Um, mm-hmm. So you get to see like the whole character development of like what these kids have been going through, how how Taichi, you know, is now be on his way to be, becoming a firefighter, which is something that he's, he conveys to you back in Yakuza Three. You get to they they convey to you that like hey you know even though you're not here with us anymore we're still going strong we're starting we're we're living you know to our best uh in realizing our dreams uh Haruto the the baby that you looked after in Yakuza Six that was uh Haruka's kid you know he's starting uh, he he he's learning how to walk and um you know he's uh growing up very well so Kiryu through this tablet recording like just loses it you have you have like the most like almost realistic dirty messy crying that like modern video games have done you see snot coming out of Kiryu. so so i I want to tee this up a little bit yeah yeah like so um first of all you good point as we talk about writing and storytelling we will have to talk about stories so if you don't want to be spoiled on any of this i just suggest going to the next timestamp. but obviously as we speak and record we will tee up when we're going to speak to something that is key story moments. So let's get that uh, stated clearly. But so Kiryu is watching this recording that Josh teed up. He's sitting like on a bench and he's holding a tablet in his hands and the camera is like behind. It's like, it's like, it's almost like Kiryu's perspective looking down at the tablet. He's holding it above his lap. And then as he's watching the recording of the kids speaking to the camera, you hear uh, Kiryu starts breathing heavy. The tablet starts shaking. Um, and then you see one little teardrop appear in the corner of the tablet and then another and then another. And then the camera switches and you see that Kiryu is crying like you like it, it. The way it ramps up to that is just really well done. The music accompanying it's really well. It goes back to the uh, to the tablet. The, the kids are still speaking. They're really proud. They're excited about what they're doing. Kiryu's just crying. The uh, The voice acting is just really well done. The this the animation of like his his face is all red and he like I started crying I know Josh cried too mm-hmm. uh, and if you have the history of having played those games even if not all of them but at least like three and six it's this is the the crowning moment for this for this game and why it's on this list it's just that it's a really really it's one I'm 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 in the moment right now but it might be like one of the emo- biggest emotional poignant payoffs I've seen in a video game period yeah across yeah, I agree. It's 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 definitely just such a powerful moment, and I, and and the thing that really really like makes you lose it is 
at the end of this recording, um, uh, the, the both of the kids on the camera say, "Hey, you know, uh, Haruto drew an image of our family." You know, obviously, like they couldn't show on the camera because like uh, they didn't have it with them. But then, like the, the, the agents that uh, Kiryu's working under, they were able to retrieve the drawing or like a take take a picture of the drawing, I think. Um, and then it shows like in the middle, uh, like a big like you know stick figure dude in the middle. And it's like that's Ojisan, that's kids Kiryu, and, and like Haruto still remembers that time that Kiryu was like you know like overlooking the family, protecting the family. He still remembers. Mm-hmm. Are you? And it's like, fuck, man, I'm destroyed. Like that is so. Oh my god, it is such a sad moment because because Kiryu's like, like like Kiryu's like, look at me. I'm here alone. I don't have anyone. Here. I can't I'm even st- tell them how much I miss them. Yeah, and it's just like, oh my yes. god. Yeah, I think what really makes this effective. I saw this scene. I haven't even played the series, but I saw it when Brian was playing it. Is the fact that it's like. It's got this sort of like one directional aspect to it in that these kids speaking to the camera, they don't know for sure if Kiryu is alive or dead. They're just kind of just speaking genuine thoughts and words to a camera about what they're doing, how they're doing, what Kiryu meant to them on the off chance that he might be able to listen or hear it one day. And yeah. he is. He's, he's hearing everything they say, but he can't, they don't know that. He can't, you know, hug them or anything. And I think that's what makes it really powerful. Yeah. So there's like, so, there's like, so, there's like, there's like, there's like a, there's like a, there's like a best story moment. Uh-huh. This would probably win it, like, or be top three. But this for overall, and like, that's like the one thing that like a Dragon Gaiden like does amazingly well. But it's only one steed in that yeah, game. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I'm not, I'm not gonna cross it off right now, but I'm pretty damn sure that it will. Uh, but it's it's uh, wanted to get that one scene. It's it's time because that is like masterful done. I actually like spoil that scene like when the game just first came out. So I was actually in tears, even though I haven't played the game. But I don't yeah. imagine, like, imagine imagine how many tears is. you are if you have played them. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. that's the thing. If you, if you take that scene out, the game is much more standard. Yeah, because uh, it has its highs and lows, but that is just clearly the the key moment of that. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll keep it on the list for now. We'll change tact here. Here's a game that I know that uh, James and Adam, potentially others, have wanted to speak to for a while, brought up kind of earlier in the podcast. And that is the official English release of Labyrinth of Galleria, the Moon Society. So released in Jap- Japan, uh, in Japanese, several years ago. Finally, the English release earlier this year in February. Uh, James, I believe you ended up playing this game, both its original release and its English release? Oh, no, I didn't play the uh, English release. I need oh, to okay. stress, like, Latin for Glory is a very long game. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, and this year has been packed, so fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, I'm, I'm not g- I, I bought the English release, but I didn't play it just because it's like, well, there's so many other games I need to play. I'm not going to replay this. Well, we'll have to speak to the, game. to the original release. We'll have Adam speak to... Uh, the English version, and then anyone else that also, I don't know if anyone else here has also dabbled in it, but I'll well, hand it off to James and then over to Adam. So I know that I feel more strongly about the story than Adam does, at least I'm pretty sure. Uh, but one thing I'm, I believe we both agree on is that uh, Labyrinth of Gloria's uh, greatest strength of the story is just how much it sets things up and then like follows, like follows through on them. Like there is, the way the structure of the story is very unique in the sense, and this is a spoiler, obviously, uh, but the game is kind of like a three act structure 
if that makes sense. Like, you have the original, like, uh, 30, 40 hours where you're playing as Eureka, the main character that's on the box, and then it kind of pulls, like, a near, uh, like a, like a near, near Tomda where it's like, oh yeah, that was just the tutorial. The real meat and potatoes of the story is with the, uh, actual main character, uh, I, I believe that it's the same uh, pronunciation for the English version, but Nachiru or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I don't know the best way to describe how the story comes together because it's a very, like there's a lot of moving parts, uh, but at the core of it, it's not quite a time loop, but there's like sort of um, a whole deal where, Nachira's story is very much the heart and soul of the game. Like her relationships with Eureka, her relationships with the characters in the, uh, the main world that the second pa- uh, part of the story takes place in. And just like it, it's really hard to, to get into details about this. So maybe I'll hand it off to Adam for a bit to kind of like explain how the story works. Maybe since you played it more recently than I did. Yeah, so again, I'm just going to go full spoilers here. And um, so, you, yeah, you spend 40 hours of the game playing as Eureka. And so, like, 40 hours is a long time. And it's just, it's pretty, I don't want to say standard fare, but it's like a dungeon crawler. You're under, you're exploring this sort of labyrinth underneath a mansion. You're looking for artifacts um, for a witch and for it, for her, like, uh, sponsor. And... You know, it's kind of mysterious, like, why why are we doing this? What's going on here? And it's just, you're kind of left in the dark, almost intentionally, in terms of, like, what exactly everyone's goals are. And then you basically learn, like, kind of like the glass shatters, that this is all an illusion. This is actually kind of a, a kind of a fake world. And that Eureka's not even the main character. She's just kind of the supporting character. And you literally, at that, like, 40-hour mark, you get, like, a new opening credit sequence. You get, uh, you're in a new place that you've never heard of before in the 40, 40 full hours before that point. Um, and then it's like, here's the actual start of the game. Um, and then it later on explains, like, where that 40 hours came from, if that makes sense, in terms of, like, why that was there and what was actually going on there. But it's, it tees up what happens later or should I say earlier, um, and that it's it's interesting how the game is framed and structured and, like, who who is your protagonist, what is the conflict, you know, what is actually, like, the goal of the people who are in this story trying to do, and it gets into timeline stuff, it gets into alternate world sort of stuff, um, and it's, it's, it's a sort of game where a lot of it is so mysterious that that's kind of like your hook to keep playing in a way, besides the gameplay itself. It's a really good dungeon crawler. Um, but it's very, very bold and unique in that sense. But as James said, it is very long. It is a very long game. It is easily 100 hours. Um, so you kind of have to, like, if you're playing this game, you kind of have to, like, settle in and get invested. It's not something you can knock out in a weekend. Um, yeah, and it's like, and, and I know Labyrinth Refrain also had a lot of story, but a lot of it was like backloaded, and I guess kind of a similar thing here, but even more so than Labyrinth Refrain, yes, this is very much a dungeon RPG, there's a lot of gameplay to it, but, and I'm sure like Adam feels the same way here, It Labyrinth of Gl- uh, Gloria is also very much a visual novel story. 
There's a lot of text. There's a lot of characters. I, it's why I was so shocked that they did a dub because there's like so many different characters, especially in the latter half where it's like, really? Huh? But, um, yeah, it's like, and the payoffs, the emotional payoffs for when you, when like those things were set up, like dozens of hours ago that maybe you almost forgot about and it like comes together, like, the twist with Nachiru and who exactly Madame Malta um, or Mar Marta I for is it Marta or Malta in the uh, localization Marta, Marta. yeah and and Madame Marta it's just it works so well and then the emotional payoff in the post game works so well and it's like all of the little stuff with Nachiru's backstory her relationship with her mom and like everything that she goes through is like heartbreaking but it it's powerful. And eventually like when everything comes together, it's, it's one of those games where (sighs) it's not going to be for everyone. Like even like, um, like, as we just said, it's like, it's such a long game. It's probably the longest game that we're going to be talking about today. And it's like, I said it way back when on the podcast, when I first finished it, like in like late, like early, early 2021, that was my game of the year, 2023, I'm sorry, 2020. And I've been waiting to kind of like champion it for so long because it really is one of those games. that's something special. There's really nothing else like it in terms of like the structure of it and even the narrative. And I feel really strongly if nothing else about the narrative, because it's a, Bold story in both the way that it's told and also some of the subject matter it tackles. Like one of the things that I mentioned, um, like way, way back was that it's kind of shocking how like progressive some of the writing in this is too. Like there's some like aspects of the story that it's like, oh wow. <laughs> but yeah. There's literally just... a character who is like very explicitly transgender saying like, Actually, I forget if it was male or female or female or male, to be honest, but trans mask. Yeah. And just, it's just, it treats it well. I think it's, it's only a small part of the story, but now here's where I disagree with James a little bit. I actually think at the end of this hundred hours, I feel like the emotional payoff actually wasn't as strong for me as it was in Labyrinth of Refrain, which should I remind you that actually got snuck into our top five and that released a couple years ago. Um, and maybe this is just like a personal, like what, what sorts of topics interest me more. And I just kind of felt like the relationship between Dronya and Luca in the, in Labyrinth of Refrain, that relationship between like a young child and her sort of like a mother, kind of, um, and the, all the circumstances in that relationship, that was actually more emotionally impacting on me than anything in Galeria. Galeria is a more intricate story for sure, but I actually feel like the emotional payoff at the end wasn't as strong for me. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like Refrain's ending is very much like its strongest part, like at least normal ending it, but a bit of a difference between like Refrain and Galeria is that Refrain, you kind of get like a sense of satisfaction with the normal ending, but Galeria, you basically have to get the true ending in order for the story to feel complete. Uh, I think, and it was a bit of a unique circumstance for me because one of the things they did with the post game in a, in a patch later on is that they actually changed how the final dungeon worked a bit. 
And it felt like the narrative kind of played into the fact that, for lack of a better term, going through the final dungeon originally was a fucking nightmare, and the game knew it. So they wanted it to be something that you actually kind of had to struggle through to earn. And so, whereas Refrain's ending was very, very bittersweet, it was, like, very, very sad, Gloria's is, like, kind of, like, a relief, because it's, like, you went through all the trouble, it's, like, yeah... Things might have been okay with the normal ending, but it was stagnant. Nothing was really changing, and it wasn't really a proper, like, happy ending for anyone involved. And so I think the reason why I really kind of resonated with uh, Gloria when I finished it was just that struggle of, like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to fight to give them a happy ending. Kind of like, narratively, it feels kind of similar to how Ending E worked in Neurotomda. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, definitely, it seems like Labyrinth of Galleria is going to be in contention here. Uh, so we'll go ahead and put it alongside In Stars and Time as kind of, you know, promoted, so to speak, in this list. Uh, in the interest of time. So that one I'm very happy to give some time to speak to because it is that game's primary strength based on how you and Adam describe it. Uh, so let me look at the list here and see if there's anything that we can I, th- uh, I think we should just rip the band off. Is, is, is Final Fantasy 16 top three? I was going to go to that. It is not. Go ahead, like, Alex. I, I just, the thing is, it's, it's the, some of the characters are absolutely incredible. And I think most of the characters are elevated hugely by their performances, at least in English. Um, I can't speak the other languages, though I hear good things because I meant to play in Japanese and I've gone around it. But also, I think we should be judging it on the English anyway, not only as an English speaking site, but also because they did record English first, you know. Um mm. that that team went in and recorded and then the Japanese uh voices went in and, you know, did their work to the English lip sync. But yeah. it's just for me, it's the story really struggles as it goes on. Um it struggles to maintain momentum. There's a bunch of weird little cul-de-sacs that lead nowhere. Uh, mid-airship thing is one of the ones that, that really sticks out to me is like, why is that in the narrative again? Um, and yeah, I just, and, and I feel like it, it's got some really strong ideas about thinking about, uh, Clive's time as a slave and all that sort of stuff. But it all sort of falls away in service of a more traditional, more straight up, uh, Hill God, JR, like, traditional Japanese RPG style plot. But that bit isn't done as well as it is in many other similar games and many other Final Fantasy games. It's sort of like they have you're, this You're not really saying good traditional plot. is bad, you're just saying this traditional is no, not a good example of it. Well, well, what I'm saying is they had, they have really interesting ideas and then at a certain point in the story they like pull the handbrake and, and, you know, uh, drift into the tradition. But the traditional stuff they do isn't very good. Well, it's actually, it's not, not very good. It's fine, but it comes at the expense of dropping all the interesting stuff they'd done up to that point. And I also just think that there are, for all the bright spots, for, you know, event performance of Clive in particular, and all this sort of stuff, for all that stuff, there's a lot of little things. The way the game treats Jill towards the end, um, the weird sort of uh, one note characterization of like uh, Annabella, Clive's yeah. mother, 
um, where it's like they've taken notes from Game of Thrones because that also has those one note <laughs> evil ladies. <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, it just drags it down. It's like much like the rest of Final Fantasy 16, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. The story is really incredibly high highs. The stuff that's excellent is truly like not just excellent, but the best in the Final Fantasy series. And the stuff that's bad is really muddled and really bad. For me, anyway. And unfortunately, all, all the bad stuff's all backloaded, so that's the lingering impression, is all the good, promising stuff's up front, and then it all falls away, like you stated. I was just going to say, uh, for one thing, I completely agree with Alex. Um, I I feel like whenever I think about Final Fantasy sixteen from a narrative perspective, um, for one thing, someone says, who's your favorite character? And I actually only said Ben Starr the other day because, I mean, the performances are just that good. Um, you know, and, and, and the world itself is is well done. Um, the themes are well done, I think. You know, and certainly the pacing gets very strange and there are certain things about the themes that get reiterated a little bit too much as a result of that pacing. Um, and then, yeah, like, it, it, I think, gives way to this, traditional thing that like Alex said again it has been done better uh in other games certainly in other FFs that sort of thing um so you get this thing with the main villain as he as he be, you know starts coming on I guess more strongly I guess you could say you know starts showing up in more scenes and and doing his you know villainy antics um and it's just kind of like well this is surprisingly one note after some of the the moments that have happened previously, um, yeah, I, I I'm really just reiterating what's already been said, but absolutely some of the highs, some of the lowest lows. For me, it's also the element of there's nothing wrong with bringing that those sort of traditional elements into a story that starts out very non-traditional. But you would hope they would use the non-traditional lens as a way of having something really interesting to say about those tropes. And that was how I felt right throughout the story. So when you start getting to the point when you're getting the lore, dro- the lore drops about the nature of Ultima and the Fallen and all this sort of stuff, um, I was starting to get really excited. And then you get to the end of the game and it's just like, oh, that, like, that's it. There's, there, there isn't actually anything, anything deeper. Uh, there isn't actually any commentary on these tropes that have been used in Final Fantasy before. It's just sort of, we drop the slavery. Think about it, right? Think about yeah. how much that game puts into um, the Game of Thronesy war between the various nations. And it puts a lot of thought and a lot of background lore and stuff like that into that element of the game. And then that stuff disappears. Those stories aren't really resolved apart from like things that the big bad does that wipes countries off the map or changes the status quo. But all that element of of the world of 16 is, is, is not actually resolved in a weird way. There's more of a resolution to the war between Alexandria and Lindblom and Burmesia and Clayray 9 than there is between Sambrek and Rosaria and the nations in 16, which is mad because 9 isn't actually about that. <laughs> but 16, yeah. for a good 30 to 40% of the game, is about that. Y- yeah, I just, that. yeah. And I, so, put it this way, I like it a great, you know, I, I still liked it a great deal, but high highs, low lows, like for me, I don't think it's going to make the final list, but I think because it's an expansion, but for me, like Phantom Liberty is a far better writing storytelling game than 16. 
Um, well, let's go, let's I go into that then. So we do have, we do have Phantom Liberty on the list. Uh, kind of a little bit of a, maybe a, an untraditional entry because it is an expansion, but he got nominated and it's on the list. So uh, let me just go ahead and, well, and say that I think when Witcher Blood and Witcher 3 Blood and Wine released, like in 2016, we basically just considered it a separate game, you know, just an expansion, yeah, I mean, but we it, it, scored it. It, it. it won one of the big awards. Yeah. It won like best big budget get best like hd game or something yeah, like that yeah. whatever whatever we did then because mm-hmm. we broke it up between because back then we had we had dedicated handouts right um yeah. but um yeah i mean it's look it's a 30 hour experience so it's as long as some of the other games we're talking about it's you know um and i just think it's it's excellent it sort of takes a lot of the what that is is that is a team who has worked out what their game and what their engine is good at and does a great deal more of it but also you just have the element of they um they they wanted to do something different the flavor of the spy espionage story that you go into in phantom liberty is completely different to the rest of cyberpunk 2077 and i really really respect it for that it goes off in a different direction and so where cyberpunk the core game owes a lot to blade runner and you know all that sort of stuff this it steals as much from Born and things like that as anything else and like 24 and things like that. You know, you've got presidential jets getting shot down. You've got, you know, proper espionage. You've got James Bond style, uh, going to a party and, and doing stuff at a party, um, with, you know, Idris Elba being your sort of, uh, your contact in that, uh, Solomon Reed as his character is called. So I really like that element. And actually the other thing I think that's brilliant about the writing and storytelling of it is it really does quite seamlessly slide into the rest of cyberpunk despite being quite separate um it's it's built in such a way where it locks you into the main story for a certain amount of time and stops you from going back to night city because it would feel weird if you were to drop this highly urgent storyline but then it gets to a point where things calm down it's like okay now you can go back to the city if you want and just lots of little touches so like if you call your love interests and other friends during the Phantom Liberty plot, they went back and got all those actors back in and recorded new voice lines so your V can discuss what's going on. So, you know, if you're with Judy, you can call Judy and say, I just met the president and have a whole back and forth about it. Um, so I love how it sort of links in, which I think a lot of expansions are not very good at that. Even The Witcher 3 Blood and Wine, not very good at that. Um, it was very much, very, very separate from the rest of the game. This feels a, 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 as a piece of the rest of the game, even though it's clearly so different that it wasn't cut from the main game, because usually when you get an expansion that feels like it fits that well, it usually fits that well because it's been cut from the main game. Um, not so in this instance, at least it doesn't feel that way because it's so different. And finally, um, the ending it adds to Cyberpunk, I'm not going to talk about what it is, but I just think there was a path to go with the ending, you know, if you're going to add an additional ending in a, in a DLC to a game that has some quite challenging endings that not everybody loves, um, you know, the easy thing to do is to give people an ending that everyone will love. And they really stick to their guns of, this is, as they call it, the dark future. And in this cyberpunk world, there are no good choices. There are really no good people. Um, you just got to do the best you can. And they follow through with that in... The uh, in the, the the new ending there, Phantom Liberty, and I think it's just wonderful. Yeah, you actually wrote about this on VG247, right? And I agree with you that 
I'm glad I didn't just give you a happy everything is perfect ending. That would have been no. So did anyone else here besides me and Alex play this? Phantom Liberty? Okay, I'll just take the stage then. Uh, so Oh you did. Oh sweet. Uh so I'll speak and then I'll speak and then I'll hand it over to you. Um I definitely agree that all the endings in Cyberpunk have big drawbacks. There is no golden ending. You could argue that there is a best ending, but there is no perfect happy ever after ending. And I actually I went to the Reddit after uh and maybe that was a mistake, after um the uh the expansion release, and I was surprised at the amount of vitriol that a lot of people really wanted that happy ending and they didn't get it. And I'm not saying it's valid for, and I spoke to this on the podcast. I'm not saying it's that they shouldn't want that. Like that's, that's, a, but the developers had a vision and they didn't compromise on it. And then that's what they delivered. Uh, one thing that I will say is that I really liked them. The main crux of Phantom Liberty, especially towards the end is putting, uh, Reed, who is, um, the NUSA agent played by Ildis Elba and then Songbird against each other. And, Neither one is a hundred percent in the right. Like there is no, this is, this is who you side with if you're good. This is who you side with if you're bad. Like Reed really is kind of a little bit of a control freak. He thinks, uh, he knows best sort of thing. Um, Songbird is, you know, she is a little bit more sympathetic, but also she's very unstable and dangerous at times. So it's like if you protect her, you have to kind of limit it's, it's, it's the, the crux that you have to make between those two is not an easy choice to make. Um, and then the outcome, they're, they're framed in a way where you are never quite sure if you've made the right choice, which I think in an RPG is a really, really compelling way to do it, where you're not like, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing, so I'm going to pick this choice. There is no, there's nothing to even weigh against each other. This is the Paragon choice or the Renegade choice, where here it's like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, but I think I am. And when I'm going through, I had that feeling on my on my mind the whole time. And it was, I, I really, it was a really quite of a unique thing and a, a, a true strength to the writing team. Uh, and how they kind of dialed it in for this uh, for this little expansion. It made me really excited for whatever they do next, because one of the things they said, which I think is an extremely difficult thing for a developer, for a writer to realise, or a team of writers, is they said that they realised that some many of the choices in the original version of the game were almost too subtle. Like, they looked at Bioware, sort of Paragon Renegade stuff, and said, well, we don't want to do that. But then the choices they did make, was so subtle that a lot of the time players weren't realizing they were making a choice. And in Phantom Liberty, so they sort of make it very clear when you're making choices, but they don't change the manner in which those choices playing out is a bit more ambiguous than it is in other games. And I think the combination of those two things, I think it's it, that expansion is one of the best, like, and most satisfying choice-based stories I've played in a very long time. Uh, did anyone else, uh, so we'll keep it on the list for now. It seems like, did anyone else who had played, uh, Phantom Liberty, uh, want to speak to it before we move on? Uh, yeah, I'd like to speak a bit in favor of it. Just, uh, um, Alex and, uh, covered most of the points I wanted to go into, but, um, less to specific, um, story beats. Um, I think there's an interesting thing, um, Alex mentioned how well it slots in into the into the base game as and and feels like it's a natural i guess a natural extension of 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 what you see in the base game but also um I'd like to kind of expand on that a little bit and um it also kind of shows 
how they how the team at the at CD Projekt Red sort of it doesn't quite it doesn't quite feel like a do over. Phantom Liberty doesn't quite feel like a do over for for Cyberpunk 2077, but it does feel like they did internalize some of that feedback and how folks engaged with the base game. And while it was too late to really change, I mean, they would have had to to the issues with the base game are too big to to just i mean wait wait i'm a, i i'm 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 not being clear here but it with phantom liberty it feels a lot better a, a lot more structured in such a way that it preserves the dramatic impact of those moments and that's something that i think was a problem with the base game where um by the time you hit Act Two, and by the time you start moving through the, the 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 main gigs, the main story missions, you get. I think they give you a bit too much freedom in how to in how you're tackling the plot threads. So that if you're kind of like if you've got gamer brain like me, and you're just kind of like to feel out all of your options before you commit, you can end up sort of accidentally making all of the emotional beats not quite hit um as a larger point like um for example your relationship with with johnny silverhand it doesn't feel like it really evolves as you push through the story paths um especially if you're kind of not taking them in the, in in some kind of recommended order so it doesn't feel consistent so it, it and um and with phantom liberty the way it kind of at the start it sort of locks you into this urgent path and it's able to set out the stakes, and they're more, they're, they're, it's much more capable at sort of, uh, of, 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 of laying out how the story goes. That, that way, when you start making your choices, and those choices, as Alex pointed out, they're a little bit less ambiguous. It's not, it's, it, you're less likely to miss out on the fact that you're making a decision. You're, you're that you're, that they're putting some power into your hands to, to 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 determine the flow of the story and so it, it it's harder to miss and so it it it's, it feels like a much tighter game um a much tighter storytelling experience and then and you can sort of contrast this to that oh okay i see cdpr has sort of learned a little bit about how they wanted how how um to to tell this story uh, and and that's not necessarily ref reflected in the base game, so it, it feels like an evolution of sorts on top of everything. It, it feels like a more well realized of what they're going for in the base game now, now that they exactly. could see the feedback and kind of consider what what worked well and what didn't. Uh, Josh, did you have any? Uh, uh, Josh, one, I should say. Did you have any other additional thoughts on Phantom Liberty, or we'll move on to another? Uh, we, we can move on. Yeah, we can move on. I, I, I just gotcha. think, it was, I think it was a really nice way to seamlessly add it on, and a really like you already mentioned a different flavor of it. I don't know if it like personally wins this category. I, I think it is. It is. It is. It is very short. I mean, it is very sweet, but like uh, like relatively short, like in terms of like what your what the plot beats are actually doing. Like it feels like like the arc of it, if you're just mainlining it, feels very. You know, it feels very limited, but that's within the scope of the deal of being a DLC expansion uh, itself. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we'll keep Cyberpunk Phantom Liberty in consideration for now. Uh, I'm going to tackle a few of these other ones. So, uh, just for clarification's sake, 
Uh, I, I didn't cross it off the list before. I'm going to cross it off the list now, even though we spoke to it. What it did real, uh, the man who erased his name, really good payoff, but doesn't stand up as a whole package to the other ones. So I'll go ahead and, uh, unless anyone feels otherwise, I'll go ahead and take that one off the list. Probably should have done that earlier. Uh, we have on here, um, let's go to Octopath Traveler 2. So I think many of us played this. So I think this might be one of the ones that more than half the cast has played in some, in some fashion, if I did my accounting right. Uh, one of the weaknesses of Octopath Traveler 1 was that the stories felt very disjointed. Octopath Traveler 2, even in like purportedly and through the marketing and everything, really wanted to address that in terms of having the, the, the cross paths, having the, the progression of the stories feel a little bit less mechanical. Um, who does, uh, has Quentin or Chow played Octopath Traveler 2? Just trying to get someone who hasn't had a chance to speak recently. I wrote a side quest guide that covers the entire game. <laughs> All right, so Chow, you have played this. Uh, what are your thoughts on Octopath Travelers 2's writing or storytelling? I, I thought it was great. Um, I do think, like, it, with the larger range of casts, it's like, you know, there's got to be some stories that are, you know, doesn't hit as strong as some certain other characters. Um, I think my favorite story in there is probably uh, Particios, and the other one would be Oswald. I think Oswald could have been done so much more with, like, is this all in his head? Could he have been, like, the one that murders his own family? But it just kind of, like, within the next chapter, everybody tells you, he's like, oh, wait, that's just, that's just somebody else being a scumbag, which is Mar- uh, Harvey. So I yeah. feel that could have been some lost potentials right there. Um, and the other one's very strong is a Throne's story, or Throne, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I think that's At the story. end of her story, I felt like, Gross at the end, the way that that the way that the places that that story goes, but in a good way. Like it's, it's like, like supposed to be unnerving. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes it very strong because it's like. Ugh. And then uh, I, I also thought Agnia's story had very high uh, protagonist energy. I mean, they're all having all be protagonists. But... I mean, we're all talking about like our favorite stories. I want to say Casty's. Casty's villain. Yeah, Casty's wasn't, wasn't great, but Casty's like personal story is like so sad. It's so sad. Let's, uh, Quentin mention. So that, I feel like we've almost mentioned to. all the characters. Like, they all have good stories in some way or another. I don't know. At least half of them. Quentin, what do you think? Yeah, I gotta say, uh, the, the stories are all so beautifully different, not just in, in execution and, and tone, but, like, the characters inhabit almost these different worlds as, as it would be in a lot of other games in terms of, like, how they're written, how things go, the, the tropes that are employed and, and usually quite well. Like, for example, and, and I think this is one of the things, like everyone talks about with Octopath uh, Traveler 2, you know, well, they enhance this, that, and the other thing so that it feels less uh, uh, repetitive than the first game, which is which is true. But, like, the thing that stands out to me the most is that I go into a Particio chapter, and it feels like I'm, in, in terms of the, the narrative and, and even just some of the writing and stuff, it feels like I'm almost playing a different game than if I'm playing something with like Hikari or 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 you know Casty or or even like um, any, anybody else really. Um, and then and, and that's something that I liked about the first game was that there were these diverse feelings, um, not quite you know live alive, but but diverse. And and yeah, I I didn't really struggle this time at all to just be like I think I'm going to do this like all chapter ones, all chapter twos, all chapter threes, and that sort of thing because everything always felt like such a breath of fresh air. And, um, yeah, I, I I think my favorite, probably Particio. Um, I've had 
several of his quotes stuck in my head for, you know, almost a whole year now. Um, just such a good guy. <laughs> I love that guy Dev, so much. Dev, Definitely elevated by the English voice acting on it. Yeah, I never absolutely. thought I would have a character with, like, a southernish drawl, like, be that compelling, but they pull it off, in my yeah. opinion. I'm sorry, yeah. I played the Japanese. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure he's great there, too. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I think the 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 thing they really improved upon in Thunders of Octopath is like narrative is like that kind of the the it's not such a rigid structure compared to the first one because rigid because the first one is very much story beat uh, that that leads into like a reason to go into a dungeon then boss then yeah. end and that's very much true for a good chunk of the the. Yeah, repeat that. Like, repeat that yeah. four times, times eight times for each character. Yeah, just, yeah. Well, yeah. well Octopath is very good at like varying that experience. So it's always like some some cha- story chapters are like that, but not. It's not the majority. Like, but a Throne Age chapters, for example, has no combat encounters at all. It's very narrative driven about like, uh, and it's and the the main climactic moment of that is like having a drinking contest, and like one of them might be poison. This is sort of a small thing that is kind of robotic and kind of gamer brain in a sense. But I remember um, I was doing Ochette's chapter three and I was thinking like, I'll do her chapter three, not like I I went into her chapter three, not thinking like, oh, this is the actual like climax of her chapter with her final boss and everything. Because it's just it's only three chapters compared to the other four. And. My point is, is that like going into it, I just sort of kind of had this pre this pre this assumption preconception that like this is going to be like not the final chapter. This is just you know another part of her story. But no, it's like ratcheted up right into her climax of her story right then and there, and it was unexpected and it was fresh in that sense. You get what I'm saying? Like I had this expectation that it was like going to be this overly structured thing. Like oh, this is chapter three of four. Like no, this is chapter three of three. You're done. And that was a good thing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Piggy, so it was, the fact that, that I mixed it up, oh, sorry, mixed it up like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, piggybacking on that too. Um, I had uh, sort of a reversal uh, with with my playthrough with Oswald. Um, I got to uh, I, I I might get this wrong, but I feel like yeah, no, yeah, it's right because his first two chapters are combined. First of all, they're unique because they're combined. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you get to chapter three, and this was my first. Um, Oh, some of them are are fewer, or sometimes even a little longer than the four chapter rigid structure of the first game. Um, so I finished chapter three, and I was like, "Wow, they're going to have to really slam a lot into chapter four, you know, because this this is fun. I like this character, but this feels a little weirdly tangential relative to where where it's headed, you know, that sort of thing." Um, and then Oswald is is five chapters, and um, oh, you know, so it was like. They're really shaking this up. So between that and then the last point I want to make on this game is is that there's just a greater sense of cohesion, which isn't necessary, I think, to make a good Octopath Traveler game per se, but it was done well while not sacrificing that individuality of, of the different stories that I still like about both games. Like there's there's an actual climax here, but it doesn't feel forced, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I de- definitely the fact well anything that they did to make this feel less mechanical and both of those examples are really good ones so we'll keep Octopath on the list and uh, we're keeping a lot of them on the list so we're gonna have to pare this down at some point. Uh, I just also but, want to you know, point out I liked uh, Temenos's Sherlocky stuff too. So oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. also I just love uh, Temenos and Crick's uh, whole oh, dynamic. Uh, I miss mm. Crick got a raw deal. <laughs> 
so good. Oh man, I can't believe I didn't mention Temenos. Yeah, well, I think we pretty much mentioned every uh, protagonist. Except uh, Hikari, maybe. Well, I, I, I mean, Hikari's maybe. a pretty straightforward story. I mean, his, Hikari's his final story boss is a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like the traditional story where it's evil like, bad guy. Yeah, Hikari and Agnia's stories definitely feel like the sort of white bread, so that some of the more like uh, esoteric ones don't just completely overwhelm it, which I kind of I feel, appreciate. Agnia's sort of like I feel like Agnia ties everything else together. It's kind of you know. Oh yeah, she like Agnia is literally the like main protagonist of that story. Like, there's a reason that the like the game literally ends on her. Right, so. exactly. She's the ending sequence. So, all right, I like her final entry. boss though. Her final boss is kind of hilarious. It's like, no, it's good. I, I really like it. It's another one of those change of pace things, and that's a surprise. And that's what Octopath Traveler Two does. I, I feel so well. like and I'm guessing I, we'll speak to that. Yeah, I feel like even outside of the, uh, the, the storytelling stuff, we're getting a, getting a preview here where I'd be shocked if Octopath 2 doesn't end up in our top five. <laughs> it's a god. Well, that's kind of right, another why we're doing this. Hey, I know we're we spending go. a lot of we time. Go on. Well, we're spending a lot of time in our categories, right. but the point is, is we'll have touched on all these games when we get to the main list. So. Exactly. We're going to pay dividends. And speaking of that, here's a game that's going to come up in a few different contexts. Baldur's Gate 3. So it's in multiple categories, including writing and storytelling. Obviously, this game, purportedly, more to discuss, does many things very well. How do we feel about Baldur's Gate 3's writing and storytelling? Uh, Adam? <laughs> you knew I had an opinion on this. Okay. Okay, so, okay. Anyone else? No, 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 no. I'll go. Okay. okay. So, All right, go ahead. I think in terms of, like, dialogue and characters and... Those sorts of things, this game is excellent, especially with quest writing and how that ties into the mechanics in terms of like different ways to approach quests and things like that. So I played through this game twice, and there was actually a few things with Kaga and the druids at the beginning that I never encountered on my first playthrough, where she was like dealing with these dark druids uh, or some sort that I forget what they're technically called, but like some of the writing around characters and quests and your companions and things like that, those are all absolutely excellent. Um, great voice acting, great characters. Um, I think it's a good mix of characters that are kind of like, how do I put this? It's a good variety of characters. Uh, I like, uh, Lizel being a very intimidating, very direct, very, um, kind of like determined, almost single-minded character compared to Astarion, who's a little bit aloof, maybe a little bit sarcastic, um, yeah, but but also driven in his own like mischievous ways, and you know so on and so forth. I think all the characters are really good. I do have a, I I was a little bit disappointed in Baldur's Baldur's Gate Three's like front to back plot. And when I say plot, I kind of mean just like the more mechanical. This happens first. This happens second. This is the end, sort of thing. Um, and that was actually a little bit disappointing to me. I'll give one kind of spoiler example that I think is emblematic of it. In that there's a part late in the game where you're about to free Orpheus from his prison in the astral, from his prison in the astral prism. And the emperor, who is like a huge character as far as plot goes, almost behind everything in this game, uh, is like, I can't condone this. So I have no choice but to join the nether brain, which is the thing we've been trying to fight against this whole time. And I was like, I literally laughed. I was like, what? Why? That makes no sense. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Like, there's, you have, I know you disagree with the, my choice here 
and you're reacting to it, but this feels really extreme. Like we were, this is everything. We, you, the whole plot of the game was building at this point to fight the Nether Brain, and you just decided because you disagreed with me on this to join it. I, I don't understand. I am like actually genuinely a little bit confused here why you decided to do this, and that's where I think I lose a little bit of points on the narrative part of this is the actual plot, not writing and characters, but like the actual like front to back plot. That's I agree with you there. Basically, yeah, yeah. like, like, like I, I think to to have a really good story, like writing or storytelling, if you if you kind of spit on the spit your players like spit on the face of your players after like how many hours to lead up to this point, it's like a total like one eighty reversal. I think it's a huge, huge uh, thing mark against you. To be honest, like, I I, I, that scene too. <laughs> I I mean I I'll just by saying I, I gave this game a 10 so obviously I kind of like it um, but yeah I, I, I do see where you're coming from um, yeah the character writing I, I think is almost across the board brilliant the quest writing is almost across the board brilliant uh, you know going into things that we're going to talk about later but just the reactivity involved in those quests um, is just some of the best I've ever seen by far I do see where you're coming from with, with some of the like the front to back you know, plot mechanics. Um, I'm going to liken this because uh, it's been a little bit of a joke among some of us, but seeing a lot of people say like this, like Baldur's Gate 3, oh, it's the, the spiritual successor to, to Dragon Age, you know, when, when back in the day, Bioware was like, Dragon Age Origins is like our spiritual successor to Baldur's Gate, you know, don't worry. Um, but when I see specifically what Adam was talking about with the Emperor, um, and this is, I guess technically kind of a, a spoiler concept with Dragon Age Origins, but not how it plays out, obviously. But it, what popped up in the back of my head with that spiritual successor conversation having been so prevalent is it, it almost felt like you get to Logan toward the end of, of Dragon Age Origins and, and you do something he doesn't like and he really doesn't like it. So he's like, I have no choice but to join the Dark Spawn now. Aha, you know, and, and that would have been weird. So, so this came across as a little weird too. But yeah, I, it's just story. I love plot a little bit more tepid on if that makes sense too. Yeah, we're we're kind of we're kind of at a point where we're naturally splitting hairs, where we have a handful of games that are in one way or another all ranging from great to excellent, but we still got to pick one and we still got to make cuts. Um, I know several of us here have played Baldur's Gate three. Does anyone else have uh, either agree or disagree with? the take so far on its writing or storytelling? Uh, I'll, I'll, I think I mentioned this already, but like almost all like the performances are excellent from companion characters yes. to even just like randoms. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of like side characters that are really cool. Um, not are just, not just your companions. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, like Isabel or mole or all these different quest characters that kind of show up Mole's here and great. there. Yeah. Mole's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's a lot of performances that are excellent across the board. Agreed, for sure. Like, if we're going to talk about that, you know, with, like, FF16, um, and, and it's not like any of these games that, that I've played on this list have bad performances at all, but, yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 blew me away in that regard. So is it still in the running for best writing or storytelling? I think it deserves in, in the top five. 
Yeah, but the only thing is you only get a top five two. category. Basically. Yeah, it's too hard to to debate on. I, I mean, yeah, I, I I think it's still in the running for now. I think there's definitely the, some cuts to, to to be made. All right, we're gonna have to make some hard cuts later. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, we've got uh, three more games that we haven't considered yet. Uh, we have Genshin Impact, the Fontaine arc. Did you put this here, Chow? Yeah, I I actually adored this story. This is amazing. Like, I I think like this is like. Shadowbringers tier for me. That's how that's how high I would rate it. But um, I'm not sure if anyone else plays it. Maybe Josh too has played Fontaine. I don't know because I, I, I haven't heard caught up. I've oh. just only oh. done the first part of the of of the Fontaine quest, the the Ace Attorney stuff, basically. Yeah, it gets so good. It's like you find out all what happens with our Hydro Archon and what's the whole backstory behind it, what she's trying to do. But there's, there's a weird one, right? Because I assume you don't want, you don't want the, the, the Fontaine arc to be spoiled, Josh, too, on this. And like, if you, if you want to make a compelling case for this at the, at, at this moment, you're either going to have to like bring it and like spoil the whole thing or just like. Well, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm okay. generally pro spoiler. Okay. Pro spoiler. Hell yeah. Yeah, this this entire story arc feels like um, God Emperor of Dune. I'm not sure anyone has read that book, but Absolutely. it's based. I love that book. It's basically yeah. like okay, the reason why she's like this, you know, this person that appears to be like their goddess is very, you know, doesn't seem that smart and all this stuff. It's because she's not really a goddess. It's she's just a regular human that this, you know, the Hydro Archon, the the original Ar- Hydro Archon gave her to tell her to pretend to be a god for 500 years to basically trick the celestial gods to make this prophecy work so that their whole civilization could be saved. And that's kind of like the major story arc of the thing. And it's like, and she basically goes insane trying to pretend to be this god so that nobody, you know, would judge it, you know, to make this prophecy work. Right. Because if she, if she tells anybody her secret, this entire plan fails. So she's just going insane with nobody to support to. And she's trying to like live up to this facade, this fake God that, you know, she's trying to be this image of it. Right. And that's kind of like this entire story arc. And I, I just love it. And there's like, and there's like these like old classic cinematic scenes that later on they do, like, you know, it goes black and white, you know, trying to show like, it's all like a stage play to her and eventually she just kind of like breaks apart at the last moment because she just can't keep this facade for 500 years because she's just like a normal human being that's being basically being forced to do this task and she has to put up with it because if she doesn't do it everyone dies in Fontaine basically that's kind of like this entire story arc so So, that's a 500 year long deception that burdens primarily one person yes at the cost of all the people Basically. Uh, is it is it top two? Um, it, it's a top for me. I'm not sure about everyone else. It's, it, 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 I, it's, I, I would fight for it. Look, it's, it's, un, it's un, like, un, this is one of those things where, unfortunately, being democratic is just kind of hard because it's Chow versus the world. It's okay, standard. Chow. I'm going to have that very, very soon. I'm sure after you're this, gonna, right it'll after be you. like you're fighting for D. Right after this, yeah, right after yeah. this, and it's going to be the same result. I get it. Yeah, so. Because unfortunately, we can't all have played everything, uh, but it's still you know, got got the chance to speak to. Would you say that this is the best story arc in Genshin so far? Yes, I I, I vastly agree with this one. I know it could be mm-hmm. a little fine tuned a little bit because you know Genshin kind of suffers from 
you know, dialogue going on a little too long. It could have been cut a little bit shorter. You know, that's kind of like my issue with Genshin's writing. But, you know, the story is great, though. Mm-hmm. So he's the top two. <laughs> I, look, look, Joe, I, I, I feel you. I feel you on this. Okay. Well, let's bring a like Kindred Spirit, uh, another game mm-hmm. on this list that that uh, you brought up. I mean, that's right. yeah, I mean, Demon's Roots has so much going against it, especially on a panel like this, right? Because well, one, it, it like it is very much marketed and very much is like a, an arrow gay RPG. It has you know hentai scenes in it, and you know, and that's not really. I'm sure when people like the 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 mark like the target audience goes into it, they're and they're for the porn, but uh, but. You know, I was aware of it. I got aware of it because like people were like, "Hey, there's genuinely a good story here. You can actually go play for the gameplay and story first. And like, okay, and it handles a lot of like themes that Final Fantasy Steam tried to uh, uh, tackle, but it does this does it in a much more better realized way. The very, 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 very basic premise setup is like it's uh it's, been, it's on this continent where uh, demons have started um, making their way to the service world uh, to go. Uh, the plot again, you know, kind of rule over humanity and so, so forth. And you play this demon named uh, Demon uh, Death Polka. Um, and she has like the, for whatever reason, it, it's explained in the story later on that she has the form of a human being. It, ta- it is very much um, a, a game that tackles like about the, uh, about the natures of cycles of violence, about slavery, about um, oppression, about, you know, what, what it means to like it's it like because the the main core theme of this game is trying to find a way for demons and humans to coexist together. But there's so much discrimination on both sides about like the nature of each other because of of uh, past violence and history among them. You can change the mind of like you know one or two people, but how how will you go about changing like the mind of like an entire culture uh, when the, when the uh, discrimination is so deeply rooted? into these uh societies. So I won't I won't belabor the point, you know. I'm just, I was very, very impressed about the way it conveys its themes in a very like smart, mature manner of like of like as you're going around the, the this continent, uh conquering and like solving problems that like have uh, sprung up due to human society. Um and they're not it's not to say like a clean cut solve. It's more like, hey, these people are being oppressed. What can we do to like uh Make their lives just uh, a little bit better to improve their conditions, not necessarily uh, solving like the underlying, uh, you know, fault of society that has uh, been built up over you know decades and decades, but trying to find a way for humans and uh, demons and humans to see eye to eye at the very least as a as as the very very first step, not necessarily like clean integration, but like at least being able to like acknowledge each other as equals first before. You know, being able to take take another step forward. It's like it's not even like you have like a, you know, it's not a clean cut. Like, hey, I'm a I'm a savior, and I've a hundred percent like solved all your problems. It's nowhere near like that. So, I mean, this this is not going to win this category compared to like the other top, you know, ones in contention. But I was just very very impressed for like this little small RPG that's like, you know, obviously an RPG maker hentai game to somehow. Convey its themes better than FF16. I have a couple really of comments. Yeah. One, I've seen this. This is I'm going to make a small little joke here too, but I've seen people praise the story of this game, like outside of just you in this context too. Um, 
Although one of those people was named like Arrow Gamer 69 or something. So I don't know how much his, <laughs> his, his opinion is worth. Yeah. But, uh, um, but I have seen people actually say like, Hey, this game has got some good writing on it. Yes, it has some sex scenes and stuff in it, but so does Baldur's Gate 3 or whatever. Um, now my yeah. second question was, this game is available on Steam, right? You can just, Buy it? Yeah. You, you, yeah, you can buy it. We've, we've yeah. covered games on our site that don't get approved for Steam, you know? Like Dungeon Travelers. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess one of those was. But yeah, you know, so, sure. I, I will. It is overwhelmingly positive. And then when we posted our reader's choice, which you should vote in, or no, I guess you can't vote in it. It's already over, which you should have voted in. Uh, <laughs> people were really excited for uh, Demon's Roots being. I, I thought some there. people were just so, like, Kind of maybe in a similar mindset where like they know it's not going to win, but they're just glad that they can even vote for it at all. So right, yeah, and, 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 we, and we got the chance to cover it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for people just like who say, "Hey, Delft Boca is like one of the best RPG protagonists," like I can see where they're coming from. Like there, there's a genuinely very very good character uh, beneath the facade that like she she puts on like early throughout the game, and like as you learn about her past, her story. Like it's like for people to say this is like the greatest like lesbian story Yuri story ever told. Like I can see where they're coming from. There's a genuine heartfelt story, um, that that has like built up. Like you you are thrust into like a, a really impossible situation at the beginning of this game. And as you unlock, as you learn more and more, you learn more about like the the history of this continent and why things ended up so fucked up. And like it's like wow, that's honestly like surprisingly smartly told <laughs> which real kind of shocked me the last game that we haven't considered yet is up on the list uh fate samurai remnant i know we've have a handful of people here that have played this one yeah it, I, how do we feel about fate samurai remnant for writing and storytelling um i i mean i i like it because it's a uh, it, it mo- it's it's one of those weird things where it modernizes like an existing formula right like Fate Samurai Remnant, uh, I look at it as, like, it's hard to separate it from, like, Fate Stay Night, the way it kind of modernizes that story. It has the three routes, it's kind of like Fate Stay, uh, Stay Night, and, it, and like, it has, obviously, it operates on, like, the the core tenets of what makes, like, a fake story, right? You have, like, the ser- the master-servant system, you sort of have this ritual, it's not, it's not, it's not the Holy Grail in this one, it's the Waxing Moon, and I think the, the thing about this story that makes it uh, really well is, like, it comparatively, like past fake video games, this has like the most well realized story in the sense that like you feel like you're an active participant in, in the story and the way that you're able to like um, build up your characters and in the way that like you see other perspectives of like the participating um, masters and servants of the story. It's not only just about this relationship between Miyamoto Yori and Saber. It is very. It's also about all the other masters and servants, and that explores that relationship with them. And yeah. Sometimes, so, um, real quick here. Sorry to interject. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna forget his name. So yeah. first of all, I'll just say, just I wasn't super hot on the story, but I'm also like not a fate fan. I thought it was mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. But the yeah. one character who who was like much more interesting than they initially let on, I don't remember his name. I'm sorry. It's the Chinese. The Chinese guy oh. and, and his servant, like their story yeah. was like yeah. probably the most interesting part where like on the two different routes that are in the game, they're turned out quite different, uh, for him specifically and what, what that goes through. So I was just bouncing off your point about like perspectives and the other characters here. So. Yeah. Um, man, I already forgot his name too. Damn it. I'm like trying to search for it. Um, um I, I know Chow and Josh too also played this game as well. You guys wanted to speak up on it. Um, 
I haven't got like too far into the game, but I do kind of like it. I just don't really have like too much of a deep thoughts in it because I feel like I need to see the other routes to see mm-hmm. like where all the strong point is because that's where everyone keeps hyping up is like the other routes are always better, which is kind of like traditional in Fates game. It's like, yeah, the most, the basic route, it's like the most boring is one. And once you get to like heaven's field, it's like, it's like bad shit just gets real, you know, that kind of thing. So Jen Cheng Gong was that, was that character's name, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like me with fate in general. It's like, yeah, I had to get to like the last route before it becomes like this, like God tier game or something. <laughs> I, I think it, it's one of those like weird things, right? Where like other routes don't make sense until you see like how other story developments wrap up. I think, especially like with the third ending of this game, like the third ending of this game, the final ending is very, very short. Like, uh, so basically, there are the, the the two routes that have like substantial things behind them are like there's a certain point of the game where you find out the the real identity of one of the characters. I forgot which class it was. It was like it wasn't Berserker. It was like was it Lancer? It was it was Ryder. And then so there's like there's like the the whole point of like hey you find out. Um, writer's identity and, um, and it kind of causes, causes a stir, like a cataclysm because of that, uh, service, like, a noble phantasm, which is like their ultimate attack, which is like summoning this, like, bull of heaven onto the, the continent. And then, like, you have to work with other masters and their servants to, um, um, suppress it pretty much. And then from, uh, here, here on out, uh, the two, the two main routes that can happen is like, uh, your sister gets kidnapped by uh, Chiemon and um, and Lancer, and then so it's 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 very much your standard. Hey, go rescue your sister, and it and it wraps up in a very you know standard way. Where like a- after you rescue your sister, you won the the maximum retrieval, have have very you know have happily ever after as it can be. Um, the second one, I believe, what was the second ending? I think it was it was Zhang. It was uh, with betraying. the guy. <laughs> yeah, it was Zhang. Uh, but, uh, t- because after you deal with Caster's master, Caster is still manifested in the world um, for a very brief time, and he needs to find a new master to um, um, be a, form a pact with. I actually and didn't. Just, I actually felt like I didn't understand this mechanically. Like I thought they would just disappear, but they didn't. No, they sound like a. It's, it's fate's bullshit. That's all right. I'm gonna say. Yeah. yeah. The thing with yeah. fate is that every all of the rules they make, there's always someone who's breaking the rules so like they say the servant goes away there's always one or two guys that get managed to stick around isn't there literally a weapon called like rule breaker or something yes. like that yeah yeah it's like <laughs> independent action stuff like that you not so stuff so uh, the church breaking the rules in the fate series one of the one of the mandatory story points is like zhang and his uh his archer servant like archer always dies no matter what um in, in the story no matter what route you take so zhang is effectively either in one of the endings is effectively out of the war uh permanently uh and then the second one he he forms a pact with uh caster and becomes like the final boss uh pretty much in that route and it's like a so much of a darker turn because you were in good relations with Zheng, and uh, Zheng has his own personal reasons uh, uh, with his he family. Wants to dynasty. revive the Ming Dynasty, basically. That's right. Yeah, but it's, it's a pretty interesting story of like his reason, uh, his uh, mm-hmm. uh, reasons of wanting to do this, um, and that's sort of like almost like a darker ending, so to speak. But like, but the so that's kind of the second ending of dealing with Zheng, and then you you also form a pact with uh, another master named Yui Shosetsu. 
uh, on this too, which is, um, so she's kind of like the main centric character in this, uh, ending. The third one is much, much more brief. So the other two endings add on maybe, I don't know, three, two to three more hours of like, uh, of like that route. It's not, it's not super long, but it's interesting enough. The third one is, you just a fight. Yeah. Iori is, this has been like a effectively foreshadowed for the entire game where like, Hey, Iori, like, Iori was, uh, was born in the wrong era. They keep, you keep, they keep driving that point of like, you know, your sword skills are like magnificent. They're the way that you're able to adapt and learn. Like, you were just born in the wrong era. You're like, what, what does that even mean? You know, because it, it, your, your preconception of this is like, oh, because he shows, he shows kindness and like he's soft-hearted, like, you know, uh, with his, uh, interactions with his sister and, um, his, uh, with Saber. Like, this is not like the mentality of a samurai. But it kind of inverses that in the third ending, like what, what the actual, what they actually meant with Born in the Wrong Era is like, there's a, there's kind of like, Yori's a sociopath. He's always striving to find like a stronger opponent. So this Waxing Moon like book, uh, uh, that you, or not, but like, like this kind of, the, 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 artifact, the thing, the monument, what artifact, do they call it? Yeah. The, the, the I forgot. Statues, whatever, the hands. Well, yeah. Um, he takes it for himself, and he's like, "I just want to keep this to to to, to lure more capable fighters uh, to me to challenge them, essentially, because like I I don't like feel anything in terms of, like of the the current like uh, with fighting anymore. I, I'm always striving to fight like more and more capable fighters to show like my if, like if I'm a, a capable fighter. And obviously, Saber is kind of the uh, takes on the opposite viewpoint of that. It's like this waxing moon is fucked up. It's artificially made. It is not like essentially corrupt by its essential nature. I mean, that, that, that's pretty much the cannot... plot of the game, as you realize that yeah. waxing moon ritual is basically a farce. So. Yeah. So, so the, this this partner that you've been uh, playing with since like hour one of the game, that's actually the true final boss. Is like Iori and Saber having a duel, a final duel, a uh, showdown, and it, it ends in a very very bittersweet note in its true end of Saber. It's basically a double suicide. Because no matter what, Sa- Saber, yeah, Saber wins or, or loses either way, basically. Yeah, and and it's a very brief like, hey, they it's uh they both essentially lose. Uh, Saber obviously, if the lawyer has a master, like manifests out of like the the world, and Kaya, the only family that uh, Iori ever had, like stumbles onto his dead body uh, yeah. at the very end, and that's it. That's the that's the end of that game. So um like. And, and, um, you know, I think that's a really, really interesting way of, like, showcasing that, like, real story behind, like, after you've, uh, seen other potential ends in the game of how this could actually end up. This feels like that actually the true end of the game, but it only hits harder once you've seen the other perspectives of how this could have ended. And also, like, you also get, like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you get to see the other relationships of the other masters, and sometimes how this manifests in the story is through a new game plus like you don't actually see many scenes with uh the with assassin's master uh and 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 their perspective until new game plus you don't see much of Chiemon and Lancer oh, yeah. until there's new a, game plus it's like yeah and like there's actually like you know you get to see like you know their personal reasons of why they ex- participated in this war and this only makes sense from their perspective in a new game plus because uh it it wants to give you like a certain like you know notion of them and doesn't want to like pile, pile on too much of your understanding in a first playthrough because if that if that was in a first initial playthrough i feel like that would have actually muddied up the pacing and like really slowed it to like a weird like crawl and like once you 
initially beat it once, now you have like a, a more deeper understanding of like how this is this ended up and why events happened the way they did, um, based on like these new new game plus side stories of like what they were doing before they like you met up with them, so to speak. So I think it's a I think it's a really effective story. I don't know if it like it. I, I would I would like it to see to stick around, but that's personally me. So we've got six games left on the list, if you include Fate Samurai Remnant. And just to remind people who don't have the list in front of them, Fate Samurai Remnant, Baldur's Gate 3, In Stars and Time, which is what we opened this section with, Labyrinth of Galleria, The Moon Society, Cyberpunk 2077, Phantom Liberty, and then Octopath Traveler 2. Um, I think we can cut Octopath 2. Uh, it's like I love that game, but I don't think the story is necessarily what really makes it. It's not bad. It's good, which is why it's lasted as long as it has, but it's absolutely not best of the year uh, material. I know, I know we have to make cuts, and at some point we have to make cuts, but like the fact that when we talked about Octopath Traveler 2, we immediately jumped onto like six different stories and six different characters or so. I'm having, I'm, I'm hesitant to cut it right now. Yeah, you might be right. I, 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 I would, I, I, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I, like, based on what James and Adam has said, I think Labyrinth of Galeria, Galeria goes before Octopath. No, I kind of think that too. Oh, <laughs> no. it seems I, I, like, will, I will not like defend it. Galeria. I mean, I like oh, it no. enough, but not that much. So, what about what about Baldur's Gate Three? We talked about its front to back narrative. Maybe that's but, that's but the, the, the weird thing about Baldur's Gate Three is like. The main like plot, as Adam said, is like has its faults, but there's just so much surrounding also that works in its favor. Yeah. Like like this, the, the character writing, for example. Yeah, this is where like that nebulous phrase "writing" gets tricky because there's yes. there's yeah. like yeah. the actual yeah. dialogue itself, characters, character performances, character writing, like character motivations, theming themes, the actual plot, and that's where I think Baldur's Gate Three is a little weak. Like the front to back plot about these three death god. Uh, acolytes or whatever you want to call them, like summoning another brain. Like, I don't know, is that really that interesting? But like everything besides the plot is excellent. It's just the plot itself in Baldur's Gate to me is just kind of like on paper. Oh, fine. Maybe. Well, actually the, the emperor thing isn't even not fine. I would say that's actively bad, but that's like only a part of the equation here. So. Kind of like, it's kind of like uh, how a lot of people feel with like Mass Effect 2, right? They, they talk up. Um, well, Mass Effect is a side quest game. Yeah, yeah. They they talk up so much about it, and I agree with a lot of it. Uh, the the dialogue can be great. You know, there's there's so many cool little interactions and all that. Um, but the the main story itself is what it is. It feels uh, like we're like a, we're we're at a weird impasse now. We're like, okay, so if, if well, how okay, about so this? Uh, I'm I'm willing to not defend Phantom Liberty. I think it's really good and great, and got we've got to made it this far. But compared to being being an add-on, standing up against full releases, I'm okay with if Phantom Liberty doesn't if, go any further. If I can say my uh, say like some defense for Gloria, it's um, the reason why I think it deserves to still be on the list here is that like. The style of its storytelling is very unique and it works really well. And I really think that it actually enhances the themes of the story. It, I understand this is a losing battle. Adam doesn't like uh, the story as much as I do, but I would also kind of contend that's like, is there anything specifically that you didn't like about Gloria's storytelling? 
because I haven't heard anything negative about it. You just said that you um, didn't feel as strongly about the ending as you did for Refrain, which Refrain's ending is like everyone I know that's played it agrees that it's like one of the best endings in all video games. So it's not necessarily like bad that Galeria's is different, but I don't know. I'd have to like remind myself exactly what was going on in terms of like the world state of Galeria at the end of it. Uh, Cause it gets a little bit metaphysical. Um, but there's ultimately comes down to like this relationship between not true and Eric, Erica or whatever you pronounce her name, Eureka. Um, Eureka. Yeah. And I guess that just wasn't as interesting to me mainly. It was like the entire, like, um, story of Gloria can really be summed up uh, uh, of uh, as um, it's a story of love, loss, and courage. And the entire ending is about like trying to make a happy ending for everyone, no matter what the consequences might be. And I, it, it, I don't know. I just, and you have, so uh, the, the story is really con- uh, intricate. So I'm, I'm going to miss out on some of the details, but like in this fake world, that Eureka is found in at the beginning of the game, you have like these, all these other characters who you learn much, much, much later are actually like proxies from characters from the, from the main actual world. And there actually is some weird, interesting foreshadowing with like one character's eye colors. And you can like, but based on the color of his eyes, you can tell like who's actually talking or not. Um, I'm not, I'm not getting this wrong, right? Um, the farmer. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. I actually remember that tripping me up early on. Like, I thought his eyes were blue. Why are they green now? And it doesn't actually explain that till much, much later. Um, but that's, that part was mildly interesting to me in that, like, characters that you meet way, way early on are actually like, it sort of gets into like, I guess, some sort of bullshit anime bullshit, maybe, or it's like, they're actually a totally different character from a totally different place with a totally different, uh, reason for being there, but it does foreshadow it. I think, yeah, I, I, think my, say, I think my main disappointment is just that the ultimate, like, emotional conclusion between Nachiru and Eureka, I just didn't care as much. Meanwhile, for me, it was like the highlight of the entire game. And, well, I'd say that if nothing else, I think that Galeria should be staying on this list for how it handles the whole, uh, twist with, uh, who, uh, Marta's a- uh, Marta actually is and how, she got there because I feel like that's the one central twist of the game story that really kind of ties the narrative together. So James opened the section saying that Octopath Traveler 2 should be pushed off. And I pushed back against that. Does anyone else also feel that Octopath Traveler 2 doesn't go further? Cause I, I could see that not standing up to the other ones. I just, for me, it's behind you know, the ones on this list that I have played, for me, is behind those. Put it that way. All right. Let's start like, in I'm many ways, in many ways the, the story is my least favorite bit of this. Well, not my least favorite, but you know what I mean? Like, of all the things I love about Octopath Traveler 2, if you were to stop me in the street and ask me what I loved about Octopath Traveler 2, although I think the story's fine, it would be the last thing that I would actually list of all the things that I like about it. Well, these are going to be hard cuts. That's, Maybe that's, that's hard cut that, that, for me, that's crazy that like Octopath was tr- struck out so fast. <laughs> like, all right, get, get, get out. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, the only yeah, reason I brought it up is that of the games on that were still on the list, it's like that's the only. It, I just, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a test of it, right? Because like, I would once they got this. Uh, 
I would cut Baldur's Gate 3, Fate Samurai Remnant, and Glaria. All games I played before Octopath, personally. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Baldur's Gate 3, we kind of talked about having that one kind of key weakness. Even though we talked about how it's such a minor thing, it does have that one... Well, uh, one blunt. Uh, let me. Yeah. I, I don't know. This isn't here or there, but like, I, mean, I was actually sort of glad that at the game awards they gave this narrative. Since they gave their award for best narrative to some other game, I think it was Alan Wake Two. Yeah, um, Alan Wake Two. Because I, just think, I feel way, like it's I, just like a flaw. This plot thing. I just kind of wish like the actual plot was just a little bit more interesting. It's, it, but it is just kind of like one piece of the whole. Yeah. It feels like it feels like it's very telling that what really blew up with Baldur's Gate Three was the characters and the interactions, and not the or a plot because it is the party itself that's the soul of that game. I also think, to be fair, when you're making a game of this size, and think about it this way, right? The the last game that I think had characters like this, where people attach themselves to the characters in this way, was probably the Mass Effect trilogy, right? And those games, even if you put all three together, are magnitudes more simplistic in the in the way those characters reflect in the main narrative than Baldur's Gate 3, even if you count all three games. And so I think you have to accept, uh, with a level of inevitability, that when you have characters that are this well-written, that the main narrative is almost going to be clothes horse that you hang those characters off, as opposed to being this incredible plot line. You know what I mean? Because... To have all that complexity in a storyline and in the characters, I think is a nigh on impossible task. Um, so that's what I'd say in defense of it. It's just that, like, I think Larian made choices about the sort of thing they wanted to do. And I think they correctly identified that from a D&D perspective, D&D stories are first and foremost about the people that you adventure with. And so they focused on that. That's actually no one, a really good defense, I think. Yeah, no one like if you think about your most recent D and D campaign, and I and I ask you, hey, tell me something that happened. Nobody's gonna say, oh yeah, we killed the dragon or whatever. They're gonna say, oh yeah, my bard buddy, he rolled like a he he seduced the dragon with some like magic. Like it's about the friends you play with, not the actual story itself. Usually, I agree, and that's that's why I mentioned. Mass Effect 2 earlier, but really, you know, it, it applies to the whole trilogy. Um, By the way, I should also mention that Mass Effect 2 is also a 10 out of 10 RPG site review from back in the day. Very good. Very good. All right. Uh, in Stars in Time, we, it's been a while since we talked about this at the start. So um, we have two people we who have, can defend this. <laughs> um, I will fist fight for it. I, th- I think... <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> Uh, okay, I, 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 think, I, think, I, I think the, sa- the safest strike through right now is Fire Fate Samurai Remnant. I don't think that, that will, will garner the support uh, it needs to actually uh, uh, pull its weight here. I don't, I, I don't I think gladly, I, yes. I will, I will support its exclusion just mm-hmm. to say that I think it's worth, it was worth nominating just because it does. It, it 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 comes together as a fate game like no other fate game has. And like uh, there's this thing that, that uh, on on Aniplex's website on or rather on the fate on the fate YouTube channel they have this old trailer called Essentials of Fate series. It's basically just a commercial for a bunch of fate spinoffs. And it's long, came out long before Samurai Remnant was even announced, but. This uh, and then it, that was a that that was just kind of commercial for 
uh, uh, for 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 Fate spinoffs. Um, and then, but this is the I mean, bar the actual original visual novel, bar reading that, this is the essentials of Fate series in a lot of ways. Even if that doesn't get it on on this list here for best writing, that I think that's that was worth nominating for that that reason mainly, as a Fate fan at least. But yeah, we'll, it's, we'll, we'll, stand, we'll it's standing up against a lot of big. <laughs> it's, it's standing up against a lot of uh, titans here in terms this of is, contemporaries for this category. This is kind of a weird, I guess. Uh, I don't know, like observation I made in that, like, if I'm, I'm comparing Octopath and Baldur's Gate, like Octopath is more like about like individual characters in their like plot lines because we talk about like you know Cassie's plot or Agnia's plot or what have you. Um, and there's while there's some side characters that pop up in those games, it's really about like that central character where Baldur's Gate 3 is more about like, like what Alex was saying, you know, the party and the adventure and the camaraderie and like, um, the character writing almost as like an ensemble versus just like individual, like central focus. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, okay, I think so, it really does. So will Cyberpunk garner the support? I was, I was going to say, uh, yeah. I think I think relative to the speak uh, to the rest, I'm okay losing Cyberpunk for the the fact that it's an add-on. Um, it does what it does really well. We spoke to that at length, but just compl- compared to like I just look at compared to Octopath, compared to Baldur's Gate, compared to Galleria, I don't think it stands up. Yeah, I, I think I don't think it, it was it was a, it was a really it was a, it's a nice redemption story for Cyberpunk. You know, good on them. In keeping with the cyberpunk tradition of hard hard choices and sometimes disappointing <laughs> conclusions. There you go. <laughs> this is how it had to end. There you go. I I, like I will make a uh, so I'm going to make one more spirited defense of in stars and time. <clears throat> and if at the end of the spirited defense and and if Paige has something also uh, obviously you know I'd love to get another perspective on it. If at the end of the spirited defense you still think it should be struck, then I'm okay with letting it get struck. Um, okay. Really genuinely think about what would happen if you were caught in like a Groundhog Day scenario, right? Uh, you, if, you've, if you've ever seen movies like, uh, what was it, Day After Tomorrow, the Tom Cruise one, right? Where he basically min-maxes his day to get the outcome that he's looking for so that he can you know, stop reliving the same day, right? Um, ultimately to avert a war, obviously, much much more grander scale. But still, think about genuinely what would happen if you were caught in a time loop. You would, by virtue of trying to find a way to break the loop, eventually uh, min-max how that day goes, right? You would eventually figure out exactly what time your toast pops up out of the toaster, that sort of thing. The game effectively uses this against you because you ultimately are going through the exact same day, hitting the fast forward button, going through, you know, your uh, social links with your uh, it's not a social link, but that's effectively what it what I'm calling it uh, social links with your friends to unlock their best ability and doing it repeatedly because, you know, you need that best ability to beat the king and in order to progress to the final area. And 
it ultimately culminates in you speeding through everything. And as you do this for, you know, 40 loops, 60 loops, however many loops it takes you, your character, Sifrin, starts feeling the exact same way that you do as the player. Okay. He no longer cares about the sob story of discovering that one of the characters is, uh, is asexual, right? But is forced into an, uh, into a compromising position where she feels like she must become romantically involved with somebody because, um, everybody else is doing it. And, you know, that's part of being, you know, uh, uh, that's part of her religion, the house maiden of change. Um, you speed through Odile's, uh, seeking information about her homeland and about her, her family, because she never really was exposed to it. And all the information that she could find has just been locked away due to, um, how family history is recorded in this, in this storyline, right? Uh, you speed past the, um, background of Isabeau and how they, how, uh, he continually tries to confess his feelings to Sifrin and fails at each and every single time because of, you know, specific, uh, you know, f- random events that prevent the full confession, right? You, you eventually start speeding past it because you've seen it all before. And the main character starts to feel the same way. He starts going, yeah, hurry it up, right? And it breaks the person that you're, you're talking to, right? Eventually when you go through the, the, uh, the asexual storyline, you just try to speed it up, right? Your character's like, yeah, yeah, I've seen this all before. Hurry up, pick your guy, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. You don't, cause you, you can just be yourself. And when you, when Sifrin tries to speed it up, it breaks that character's heart. She's like, what are you doing? How can you possibly know this about me? Right. What, like what took hours to get to, your character is trying to speed run and it, it turns that character against Sifrin. She ultimately tells him, don't, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Don't come near me. And Sifrin's like, Oh, okay. Well, that didn't work out, but that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't need her ability. I can go get somebody else's ability. And you can always redo it again anyway. And you can always right? redo it again anyways. That's correct. But eventually you start breaking these relationships with all of your friends. And the main character's like, you know what? I'm just going to die and relive my day over anyways. I don't need them and goes to the castle by himself and starts losing because he has nobody to back him up. The entire reason he was able to beat the King in the first place and see the end of the time loop before it looped over again, of course, was that he had his friend's support. And without that support, he really doesn't have nothing yeah, you go on a murder spree, you can clear through the, the game because how the time loop works is even though you're resetting the day, you still keep your levels and your gear. So by this point, you're like level 75 or something while everybody else is level 40. So you're clearing through the castle by yourself, no problem. But you can't beat the king. You can't beat the king. You can't beat the final boss. And it it's paralyzing. It's torturous. And so... Your friends do come because they do care about you and they've in their eyes, you know, you're having a really weird day. Um, but they don't know about the time loop stuff until they come 
to support you. So at the end of this 12 hour journey that you've been going through, living through all of these time loops, the family and the relationships that you built, you start to abuse them and break them. And then it comes full circle to where your friends come back. The truth is revealed and you break the loop for good. That kind of found family storytelling is unlike really anything I've heard of or seen in a story. I don't doubt that Baudrillard's Gate 3 writing and character uh, connections are good. I think they're amazing. I haven't played it yet. I'm like the only person here who hasn't. Um, and I don't doubt that Octopath Traveler 2 and Labyrinth of Galleria uh, have amazing story beats as well. I really want to play all of these games that are in the short list. But when I say that in stars and time made me feel and think about things that I haven't felt or thought about for years, I'm, I'm being deadly serious. I think that the way the writing captivates you and drags you in is unlike anything I've ever played in recent history. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, page go. I was gonna before that. I was gonna say I'd be like okay with like kicking it if we move it to like the immersive category because the story wise, that's how I feel. But yeah, I do. Um, they're talking about like, sort of the end game there, and I do um, really like that the success like I'll be able to just spoil the whole thing already. But yeah, the um, successful loop is the one where you piss your friends off the most. <laughs> like you absolutely so mad, and I'm like, oh, of course that's it. I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, the only thing that it really hinges on is the fact that Sifrin doesn't tell their friends on any loop, like doesn't even try to get the result because I guess they feel like they have to take the burden because they're worried about them going crazy. And I can't really relate to doing that. I would have just at least tried it because you can always slip on a banana peel if it doesn't work. <laughs> that, that is true. Yeah, that is oh. that is the one thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think this is like I, where, where you, you divide yeah. writing story to an immersion. I think, I think based on how you describe it, I think this really is like a worthy. Um, it, it does earn its slot here, like a uh, study among them in its writing story for storytelling versus immersion, uh, because because that 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 factors into like gameplay elements that you can manipulate uh, into that. Um, it's a, that your your speech on it and the defense on it with Paige, like I will phenomenal. say, yeah, like, I. Yeah, I'll say that, again, the last thing I'll say about Galeria is I feel like it really says it all that, like, basically three years after I finished it, I still feel as strongly as I do about the story. But I, I again, it's like, it, it's the nature of the game. Like, n- not everyone's going to play everything, and especially for a game as long as Galeria, if, if it doesn't resonate with you, there's not much to say about it. Uh, I I do want to play in Stars in Time, and you sold me on it. I, I was like interested in picking it up later, but like probably next Steam sale, I'll just like grab it because, yeah, it sounds great. Oh, you have my vote. Yeah, yeah I, I think I those defenses of Baldur's Gate three and in Stars in Time were both really good. Uh, Labyrinth of Galleria was kind of set behind the eight ball a bit because it only had two people that have really played it, and one of which was a little bit more. Uh, I won't say lukewarm, but less hot than the other. So, first of all, before we cut anything, very hard cut at this point. Best writing, Baldur's Gate 3, In Stars and Time, Labyrinth of Galleria, The Moon Society, and Octopath Traveler 2. It sounds like Labyrinth of Galleria is uh, going to be like one of the last to fall here. And now we've got these last three to pick a winner and a runner-up, and then a 
a runner-up. Uh, well, I'm a little bit biased here because because uh, Junior and Page's defense of it reminded me of like how I defended Nozia, and that like Nozia hits like very similar narrative beats of like the weariness of time traveling and and like how gameplay systems like enhance that feeling of like isolation and loneliness as a time traveler and like things that should be more impactful don't feel as impactful anymore because you've heard it again and again and again. It, and, it's fun. It's it's funny because there is actually a little bit in Galeria that does a similar thing with uh, Nach- Nachiru because, like, um, like we said, there's like multiple versions of the same world. One's a uh, one's like more of a like a, a fabricated one, and one's the real deal. But it was still a similar thing where it's like, oh, it, it, it's just it's just interesting how some games can have like similar sto- uh, sort of uh, story beats. With regards to that. All right. So we've th- already, for the last three, I, I'm thinking maybe you're going the same place, Josh. Mm-hmm. We've had a few people already say that Octet Traveler 2 is good, an improvement on the first game, but still, like Alex mentioned, worded it, it's not what he goes to first. Um, I don't think it stands up to Baldur's Gate 3, and I can't mount as good a defense for Octopath Traveler 2 as Junior and Page did for In Stars and Time. So I'm okay if Octopath Traveler 2 becomes our. Our last, our last man out. I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. It depends on what other people think. Like, I, I think, you know, it, it does individual stories very well, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, it, it, you, you don't, you don't have, you don't feel as much as, like, as, you know, as it seems like how Junior and Page did for In Stars and Time, the way they described that sort of uh, storytelling it feels very deeply emotional, and, and you, you interface with that because of this. Unlike Octopath Traveler 2, you share this one perspective on like this this time looper. So yeah. unless yeah. anyone feels super strongly on that, like I don't I don't wanna just because I strike through it doesn't mean that's the final decision. But this is our I'm, last cut that we have to make here. I'm surprised at myself almost for saying this because I I went into this category thinking, you know, in my heart of hearts, oh well I'm definitely gonna going to fight for Octopath Travel or Tubi to at least get runner-up here, you know. But after hearing what I heard about in Stars of Time and, and just sort of on a personal level, how much that just resonated with me for, for things that I haven't thought about in years, just hearing that blurb, basically, from from these two people. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with the cut on that, though. What wins it, though? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Putting my vote on in in stars and time. Sorry, guys, it's not Baldur Gate's pretty sweet. Chow decided we're good. I like how Chow was like immediately apologized. Sorry, guys. Has Chow played either of these? Uh, I watch people play Baldur's Gate. That's about it. Okay, well, is is stars and time winning it or based on vibes? According to like, I'll I'll be completely honest. I know this is kind of like gamifying it a little bit, but. Uh, I, I feel like Baldur's Gate 3 is, is obviously we haven't gotten there yet, but I feel like it's going to be at least top three in terms of like just game of the year in general, right? Because uh, mm. if, if we were to judge in stars and time purely on gameplay instead yeah. of writing, it would not hold, it would not pass muster because the, the gameplay is very, very basic. Um, you know, or sound design. The sound design is good, but it's not, you know, swelling orchestra good, right? Because budget limitations obviously it's an rpg maker game um i i i 
me personally, I'm going to go with In Stars and Time over something that's going to win like two or three other categories. You know what I mean? Okay. I mean, that was actually pretty much what Chow just said too. He's like, I don't want Baldur's Gate 3 to sweep it. So give it to In Stars and Time. I'm sort of joking that Chow just said it plainly where Junior said it more eloquently in a way. Um, well, Baldur's Gate 3 and, is one of my favorite games of the year, and I do think it has really, like, oh, I'm not going to repeat, we have, we, have, we have to move on at some point, but it basically, it does so many things well on a gameplay perspective as, of like, a whole package where the writing is just a really good part of a really good package, where in Stars in Time, it seems like this is its claim right here. So I'm good with that, actually. I think the defense was strong enough to, to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think like I'm I'm kind of a sucker for like really well told time loop stories. So, it starts in time has my vote because you also make a good point that like if this is gonna be if there's one category in the spirit of this category, and it does this extremely well. I would yeah yeah for sure it starts in time. All the way. I'm just gonna ask you a question. Did you running? I favor a RPG maker game winning. <laughs> there you go. It starts yeah. in time. Yeah, I was gonna ask you a question. Did uh, Nozia made it to the top five? When, Wait, when did, I, I think I, I think I was able to get 10? it to the top five, top ten or top five. I forgot. It was in the top ten at least. I I, th- I think I, I got it to win immersion. I believe. Oh, We're very close. So. Yeah, which I I still defend to this day. <laughs> but yeah, if, if if you enjoyed In Stars and Time, I highly recommend checking out Nozia as well. It's G N O S I A. Oh, yeah, that's one of those games that I always meant to play when I was watching trailers and stuff for it during the marketing phase, and then it just escapes me. I'll definitely play it soon. Yeah. It, okay. it won Best Design and Immersion and was in the top 10 in 2021. Yeah. All right, really, so... Really, that was really a, good, really good. <laughs> so that was a long section. That is historically our longest section, and it does the most to pay forward for dis- when discussing these games later. Uh, so writing and storytelling, we made it to the end of this part, um, had a lot of games to go through, but our winner of RPG site 2023, best writing or storytelling in stars and time, runner up Baldur's Gate 3 with some very near misses for games like Octopath Traveler 2, Lavender Galleria, Fate Samurai Remnant, and Cyberpunk Phantom Liberty. All right. How are we feeling, guys? We're going to move on to a much more straightforward category. And that is, well, at least purportedly straightforward. We'll see once we get into the discussion. We'll go into our third category here, and that is the category for best art in an RPG for 2023. So a little bit more, hopefully, of a straightforward category compared to the endeavor that always is determining the best writing or storytelling. So we have a similarly large number of nominations here for best art. Let me just go ahead and list through them, and then we'll start discussing. For best art, the nominations are Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Sea of Stars, Lords of the Fallen, Fate Samurai Remnant, Baldur's Gate 3, Honkai Star Rail, World of Horror, Octopath Traveler 2, Wandering Sword, Small Saga, and Fire Emblem Engage. So about 40% of those we've discussed pre- uh, previously, uh, a little bit, half or a little bit more are new, uh, new entries on the list for games we haven't talked about yet. So let's go ahead and start with one of those. Let's talk about uh let's talk about Wandering Sword. And I know that Chow, Josh, and Adam have uh 
just one and Adam have either played or watched someone play this game. Tee us up what Wandering Sword is, and it's got a very clear and obvious comparison point that's also going to be brought up. I'll start with Adam. Okay, so Wandering Sword, if you had not heard of it, it is a Chinese RPG that looks a lot like Octopath Traveler. And I think it's very easy to look at this game and just say, oh, it's a Chinese knockoff or what have you. Uh, I've actually been playing through this game recently, and its structure is very different than an Octopath game, uh, and actually different than a lot of games, to be honest. It's more like a Romancing Saga <laughs> 3 than anything else, but it is a pixel art game. It's got that sort of HD2D look, although it's not specifically that, coming from a different developer. Um, but uh, it's maybe not as like high fidelity as Octopath Traveler 2 in terms of like effects and camera angles and things like that. Um, but it's got a really pleasant art style with a, with the pixel art graphics and a lot of nice use of colors. It's a Chinese game. It's set in, uh, China and has a lot of, you know, that sort of architecture and aesthetic to it. And if you like how Octopath looks and you like that style of retro game, this game fits there very nicely. Now, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't see how this could like win over Octopath. I feel like Octopath is just the same, but better in a way um slightly different style maybe but in terms of like production values but it's similar to that basically uh let's see let's talk to who else has played wandering sword i did um how do you think about it yeah for art like it's it's gonna be tough especially because of octopath traveler 2 this year it like octopath traveler 2 is kind of the next like very very big step in that hd 2d Look, and we'll, we'll talk about it more a little bit more later. What it does, but I, I just appear on the competition. Like, hey, it's really cool that um, more independent developers have like looked to like the first Octopath Traveler, just HD two D style, and like have be- made their own spin on it. Like, it's, it was nice seeing the HD two D like uh, aesthetic represented in like a, in a more uh, in a Chinese setting. Like, you get to see like. Uh, very distinct, like Chinese architecture, like the, the lanterns during like certain festivals, and how it's how, how it blends together in a very vibrant, um, sort of a, a very energetic feel that like uh that is di- different from Octopath because of the way that how locales are represented in Octopath, especially in Octopath Two. But for me, it's just more of an appreciation to see like more of these independent in- initiatives of uh, employing this HD2D style in a way that's unique to, to certain titles. It's not merely mimicking what Octopath has done. It's taking that core concept and uh, artistic vision and adapting it into their own uh, style and atmosphere that's very distinct and different from Octopath. And I just wanted to call attention, like, how very impressive that was. It does also have some pretty nice pixel animation in that, like, like for example, there's this one, like, side quest where your one of your companions, Hong, is like a swordswoman. And, like, she's learning, like, a new sword style. And, like, it could have easily have just done, like, some canned animations in the pixel art for, like, her trying out new sword moves. But, like, there's actually a section there where she's learning, like, these sword moves. And this is pixel art. But there's yeah, doing, like, sword dancing. Yeah. yeah, like, sword dancing. Um, and it has it had some, like, unique kind of animations for the pixels in the, in the, in the pixel animations and the sword twirling and movement and all that. And it was pretty neat. And yeah, you see that like in, in like several martial artists like animations the, themselves too, like for other characters and they're uh, like learning a new style. Like they don't use the same canned animation. It's all very distinct, unique, unique and different to highlight different, like how you how mastering different uh, martial art styles essentially in the game, um, which I found a very nice touch 
uh, on it. So I, I just love that it's like it's very lovingly crafted and forges its own identity. Like you said, it doesn't mimic like Octopath structure or leveling system or anything like that. And and, and the way you progress through it, it we'll get more to design and immersion uh, for this for this game. But it's it, I like that it's just it's it does its it, it's very confident in doing its own thing, I guess is the best way to summarize it, and I love it for that. So we'll go ahead and uh, Octopath Traveler 2 and Wandering Sword are both on the list. We'll keep them on for now. Uh, I will say before we move on that I'm just I'm looking at these two, and I do think that that style of game is really nice, but it has lost a little bit of something now that we've seen a lot more games use a similar style. It's not as novel as it mm-hmm. once was. I think we had a very similar discussion last year talking about Live Alive. Uh, still very good. I'm not saying, oh, no, I hate the art style. It's just not, it doesn't have that same impact of being like, wow, this is what retro style the games made in the 2020s can look like. Let's see, looking say, at other... Uh, more to the Fallen made it, but not Lies of P, or we just forgot Lies of P. I'm I'm curious about who uh who nominated Lords of the Fall, and it's not one that I can speak to. Like I don't really know what it looks like. I wrote the review for Lords of the Fallen, and I sure. think that it's kind of bland. Like I I didn't nominate it. I don't know. I would not yeah. nominate it for art. Yeah, I don't know who who wrote it. In. It's how it's it has... I I know I know James has spoken about like the graphical fidelity of the game being very very yeah yeah. Very the... well. The graphical fidelity and how the environments are structured are very interesting and very good, well done. Uh, I but feel like from an art direction, I don't think so. I was going to say that I actually think that the art direction is uneven in spots, but there are definitely some areas I think are really good, like the kind of like monastery temple area with like the very like uh, reddish, uh, almost like pinkish uh, leaves in the trees. That's very striking. Uh, any of the area, like the swamp, it's, I hate that swamp, but visually it's really good. It's like, I, I, I don't know if I was the one to put it on the list or if it was someone else, but I do agree that it was at least worth talking about because it's like, it's, it, it's probably the only Unreal Engine 5 game I've played that actually feels like it makes full use of the engine. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that sentiment. I just think from an art direction standpoint it's very outside of a few areas like you mentioned the monastery was really cool um the tower was really cool it it was the tower was cool but like the poison swamp was not like i i know poison swamp is kind of a meme in souls games now but even comparing it to the original poison swamp of blight town i I the original poison swamp (laughs) i feel i feel that blight town uh was more visually interesting than Mm. than the direction that they went for Lords of the Fallen, you know. Um I, I, I think I think it's uh yeah. I think there's a safe strike through for Lords of the Fallen. Uh, yeah, that that seems right. It, it was worth talking about for a second, yeah. but yeah. But it sounds like one of those games that got on based on like technical impression rather than maybe art direction. And I know you can't completely decouple those things all the time, but it leans more in the one direction than the other. There's a few games about- on here that I feel like they don't have as much of a leg to stand on for like being in the art category. Ooh, really, who, who are you gonna pick on, Paige? Like, yeah. Um, I was like, I just comparative-wise, I don't think you know. Like, I like how the Tears of Kingdom looks, but I just don't think it's you know that shining. Aside from one of the points that I wanted to say, like that another game had, which is like you know some of the fashion's pretty good, but then Baldur's Gate Three has some better outfits. So, <laughs> mm, okay, well, um, I'm kind of with you on Tears of the Kingdom. Uh. It, I, it's a good art style. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's yeah. it's the Breath of the Wild art style. Mm. It, 
It's one. It's a difficult thing. I'm not saying it's not worth talking just because it's not different, but it's it doesn't have that same punch. Like it it doesn't do something where it's. The, I guess when you talk about Breath of the Wild, sorry, Tears of the Kingdom, comparing it and how you separate it, in, not in both an art and a general sense from Breath of the Wild, it's the depths, and the depths is kind of like inherently like dark, dreary, and not that interesting yeah. to look at because it is a giant cave. Uh, so I'm kind of with you that Tears oh, of the no. Kingdom. Is boring, and it, that's sort of by design to some extent. But I do think what where I do think it's a fantastic looking game, and I love the Breath of the Wild art style still. But like you said, it's the Breath of the Wild art style. But where they do have an opportunity to do some different things with a different setting, they don't actually do much exciting. You know, right. when you think about the Zone Eye and stuff, the Zone Eye tech and stuff like that, quite bland. They could have hmm. done something really quite exciting with that stuff, and they don't. And for me, that's why it doesn't sit here. You know what is a cool art thing about it? People making custom mechs in it. With the, there you go. <laughs> hell yeah. Now that is an artistic masterpiece. People shared that on social media. But I... I, I, I go for it. I was just going to say, I, I I really like the way the game looks. And I, I you know, the, the Breath of the Wild art style stick, still sticks with me quite nicely but again there it didn't do like the depths are very <clears throat> monotonous from an art style perspective there's you know there's some deviation but i think the general takeaway that i've seen when people finish the game is ah they could have done so much more with the depth you know and then, I mean, it's, it's also like it's inherently going to be tough because it is a direct sequel to breath of the wild and breath of the wild you know already did this and they, they kind of sort of expand on it in some ways here but not so much that it revolutionizes you know its yeah. visual identity yeah i, mean, I would have liked a little the, more with this guy too go ahead Paige. yeah with like the the chica stuff it was like the Jomon or whatever um inspiration so, so stuff we don't really see a lot you know, like Western things, because it's like ancient um, Japanese stuff, but then with the Zonai, they went more sort of as techie Mayans, so it was all pretty standard, blocky um, kind of style we've seen before more often. It sounds like we're kind of on a consensus, like Tears of the Kingdom, good art style, even a great art style, just not best of 2023 category. Mm. I want to get rid of Fire Emblem Engage, can I? Because yeah. I think this is the worst looking Fire Emblem in my uh, opinion. Art style, maybe, but like actual like fidelity and presentation, yeah. it's the best looking Fire Emblem. I yeah, mean, it's better than, it looks uh, better than Three Houses, in my opinion. No way. As far as 3D Fire Emblems go, like I'm not yeah. going to say anything about the pixel art, but like it, again, art style and like Fidelity are like two different two different sides here. Better uh, okay. fidelity. I feel like the character designs are are okay, but the thing is that they don't transition to 3D too well. I feel like this is one of the worst like character designs like when I see in 3D. I can't believe you want to look at toothbrush hair. Uh, that's fucked up. I am not defending toothbrush. Okay, you know what? I, I like the toothbrush hair. I'm gonna be the sole defender of the toothbrush hair. There we go. Now it's passing that, that, that doesn't mean it shares good. Yeah, it, it doesn't oh. mean it stays on the list, but I like it. <laughs> it. It loses its points for fashion because you can't wear any of the cool outfits on the actual battles. It's only for the camp area. And so. also the camp yeah. area is just a badly implemented part of the game to begin with. We're talking about More art. Later. Talking about art. <laughs> <laughs> it's very colorful, no, though. And it definitely it's looks colorful and the and last Fire Emblem yeah. game. And it runs well on Switch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I still it do. That's for something, like I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all. Switch. 
that, I mean, I'm, that, that running low on switch feels like the exception rather than the rule these days. Exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. Um, okay. I feel like we should cut Fate Samurai Remnant. Uh, it's an anime style game. It's got like yeah. cell shaded ish art. It's, you know, of its own little style. It's very Japanese in its aesthetic. Um, kind of classic Edo period Japan type of aesthetic. Um, it kind of falls into that pitfall that some games of this nature fall into and in that like the character designs are all extravagant and great and memorable. But then like some of like the location designs, like environments and things like that are kind of dull. I mean, that's not really what you're looking for at, or looking at in these games really necessarily, but like mountain sides, cliff sides, grass, those sort of things. Don't. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it uh, stays on. It's like it's a, it's a nice looking game, and definitely it has a really great like character animation, especially like with some of the, like, the spells, and, like the dual attacks the you learn. Noble phantasms. Yeah, it's noble phantasms as well. But yeah, I think uh, overall it's it's, a, it's very uneven in this. So I was playing this game, and Brian was watching me, and whenever I did uh, sabers, eight headed serpent sword, mm-hmm. whatever, uh-huh. he was just like anime. I'm like okay. This is a Kusoge, or, or not Kusoge, but it's a <laughs> <laughs> the other one. Dang. Okay. Sakuga, that's it. Yeah, Sakuga. Kusoge <laughs> and Sakuga are two different things. <laughs> yeah, very different. Yeah. This is why I stay out of these conversations. All right, so Vapor Samurai Remnant. I'm going for a very particular style, but it doesn't quite stack up against some of the more uh, extravagant ones here on the list. Uh, sea of Stars. Um, sea of Stars kind of is in this weird place. Well, not weird. I don't want to say that. In this place where it's like an HD 2D, but not pushed quite as far. It's clearly it's not going really for HD that. HD 2D. It's it's it's, no. it's more of your. It's it's, it's definitely your like I, I, not tilt shifted. Isom like not isometric, but it's like your typical pixel sprite um, RPG. Uh, that's the the visuals are very very like. It's it. In that's, my that's opinion, why it's the strongest it caught eyes to begin with. Was people yeah. saw it and were like, "Whoa, what is that?" Yeah. So. Um, I, it's it's pretty good. Like the the animations, like there's a lot of detail to its animations and like small touches. Uh, it it does kind of obscure itself at some points, but it's like in spite of itself. Like for example, like there's this uh assassin character that uh makes interdimensional holes, and one of her skills is like in order to keep this going, uh, uh press A uh to keep or whatever, press the circle button or whatever to keep it going. Um, as as the as the knife when the knife is thrown, but sometimes like on the like the the perspective of the battle, like that character model will go off screen. It's like, okay, do I press it here because I can't see when when this character is actually throwing the knife. So, and sometimes the art design is kind of like gets in the, in the way of itself. For example, like perspective in this game is weird when you're platforming around. So like. There'll be like a rope that's like in the field view that's like closer to you, depending on like the the perspective, and you're not sure how to get to it because like sometimes the environments kind of blend together, so it's not immediately obvious that like you can platform on certain things. I don't think I ever the, had that issue, to be honest. I don't think I was to, ever to confused me, by environmental noise. To me, I I kind of got it confused by environmental noise in that game because it's not immediately apparent that like you can platform on certain aspects in the environment. But it's a, it's a, like, it, like I said, like, it's, it's, it's strongest suit. Sometimes it gets in the way itself, but you know, it's okay. I, I, I generally like the look of Sea of Stars, but I, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's, it stays on. Yeah. It's quite pretty, but it's, I have like other things I favor better than that for art style. 
Um, Baldur's Gate 3. I think the I main like- thing that Baldur's Gate 3 does, uh, and then I'll hand it off to Paige, is it's the, it's the kind of the classic CRPG for most of its playtime in terms of being like that isometric overhead perspective. And a lot of games, even like the Divinity Original Sin games, there isn't enough. This was another one of those things where it's more fidelity than style, even though you can't always decouple those, is that it has just the totally third person dialogue and cutscenes where some more like even five, six, seven years ago, games like Divinity Original Sin and Pillars of Eternity and um, those types of games would never couldn't do that because the just like the, the fidelity wasn't there to pull the camera in that close where this game kind of has like, yeah, this is, this is the gameplay perspective. And then this is our cutscene perspective. And we've got unique animations for all the dialogue scenes. Uh, so this one's kind of a hard argument. I think it's, it's technically impressive, even though if it's not immediately obvious when you're looking at screenshots or gameplay. Yeah. I don't my thing else. is just that we need to take into account is like, I guess the, um, the way the motion and stuff works for the performances, like when you're really talking to the characters and they have some like really silly reactions and stuff, it's really good. Um, yeah, but otherwise, really... yeah, it's, yeah, um, style wise, it is mostly being like semi realistic, so it's not going to get like sort of, sort of points in that way, but that is one of the highlights. Yeah, Modern Skate 3 is, is a tough one because it's like it's definitely, there's so much in it, right? Like, you're talking, we're talking about like designs, like there's all, all sorts of like, Unique designs of that game for every NPC, every enemy uh, type that you encounter in it. Uh, distinct enemy boss designs, like it all works well together. But it's like it's nothing extravagant, I would say. But it's also tough to judge on that basis as well. I have a slight just anecdote here. I remember I was going to the uh, I went like five years ago, however long, however long ago it was, and they did the uh, first debut like event for this for press. And it was just kind of interesting at the time to be like, they're going to be showing off Baldur's Gate 3. We saw, like, the teaser trailer at that point, but we had no idea what the game looked like. And, yeah. like, it was just interesting to see what they did, what they landed on compared to, like, the older Baldur's Gate games. So I wasn't really going anywhere with this, but it was just sort of interesting at that time. Like, we knew Baldur's Gate 3 existed, but trying to imagine what it looked like before we really saw it. So... I, I think I think it's yeah. safe to keep Baldur's for now. I think there are other ones you can cut before Baldur's in this category. Yeah, Baldur's Gate Three is one of the ones that it's just it's hard to defend just because it doesn't. It's not as apparent. You kind of have to put ten, twenty, thirty hours into it to see the variety and the animations that don't immediately come. Like here's a screenshot of Baldur's Gate Three. Look how good it looks. You know, it's not as not as obvious. But we'll keep it on for now. Um, here's one that. Also might be hard to defend, but I haven't spent 10, 20 hours with it, and that's Honkai Star Rail. So uh, I think Josh and Chow, and potentially Josh too, have played Honkai Star Rail. I've I've played through the I I haven't caught up with it, but I've played through the end of the first uh, like world. So a decent chunk, and I think enough to say that it's like. I guess if you look at all the other games on this list, they're either very explicitly going for like a stylization, like the the HD two D style games. I see Small Saga there, um, Sea of Stars. I think like Honkai Star Rail is uh, notable for the fact that it looks as good as it does, and it's a mobile game primarily first. So it's like I don't know. I don't know if that would be enough for me to say that it should win this, but I mean like. It has a great art style. It looks really good, but I don't know. I don't know. 
Same could be said for like Genshin. Also, that's the thing, right? They, 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 it's impressive that it looks as good as it does. Kind of like, uh, be also being run on mobile devices as well. And that's an open world game. On top of that, too, where it has to render vast landscapes on mobile devices. So for for me, um, when I played Genshin, I haven't played Genshin in a while. I think the last time I played it was the Inazuma expansion. I guess you could call it whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first played Genshin and I was going through Leeway and I was just absolutely astounded at how beautiful the vistas looked, right? Yeah. How, how gorgeous the canyons in Leeway looked and it, it just, it literally made me stop and just appreciate how beautiful it was. With Honkai Star Rail, uh, and I have done all of the areas up until whatever the most recent thing is, I didn't, really feel that more of the things I was impressed with, with the art design in, in Star Rail was how like techno futuristic everything was and how they were adapting these different cultures for those different areas. Um, but nothing really grabbed me, I guess. So like it has a great art design, but I don't think it can contend with like some of the other names on this list. Yeah, it's difficult for a startup when you compare to Genshin because Genshin, you have a very unique relationship with the environment because of the way you traverse through the environment and explore right. that environment. Well, also, in, in Star Rail, it's, it, it's, it's kind of very linear in the way that you engage in there, right? You don't really explore the environment. It's kind of there as almost as window dressing to get from point A to point B. It's like a, it's, and I mean this not disparagingly. I mean this kind of like lovingly. It feels like a sixth or seventh gen JRPG in its scope. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. If anything, like I think the, where the art shines in um, Honkai Star Rail is like more of a refinement on um, the character uh, models and character animations that Mihoyo has been done. Like you can tell, like like there's a lot more motion in the way that like characters animate in Honkai Star Rail versus like early Genshin models and the way that like they pull off skills the, the way their idle stances are the way they kind of transition in between like their idle stance into like preparation stance for a skill in that game they're they're all very infused with personality compared to like how genshin genshin's approach is um when i think about that game but i don't know if it like overall like the overall environment in in honkai doesn't really inspire much for me it seems like we're kind of in a pretty common consensus on Hot Star Rail <laughs> and that it does things pretty well, but doesn't quite elevate to the level beyond some of the other entries on this list, especially when you compare to things like Genshin that might have done a slightly better job or a little bit more in tune with how you interact with those games based on their gameplay style. Uh, we did, James mentioned in passing, it's on later on the list, uh, Small Saga. This is uh, a game that Paige actually reviewed for us uh, just just like a month or so back, right? It just came out late in the year. Yeah, it came out um like mid November. So yeah, this game is pixel art style. Um a lot of the like wandering around part is like isometric and then in battles you're sort of you've got us yeah, the enemies are sort of in the background, you know, characters standing in the foreground but maybe to the side a bit so you can get the full view. Golden sun, golden sun view. There you go. <laughs> um and it's just really, really beautiful. The like the pixel art is all really well done and then it's also, you know, like added on to with the whole being um, these tiny creatures using human stuff. So like there's an entire city where all the houses are made out of like basically Lego pieces. Yeah. And, oh, I love that town, the toy town. And you know, you're, yeah. you're a mouse holding a switchblade. And then one of your things that you fight is like a, um, 
2000s era um, toy robot dog, and it's like they're <laughs> this military speed weapon. Yeah. The, the... It's just really pretty, and some of the animations are pretty fun too. Um, Siobhan falls on her face a lot, and it's accompanied with a squeaky toy noise, and it's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it all, it, it's all, it's very expressive. Like when you talk about like, the switchblade, like weapon being like a buster sword, the way it unfolds, uh, before combat starts, uh, Shoban, uh, being like your, uh, mage of the party. They're, they're a fire wizard because they have a lighter as their weapon. Um, and, and uh, Gwen having the scalpel as their, as their weapon. The way that like, uh, opposition in this game is like immaculate. Um, but I think about like one of like like impressive art uh, art pieces of this game. Like this game oozes it. Uh, do you remember that sequence uh, when you're uh, retrieving um, Vern uh, in that gladiator arena, and then like you have to go uh, do like that duel with that uh, boss on top of, like toy cars yeah. um, page? Like like the background is constantly moving in that fight, and so you see the crowd like you know always in view as you're like speeding through. So it has a real like good mastery of perspective in that fight as you're doing this duel while still emulating like that sort of like you're in motion on top of the speeding on these speeding vehicles so that, that is a like... few animated segments too that looked really cool like when you hop on the owls and you're flying towards the um the tower yeah the owl yeah the like, fortress oh, that yeah, like yeah that looks really good uh, and uh, one of my favorite favorite like uh disjointed like art um um like sequences in this game is like whenever you go up against a quote-unquote god in this game like yes. which is basically human so like for example like when you're doing uh gwen's like uh, final optional thing to get the, their final move uh the the final like boss in that chain is like against like uh, a human in that game and it's very very it's framed very very dreadfully so like when you transition at that screen like the lighting in the background before their boss shows up is like is like kind of that horror trope of like a, a blinking lights. So ever like it's like you're staring into darkness, and a, after every blinking light, you see a human silhouette getting further, I mean, not closer and closer to your party, and then all of a sudden, like almost in like a almost like a pixel, borderline rotoscoped away, uh, with a little bit of uh, film grain uh, of layer to it, their hands appear on the screen, and like as the music is swelling. Uh, during that boss fight. So you just see, like, these hands, like, idle animation, like, creepily moving against your party, and, like, that's your boss, is, like, these pair of hands. And it's it, it, it's framed very dreadfully, because they're kind of, like, in a grayscale and uh, 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 up against, like, this totally pitch-black background. You don't even see the human. Yeah, exactly. The, um, in our staff chat, uh, you see a little bit of that. Uh, obviously, we're serving... Uh, uh, an audio podcast only, but for people participants in here, you do. We are provided screenshots. It's, 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 it's unnerving. It's pretty good. Yeah, that I, image I, has sold me on it. I think I'll pick it up. Yeah, <laughs> this is the, like this game has amazing, an amazing art style, an amazing art palette. Well, definitely, Small Saga staying on the list. Uh, and I don't know if this is something I can say with any like technical background, but I look at this and it's like this isn't Super Nintendo inspired. It's Sega Genesis inspired or Master System or whatever it's called. Uh, in terms of like what it's what era it's evoking, just very clean and really cool idle animations well, and fluid animations. I think what I said in the review was like it's it's using pixel style not to emulate like a particular art style necessarily. Like maybe yeah. the, mm. the combat screen is, but like you know, it, it's just using it because that's the way they can make this world and um, 
like with spreadsheet. It's not. It's not. Cha- well. It's not chasing necessarily chasing after like to emu- like one to one emulate a game. It's like it's using it as its visual identity and goes yeah. off and like mm-hmm. the, it forges its own path with it. That's not necessarily trying to ape other RPGs of the past with it. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. No, definitely on contention here. Definitely going to be on the list. The uh, the last game that we've got to talk about in the art uh, section is World of Horror. So this is a game that Josh has played, and I just was able to dip my toes into this uh, a little bit last night. Uh, came out on Steam after being in an, in early access for an extended period of time. Uh, definitely can see why it's on the list, but I'll let Josh speak to it. Yeah, World of Horror um, is... It's been in development for quite a while. The been in the early access for quite some time. It was made by a single, mainly a single developer, uh, Pavel Kuzminski. And uh, the the look of this game is very striking. It's meant to um, evoke that era of like early Macintosh games with that one bit uh, sort of grayscale look to them. But it, but it's it's presented in such a very detailed, loving manner uh, that's uh, handcrafted. You know, all through MS Paint, like all the um, art in this game is done through MS Paint. Um, so, and, and it, it's based on like a very Junji Ito inspired horror uh, as well. So you see a lot of very um, a, a lot a lot of like flesh horror uh, presented in this one bit style, where it's like uh, you see a lot of like ripping and tearing and melting off like flesh. Um, uh, on human beings, and then there's also uh, reflective of its like uh, backgrounds as well. Uh, everything in this game is like it comes together to make a very, very compelling, like eerie RPG, uh, like imagery that like hasn't really been done by like anything at all. Like I, I struggle to think of like a few games that have tried this art style and uh, was as successful as it was in this game. Um, you you can you can speak uh, uh like you just played it like barely last night um yeah i was trying uh, to just like get my yeah. get my feet wet just so that it wasn't completely like new and novel cuz this one's one where there's certain horror games that are meant to really scare you and that i don't like those games but that's not really what this one is this one's more like a feeling of dread or unease and the art yes. style really plays into that that's where it lines in and it is body horror, things that just seem out of place. It's, uh, I don't know how many total colors there are, but it can't be more than like four. There's like black, white, and then two shades of gray. It's yeah, very and, limited. And you can randomize this too. Like there's different, all, all sorts of different color palettes as well. So you don't have to stick with this art style or, or color palette rather. You, you can uh, switch like other colors and like it can, it can evoke different. Um, oh, so is it like, uh, um, Oberden then with the different filters? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you can. That's uh, cool. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of different color filters, so you don't have to just do the the black and white or grayscale uh, style. So, um, but I actually really I, like the default black, white, grayscale. I think yeah. it really works. Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. So I think this is a, like a strong contention for best art because of the way it it is. It's such a distinct look compared to like any other game on our, on this list, uh, and it does it. It pulls it off super super well. I love it. So. Uh, I have not played World of Horror personally. I'm going to. I'm actually adding it to my Steam cart right now um, <laughs> because I was watching the trailer while you all were talking about it. And one thing that I am very familiar with is um, Onryo and uh, Yokai, like these Japanese 
uh, myth- mm-hmm. mythological horror stories, essentially. Yeah. And in the trailer, there was a, uh, a, a version of the, uh, Kuchisake Ona, which is a, uh, translates to slit faced woman. It's a woman who basically has like a mouth, like a horse, almost like it stretches all the way to her ears and she cuts people up with scissors. There has been countless interpretations of this character. You can see like a version of it in Ghostwire Tokyo. I think the like two second clip I saw of it in the world of horror trailer is probably the creepiest is like art version of it. I've seen it ever. It's mm-hmm. extremely good. I, I love yeah. the art style too, from watching what Brian played. I felt it was more like a comedy to me <laughs> from all the interaction he's doing. I don't know, but that doesn't mean. Well, I don't know. Sometimes if you're watching like a horror movie in a group, a defense mechanism to like combat the unease is to try to bring that levity. Like I I remember watching uh, like The Ring or some things where like if you watch them by yourself and I don't watch a lot of horror movies, so I'm a little bit out of my element here, but I wanted to like experience it. So that's why I downloaded this game a couple of days ago. Uh, I kind of think that the comedy aspect does help like combat that dread but if you played it by yourself it really uh i was feeling it even with kevin kind of having participants because i was streaming it in a discord channel but definitely i think think this ends up in our top two here and it's also really awesome because that art like involves like depending on your character status there's something like if your character like get like is afflicted like a certain something um it'll actually reflect on their character portrait if they like get slit by like the scissor lady um there's actually like it's actually like represented on that character portrait and they like uh, yep. like if they uh inflict some sort of status that's like it's like a, like a curse on them you'll see like like curse tattoos like on that character portrait so like your character portrait kind of like visualizes like the current status of your character depending on like what sort of like stat like curses or any bad stuff that like they might encounter along the way and it's like oh shit my character is like looks really fucked up because of like what they've been experiencing in this playthrough which is really cool. Look, really every cool. every really single cool. playthrough I watch Brian play, he has a freaking slice on his face every time. <laughs> hey, that the slip face woman is it's a hard one to beat because it is an RPG. You do like gather, gather equipment and uh, you have stats and you know attributes and things like that and gear, and you have to like take care of your health. And we're not talking about design and immersion here, though. I'm, I'm sure we easily could. Uh, yep, it's on the list for that. So more on that later. But definitely, I think. The most striking thing about this game is its art. And I think uh, we still have a few cuts to make, but based on the discussion we've had here, we've introduced each game at least once on this list. Looks like Small Saga and World of Horror are definitely in the running. So time to start reviewing a few of the games and making some cuts. Uh, a couple of these kind of been together in a ways. Uh, we have the the pairing of Octopath Traveler 2 and Wandering Sword, both with their own take on the, quote, HD2D look. How do we feel about these two? I don't, I think compared to what these other games are bringing, I don't think these two, I think we can kind of treat these as compatriots and knock them both out. But I don't want to just declare that without discussion. I think Octopath Traveler 2, I mean, you know, we talked a little earlier about how it's this next level for this HD 2D, you know, approach. Um, but at the same time, I, I agree. I don't think it stands up against something like, like what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to relitigate it because I think we ultimately made the right choice with uh, Starship and the second story R. But I feel like if uh, any HD2D style game was going to have a shot for it, 
would have been that one when Octopath Traveler two. It looks great, but it's like it's what the fifth or sixth HD two D game now. Yeah. Yeah. How about well, this? How about this? I'm gonna put Star Ocean, the second story R, on the list. <laughs> And then well, I, I shouldn't I have said really anything. It to, no, you, you, I don't really quite compare it to HD2D, just because to me, if you look at pictures of what the PS1 game looks like, it kind of just looks like they're doing what that was, but they chose to keep the sprites in and just make them better. Yeah, but, like, it's, it's, like, just, it's yeah, the same it's, kind it's, of backgrounds as the original, but better, and the same, you know, like sprites, but better. So it's it, it's more just to look like the original game. Yeah, if there's any, anything like if there's any like like my praise for Octopath too, like it's more technical, right? Of like the weather, like not the the weather, the time of day change is really nice. The simple time of day change mm-hmm. instantaneously. It's seeing like the the skybox uh, move uh, to reflect the new time of day, and also the when they, when you do like those um, I forgot what they're called, like those ultimate moves, and you charge them up all the way, and like the camera pans in like behind your character, and you see like the sprite kind of like shift in real time to like kind of get a better sense yeah. of cinematography for those uh, ultimate attacks. Like that's really cool. But other than that, like it doesn't really like revolutionized what HD2D, what we see as HD2D, right? I also feel it's like a step down from Live Alive. I feel Live Alive is even superior than Octopath. Live Alive had more variety in environments, and especially with the cube section of the game. So being a step down, I don't feel like it deserves it. At least that's my opinion. They already hit a higher bar before. Sounds like we're all on the same page. So HD2D, I think we're really glad that Octopath Traveler 1 did what it did to kind of open the gate for both, you know, the Square Enix published properties as well as other developers interested in doing something similar with their style. But something that we will cut off the list here. And then Sea of Stars, we talked about it's not quite, not really HD2D. It's more of a straight up high resolution version of a 16-bit art style. I think we can kind of knock it off for a similar reason. Uh, we talked about, you know, in Small Saga, how it's not really trying to, quote, you know, mimic anything. It's just doing something that best serves the art they're going for. And Sea of Stars has great art. It does, both in the pixel art as well as if you look at any of the, like, key art or concept art or album art, it's all really good. It really is. But I think it is still based in nostalgia in a way. Yeah. Although I guess sort of horror is kind of. <laughs> it is kind of. It's got the. But I think it's. I think it. I think it's so distinct, right? It's not like it's. Yeah. It, it, it is definitely aiming for that early Macintosh. But you look at that, those. It's like this is expanding that concept to make its own visual identity. It's like it's 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 also like within the scope of like a horror game, and also like you have to like hand handcraft all these environments in that like rural Japan area. And also translating those like iconic like Japanese mythology, especially in the horror horror sphere, into this like um, one bit style, which is something that I don't think I've ever seen ever seen done, <laughs> to be honest. And then the other game that we haven't considered in yet is Baldur's Gate Three, and we were kind of half committed to it in the first place, does a lot of really good things with the variety of assets and the animations and just the sheer number of interacting components. But even with that stated, I don't think it... 
I don't think that it's put it, it kind of how similar how we talked about in stars and time really focus on the writing and storytelling. Small saga and world of horror are really focusing on the art and Baldur's Gate three has good art, but you it's know not what? what's championing what? that game. I don't think go ahead. You know what? I would actually disagree with that on principle. I feel like the main reason why Baldur's Gate 3 blew up the way it did is because of the presentation, the animations, between the motion capture for the main party members and for during the conversations. And like, I was at like an industry uh, mixer, like uh, during the TGA stuff uh, earlier this week. And I actually had the chance to talk with Neil Newbin, who not only did he voice Assyrian and get the game award, but he also was the voice director and the motion capture director on that project. And hearing him talk about all the work that went into that aspect of the game, not just the time, but also the budget and everything. It's like, I, I don't know, just because it's something that's not immediately apparent when you look at screenshots, I don't think it's any less impressive what they managed to do here. That's a good argument. Genuine, genuinely. So we've got three games left. It feels like I'm in familiar territory here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Small Saga. We've got World of Horror. We've got Baldur's Gate 3. We need to pick a winner and a runner-up for best art. I'm putting my money on Baldur's Gate 3. Is, and not just because there's a pretty vampire elf in it? No. I, I, I feel like the World of Horror, is, it's just capturing PC-98 stuff to to be... And I see a lot of it, and I'm, it doesn't that's, strike that me. Is not, that is not PC-98. You're crazy you think that's PC-98. That's not PC-98. What the uh, fuck, Cal? Hey, that is not PC-98. The the holy shit. What? I like when I said PC Engine, no one said anything about it, but because... <laughs> That is not PC ninety eight. What in the world? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Then, then I guess that Baldur's Gate three. It looks like a sketchbook. Then by, by that standard, it looks like you know. I googled PC ninety eight and I found this image. Does that look like World of Horror? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> so okay, uh, okay uh, it'll be like PC ninety eight. Someone put a grayscale filter. How's that? That's not not even close. This is meant to eight like early Macintosh era games. That's what it is. Oh my god. Okay. Never grew up in Macintosh, sorry. So, yeah, it's definitely small... going for like a late 80s, early 90s PC game look. It's like, it's, it's like you look at the, the original version of La Milana and it's like, it's, it's like similar sort of tech there with what they're doing with World of Horror, or at least what they're trying to emulate at least. Oh. I, I mean, I mean, okay. And then I guess I forget to discard World of Horror for doing something like that's never really. No, no, I, no I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm discarding it. I'm not discarding it, just to be clear. That's uh, fucking, it's unique for sure. It's to insane. me, that's fucking insane, child. Like, I cannot believe you just said that. Okay, <laughs> to fine. me, I'm, I, when, when, when we had pulled out Small Saga and World of Horror, I was thinking my personal World of Horror edges out Small Saga. Um, I'm just not sure where Baldur's Gate 3 runs in with the, the defense that that James gave. This is a tough one. Okay, this is one of those weird things, right? Okay, so if we were to like, if we were gonna the, gonna judge like work labor, like amount of work into it, then all of these should be winners by default because all of them work. All of the developers who worked on it worked countless fucking hours to nail what they did for every one of these. You know? The reason I offered that uh, defense of uh, Baldur's Gate 3 was because, yeah, like, underneath, like, the art section on the Google Doc, the first half is visual artwork. The second half is general presentation. I strongly believe that it's Baldur's Gate 3's overall presentation, 
the conversations and the animations that make it feel like it's an actual conversation. It's not just people standing around as, as like voice lines are said, and maybe they like cocked their head back and forth or something like that. It's like actual like motion and it makes those like interactions with your party feel real. I think that's the main different uh, differentiator that really has made Baldur's Gate three so beloved and what ultimately has made it so acclaimed. It's such a, it seems like a small thing, but it isn't. And I, and I feel like if that's, if that is what's led so many people to love this game and for it to gain such an acclaim, I feel like it's absolutely justified to say that from an overall artistic presentation that Baldur's Gate 3, there's a real argument that it was the best of the year. I will also make the argument that I feel like a lot of World of Horror's uh, stronger points, like, don't get me wrong, the art in is amazing, but I feel like World of Horror's strongest point is in its design and immersion. And, and we haven't got to that category yet, uh, but I feel that a lot of what people like about World of Horror is not strictly in the art style, but how the art and the design combine to make it what it is. Um, compared to Baldur's Gate 3, which I haven't played the game, but I have seen the art. I have seen the, uh, how, how they've, um, done motion capture on like the TikToks and everything. And it, they, they capture the world of Dungeons and Dragons extremely well. I'm just, I'm just say, saying that, like, if we're gonna base it based on like, like work of love and labor, you know, then everyone should be a winner then, because that's because because not not every one of these games had the luxury of sharing their development, you know, way the, the way that they developed the game. They didn't have the luxury to share that on social media. You know, that is that uh, is true. So that I, that I, is I, true. So like, I mean, no, like, nobody makes a game to make it ass on purpose right yeah exactly <laughs> right, right right that's the thing like and it's, it's, it's one of those weird, things where we're, we're drawing a line be, we're, we're drawing a line between art and design which is a very foggy line like design is art is design. You know, together, a, a lot yeah. of things these are all you know video games are holistic things where you we're here we are like diluting music or gameplay or art or whatever and you can't only just factor like even when we talk about music it's like where what what scene is this is this track backing what's going on what is the player feeling at this point when this track kicks in what plays when kiryu's crying looking at the tablet so it's one of those things where we're kind of trying to distill it down and making sure that that's not how games are experienced yeah yeah if um, if if i was going to distill my argument down do you, does anyone in this call believe that Baldur's Gate 3 would be anywhere near as beloved as it is right now if it wasn't for those close-ups with the characters, with the, with the animation mocap? If that wasn't in the game, I don't think it would have blown up. Just simple as that. Like it, like people would have played it that were fans of like Larian's older games. Like obviously everyone, like everyone that's played Divinity Original Sin 2, or almost everyone that's played it, says it's a fantastic RPG, but I don't think Baldur's Gate 3 would have blown up if it wasn't for that crucial element of the presentation. They uh, so, so now that comes to professional marketing, because Baldur's Gate 3 had a, be- a bigger marketing budget that got more eyes on it, so now it, it deserves to be, to, 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 you know, win it now, because it got into the, it had the budget to be in the eyes Josh, of more that's people. Not, that's, what not, that's uh, not what I'm saying at all. 
And, and yeah, like obviously Baldur's Gate 3 had marketing, but to say that it was purely marketing that caused the game to blow up and not organic, like word of mouth, I feel like it's being at least a little bit disingenuous. I'm just saying that like, that's kind of how it read to me. And I apologize if like, that's not what you meant and that's fine. But I'm just saying that like, it's, 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 it's David versus Goliath here. Like this, the, uh, people are going to know Baldur's Gate 3 more. And these other two are kind of I, by the wayside. I guess my question is, why are we factoring in popularity? I to popularity that's true. Yeah, yeah, and your contest. But I, I, yeah. I actually like Baldur Gate's art. I, I find like certain parts are hilarious, especially like what was it like the squirrel scene? It's just like you can't do that in most other things, right? Yeah, so, it's mean, like I'm and I'm like bringing up the popularity just to kind of to to center like how much of an impact the presentation has had because obviously like larian's previous games if it wasn't for that animation divinity original sin 2 still looks pretty similar to Baldur's gate 3 i'm just saying that the only way we can measure how much of an impact that aspect of Baldur's Gate 3 has had is by seeing the difference in the popularity. And I mean, maybe it's... Ba- then Baldur's Gate 3 should have been writing story time because it was more popular then. It was more... Improv- that, more I, I, I feel like that's... But, uh, but he, yeah, and, but... Even, and even when we were talking about storytelling, I outright said that, no, the it wasn't the storytelling that made it so popular. It's pe- it was the interactions between the characters, and a lot of that was, even then, I mentioned the presentation. So is this an art versus design and immersion argument then? <laughs> it's it's, it's basically. Me. I'm just gonna chime no, in here and say just, I know exactly what James means and I agree with him. Okay, then. It, yeah, it, and it, he's not I mean, saying that it's better it, because it's more, it's more popular. It's better because it has better marketing. I think that is. If, it, if more people are in agreement, then there's nothing I can do, right? Um, we could, yeah, we could just toss it to a vote. I mean, that's. All right, we've we kind of left. We've kind of left Small Saga aside here. Um, obviously, so we've got these three games still in the running, and we and. People who are listening to the podcast can't see this, but we've got GIFs and art and everything pasted all throughout chat for us to look up and down. Um, so it might just end up being a vote in this case. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of clear who like who the winner is, and now we're just I, we're going off of scraps of the feathers to small saga. Or World well, of I don't know if we know that. I think you're just kind of playing defeatist a little bit here, because who do you, who do you think I'm going to vote for? I, I'm going to th- vote for World of Horror. I'm voting for World of Horror as well. I'm also voting funny, for World of Horror. Yeah, the funny thing is, I was voting for World of Horror too. I just wanted to give like Baldur's Gate 3 its fair dues. It's like, yeah, it, obviously it's getting all the attention because realistically, no matter what we end up with on our personal, like on our list, like in the general zeitgeist, Baldur's Gate 3 is game of the year. Like it won at the, it won at the VGAs. We just, well, we don't know. TGAs. We don't know. We like, so we like you're already, you're already, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. I, I, I'm just saying that's like, I wanted to give it fair dues for that aspect of the game. Cause I did, th- I do think it's noteworthy and I do genuinely believe it's a, it's one of the main reasons it's, it's blown up into the success that it's become. I just wanted, to, I, it felt like we were dismissing it almost like out of turn. So I just wanted to pipe in and, Kind of explained why I felt a bit differently. I, I that do was it. agree that, that like the, the presentation that I brought up is like is almost, for as much as Baldur's Gate Three is beloved, I almost think the presentation like components of it are almost underlooked. For as big as that game is, I almost that the way that it's that they decided to present it 
I think is a huge factor. Yeah, and you can say, oh, well, they had all the budget and all the time, but the thing is that that's still a shit ton of work and a lot of passion from everyone involved. And I and don't think that should be decisions made by creators. Yeah, oh, like cool. I, I'm not going to share the exact number I heard, but I heard something about like the game's overall budget and how much of it was that motion capture stuff, and it's much higher than I think most people would realize. Also, feel like you're kind of to say it's popular, but I feel like. Baldur's Gate 3 was spread through words of mouth. I don't feel like there was a crazy marketing behind it. It's more like people start saying, hey, this game's awesome, and you get all the content right out of the gate. And people are like, what? In this time of age that there's a game like that? And then it just think- kind of blew up, you know? It's not well, like... That's sort of, it's, it's kind of weird how... This is kind of... We're getting a little off topic, but like, Baldur's Gate 3 was in early access for a long time, but I almost feel like even then it kind of crept up on people by surprise when it released. In terms of just like how well made it was. Yeah. Anyways, um, it sounds like we already have a majority for World Four, if I counted right. Oh yeah. So I voted uh, World Four, yeah. like just for pure art, for sure. Yeah. Same. I I cast my vote for Baldur's Gate Three. I'm the only X there. So how many people do we have supporting Small Saga? Uh, mm-hmm. So we have pages yeah, for it, it, it's hard for small between saga. Small, small saga for me. Like both are really good. So, like I, I would put the maybe like small saga just an inch above World of War, but it's like it's like the closest fucking. Inch. I definitely want to add. I mean, I I like what small saga brings to the table a lot. I love some you know the screenshots I've been shared here that and pages points are are excellent. Um. I, I, it's not my runner-up, and it's not my winner here, but it sure is third place. It just doesn't matter as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's one of those. It's like, okay, yeah. is, 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 are we are we arguing between Small Saga and Baldur's Gate three for runners-up now? Then? Yeah, exactly. I would vote for Baldur's Gate three for runner-up then. All right. So how about this? Um, if World of Horror, it sounds like based on the three-way, seems to come out on top for winner. We reset everyone's vote just to vote for a runner-up based on their personal experience or the argument made between Small Saga and uh, Baldur's Gate 3 for runner-up. Sorry, I'm messing with our little note sheet here. Well, Small Saga so, has the cool S in it, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's, That's the argument. That's true. Yeah. It does have a cool S. Right. Baldur's Gate doesn't have so a cool So for a runner-up... So for runner-up, I'm going to vote Baldur's Gate. I'm also voting Baldur's Gate. Same. Baldur's Gate. And I, unfortunately, I, this is a little bit of, uh, you know, in an imbalanced democratic thing here because more of us have played Baldur's Gate and Small Saga, unfortunately. I, yeah, I think it's already paid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, the, but, the point that um, I also talked about the makeup a little bit, and that is, like, the one aspect of Baldur's Gate that we're, like, you know, I feel like... Yeah, the overall style is like it's just doing what it's doing, but that the character expressions is where it really does shine, and we actually get that. Um, so that is the good point for it. I'm, I'm I was just going for Small Saga because I really like what they've done with the world and the pixel art and stuff. I want to make another point. It's a very, 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 very quick one. I like how the Underdark and the Shadowlands look. Is it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yes, one hundred percent. I feel like a lot of times we're like drawn to like places that are bright and colorful and cheery. 
So it, I like it when you get like those darker areas that still look very, very good. Well, we talked yeah. about the depths in Zelda, where it's like that was kind of boring. And that, yeah, about, you know, yeah. The other ones, yeah. it's like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a lot more to work with, you know, historically with the Underdarks and the depths and, and Tears of the Kingdom that um, were just kind of coalesced from developer thoughts here. But that doesn't change the fact that, yeah, the depths are kind of pretty monotonous, and the Underdark has a lot more going on, and is just visually striking, despite quote unquote being underground. So it got contentious at the end, but that's the reason why we record this podcast is so when people look at the list and they say, how the heck did you come up with that? Well, this is how. For RPG Sites, best art of 2023, our winner is World of Horror. Our runner-up is Baldur's Gate 3, just edging out Small Saga. All right. With that, we'll go rolling straight into a topic that has been brought up a few times in the last couple topics, and that is design and immersion. This one is admittedly up to some interpretation. We can talk about the sense of atmosphere, whether the game feels like more than the sum of its parts, how the game makes you feel as a part of it rather than a spectator, specific to how you design a game, how we have an interactive medium that is uniquely, you know, inherent to video games, something worth recognizing in that sense. So the games that we have nominated, I think all of these here except one are previously had previously been nominated for another category. Those are Baldur's Gate 3, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, Fate Samurai Remnant, Silent Hope, Like a Dragon Ishin, Labyrinth of Galleria, Wandering Sword, Fire Emblem Engage, World of Horror, and then a newcomer to the list for design and immersion, we have Remnant 2. So a lot of these games, we've already kind of done a lot of due diligence in talking about their design, specifically Baldur's Gate. World of Horror, a little bit on Wandering Sword. Uh, maybe maybe we'll start with Remnant 2, just because that is the newcomer here, and I believe the two people to go to here mostly are Josh 1 and James. I'm not sure if any of the other contributors have also played Remnant 2. Uh, I'll hand it off to... Uh, yeah, I said Josh and James. I wasn't sure if uh, Josh 2 or or Quentin had, had played Remnant 2. We'll start with that. Uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, hand it off to... Uh, let's hand it off to Josh first. Yeah, I mean, uh, Remnant 2 is a really, really excellent, uh, video game. Like, they took a lot of, like, the core feedback from Remnant from the Ashes and, and enhanced it even more. Uh, Remnant 2 is a third person, uh, or shooter RPG. Um, and the, and the real, um, thing that distinguishes it from, uh, its peers is this world generation system where each of the three worlds that you visit in the game, I think there's, like, technically a fourth one because it's, like, in between realm is, uh, for the most part, procedurally generated in the sense that it, you, it'll pick from a pool of like uh, optional quests that you can embark on. Uh, it's like a massive pool for each of the three worlds, and like this, and like uh, the, the the main storyline of them is like one of like two two primary ones that it can do. Um, so it's easy to um, go into a world and not know its exact layout, uh, but you generally know where to go uh, through its map and. It, the 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 design and immersion in it is like you're constantly like kind of chasing these sort of like modifiers in the game to either uh, enhance the way that like your weapon operates or getting like these um, sort of like almost tarot cards that uh, increase like certain um, stats that you can uh, put points into 
or like these relics that you can uh, use to uh, define your character build um, in the game. Um, and this and, and this game also uses a dual class system where you have a primary class and a secondary class. So you can have like um, uh, you can have the handler uh, class, which is uh, a class dedicated to uh, having a dog with you, and that dog you can tune as like a support dog or an attack dog. Um, and then mix it with like something like say a sharpshooter, um, and that and that class is uh, you know as the name implies very much about like headshots, about dealing uh, DPS class, uh, and so forth. So the real nice thing about this game is like it's easy to like get lost in this loop of like wandering these realms and re-rolling realms to uh, uh, find these events uh, to define your character build, and if you're a completionist, also you know filling out more of like the game's content and like giving yourself more build options it's a it's a very nice like the art design of this game is like quite pleasant it's a very dreary sort of game um with um nice dull tones uh to kind of encapsulate the you know like this entrenching horror called the root uh and all these demons that you fight uh, along the way and like the and the way that like there's um artistic shifts like this one realm is like has this, uh, two sides to it. One is sort of like a bloodborne uh, town, and the other and the other side of this realm is like sort of like a more uh, medieval fantasy style uh, realm, and that and that's uh, part of the narrative of that uh, world that you're wandering. In. Um, I don't know if it, if it'll rank as top three, but it, it is definitely a nominee for like a really great design and immersion in the video game this year. I don't know if you wanted to add on to that, James. Uh, I, I kind I, I basically agree with everything you said. The one thing that kind of stands out to me is that mm-hmm. as far as like, obviously procedurally gen- generated video games are very popular, especially within the indie and double A space. Uh, Remnant 2 is probably the one example of a procedurally generated game where it, where it's possible to not realize that if somebody didn't outright tell you right like like obviously when you do replays you'll notice like stuff that's been reused and whatnot you can see where the puzzle pieces fit together but it does a very good job of like the way i played it i just did a single playthrough it's like it feels like a cohesive product from start to finish which sounds like a weird thing to praise a game for but for like a procedurally generated game for a rogue, well, not right, not an actual roguelike, but yeah, for something that's procedurally generated, that's insanely impressive. Like you're, you're, you're coming across secrets and stuff and it doesn't feel like it was just randomly placed here by a computer. It's like, oh, this makes sense in the context of, uh, of this world and whatnot. And like, I, I, I greatly enjoyed it for that. I'm not sure if it would be my pick for this category. Obviously, I'm going to argue for Gloria for, some of the reasons that uh, we I talked about and Adam talked about in the uh, storytelling section, but I, I I would definitely say that this is worth keeping on the list for now. Well, with the introduction to Remnant Two, now every game on the list for Design and Immersion has at least been talked to to some extent. One game that I'm going to try to argue to knock off the list, but shout out one thing that I do think does something really well is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Because when you look at Zelda Tears of the Kingdom from a design perspective, 
when you think about, well, how does it compare to Breath of the Wild? Obviously, Breath of the Wild was a huge shakeup. That does, that can't be understated. Um, and Tears of the Kingdom is the direct sequel to that. So a lot of that is kind of like baked in. What Tears of the Kingdom mainly has that's different is, of course, the depths, which we've already kind of talked about. And this is kind of an undersung thing, but something that I do think really kept me engaged with Tears of the Kingdom. It's going to sound a little bit silly, but the cave system. How I 100% cave, agree. Every cave in the game has a icon on the map. And every cave is like a micro dungeon, micro dungeon, where there's something to find in there. And this sounds really like gamer brain, but as soon as you find whatever the thing is, it gives you a little check mark on the map and or on the cave yeah. icon on the, on the yeah. map. And the thing, and the thing about that is it's a tiny, tiny little baby carrot where you've run into a cave and you might say like, well, a good game doesn't need that. You should just have natural wanderlust, which I think Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom both already do in spades. But that little tiny addition meant every single time I thought, I wonder if there's a cave under here or behind here or, bu- or below this or above this. And if I find it, I'd be like, hell yeah. Now what's in here? I know there's something in here worth getting. There's no question about that. So that was just a tiny little component that really kept me engaged. Like some people, you know, people who aren't as high on these games, which maybe, maybe some of you here are, would say the, the world's too empty. It's got nothing in it. I was bored. Where this is one aspect of, of Tears of the Kingdom that prevented me from ever getting bored is because you're always within a few feet of a cave, which means you're always within a few feet of a new costume piece or a new weapon or something. With that said, I don't think that that is enough on its own to celebrate Tears of the Kingdom in this category, but I did want to give that a shout out. I'm really surprised by this because I, I think, I think Tears of the Kingdom is like one of the strongest contenders for design and immersion because of the confidence it gives players of, of designing with Ultra Head and making their own creations and the way to solve their own puzzles. Like, shrines in this game are very fluid in the way that you that you, that you can um, overcome them. You can, like, a lot of people can just, like, you can kind of kind of cheese a lot of, like, the shrines uh, based on, like, just very simple mechanics of, like, using the Ultra Hand to, like, lift a platform up and then you uh, keeping it suspended in the air and then using the Rewind mechanic to kind of go through them. Or they can, like, uh, based on the tools that it's provided, kind of go through it, like, their own way of, like, designing something or maybe uh, pulling out something they've already designed to get through them. Like, this game is, like, it thrives on its design immersion because of, like, the confidence it gives players to, like, make their own shit, essentially. And but, We talk uh, about adding verbs. To yeah, game. exactly. Like, I I would not, uh, by a long shot, not, like, dismiss Zelda Tears of the Kingdom Another from point. this category because that I- is, like, like, that is where it thrives and where it excels at it. Oh, opinion. yeah. It's like, and I feel like it feels like we've almost forgotten just how many developers came out of the woodwork in the weeks following the game's launch to just explain in great detail just how impressive the core yeah. mechanics of the game is. It's like, yeah, it's and, like... And this, and this also a game that, like, like uh, plays heavy emphasis on, like, verticality. Like, when you go to, like, those uh, light towers and fucking shoot up into the sky... And like, yeah. go explore to like the next areas. Like, hey, there's something cool over there. I'm gonna go fucking fly to it from the sky, and that's awesome. You know, that feels immersive in a in a very fluid way. I don't know about you guys, but all I'm thinking about is like that tweet where it was like Amelia Watson, the VTuber versus Darkside Phil, trying to understand this puzzle. Oh yeah, <laughs> and like <laughs> Amelia Watson did like the smart, probably expected strategy, and Darkside Phil had to like. Brute force it. Sorry. 
What, what oh, were you going to say, Paige? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I have like one little little silly immersion thing, which yeah. is that I spent so long in the depths that when I popped out to the surface, my eyes did the thing as when you step outside in real life, like into like the actual sun, <laughs> and I went out because That's I was cool. in the yeah. Um, And yeah. No, I've lost track of the other thing, but... It's um, one of the most I, It's one of the few games, games I've put 80 time. hours into this year, and yeah. the other one was remake of my favorite game, so that's saying something for me. Like, especially. I put, it's a very I, magical game. Like, I still I still have... I still hold dear, tears of the like, dear and dear to my heart this year. I, yeah. I don't like that I, being dismissed so easily. Like, oh. I, I, think, I think the highest, like, praise I can give this game is I dumped, like, over 120 hours in this game. Absolutely... Dude, like, what's even the right word for it? I put out 30 guide pages for this game. It's still one of my favorites of the year. F- fuck, you can rail grind on your shield. We should give it that for that. We should give it this for that alone. <laughs> okay. So, so. I, I, I think the, the strongest thing that I can say for it is um, I replayed Breath of the Wild right before it. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, no, don't do that. You know, because it's like it's the same world to some extent and all that. I didn't feel tedium or repetition come on at all. I was thrilled to go back to that world because of how malleable it becomes. So I am... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paige. I, was like, I think this category is like the one for Tears of the Kingdom because it's definitely not in writing. It's, you know, it's art style's okay, but like this is its strongest point, really. So, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so I am Tears of the Kingdom's biggest hater. Actually, I hate mm. the game. I really don't like it. Mm. Uh, I put probably about eight to ten hours into it, and then I finally said, "You know what? I'm done. I don't like it." Um, I'm I'm more of like the older Zelda's, like Oracle of Ages style, the stuff. Mm. I will say this though: it is absolute wizardry how they got the um, the the ability to make your own stuff in Tears of the Kingdom work the way it is. And from a design perspective, that should give it the award by itself. Like I'm looking at all the other games on this list. I love World of Horrors design. I, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 obviously has some incredibly smart design choices. I think Tears of the Kingdom would take it for me simply based on on the construction system that they put in. I'm still amazed that like they're able to like 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 it's very bold of them to like also like have one of your core mechanics for Link in this game be to no clip vertically up like that's yeah. crazy from like a level because from like that perspective. If you can create a dungeon or several dungeons where you have an intended solution, you have and then extrapolate that to where you have ten, fifteen, twenty, a hundred alternate solutions based purely on being able to make stuff touch other stuff and make like a mecha or make like a giant baseball bat or like whatever that, that alone is, is just a monstrous amount of design work. And they got, they got pulleys working. Players can make their own pulleys and they just work. That's insane. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or you're, you've got smooth brain like me and there's like an intended solution to like put something on a rail. And I'm like, I can't figure out how to put this together. So I'm just going to make a giant ramp. The thing I keep, the thing I keep thinking back to is like about like three or so weeks after the game came out, I, I, I saw a video on my Twitter, uh, Twitter feed where somebody just made a fucking Macross mech. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's just like, look, 
I'll save like didn't know what hit them. It, it's like I could make arguments about how I feel about like stuff that Gloria does, but realistically, there's no argument I can make that, to to kind of disprove that Tears of the Kingdom deserves this uh, this award because it absolutely does, one hundred percent. Well, so clearly it seems like I feel bad for almost dismissing it. Thank you for putting me in my place. But it'll be kind of the high water mark here for design and immersion. We have a few other games here that we're going to have to kind of like tent pull against it. Uh, but we still want to give them their due because they're all nominated for a reason, right? All of these do something. Yeah, well, yeah. Reportedly, all of right. these will do something good. One that I'm looking at that I'm actually struggling to find something. So please put me back in my place here. Um, Fire Emblem Engage. I was asking nominated that because I'm like, why is it? <laughs> okay, I mean, like, like I don't know if Adam feels the same way, but like this has been like the most fun Fire Emblem game from a gameplay perspective for me. And I don't know if it necessarily does design and immersion, but for gameplay, this has been like a this is an awesome entry for like strategy RPG mechanics. Like I love the emblem system and the way that like you can kind of manipulate the battlefield in this game. Um, like the gameplay system just fucking slap in in Engage. In my opinion, one of my favorite. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Fire Emblems, like handily in terms of gameplay. Yeah, and, like like where it falters, it's any anything that it tries to like include because of for three houses people. Like all the times, like you visit Samuel and do like the town management stuff. That's all incredibly underbaked and kind of kind of fucking sucks to be honest. But in terms of like gameplay in this game, fantastic. I, I think the Somniel, I agree with you on all of that, but the fact that Somniel is a gameplay design decision yeah. and a very, very yep. bad one kind of yep. disqualifies it from this category. <laughs> Unfortunately. So, <laughs> the Somniel <laughs> thing is... That, that, so I reviewed this game and basically had that same takeaway. I wasn't really hot on the story and I and I think, I think that's relatively... I don't think that's an unusual opinion anyway, but the Somniel stuff feels like almost like leftover vestiges from Three Houses that just didn't need to be there. And it's Are very you awkward. The dragon cheating game isn't good. It's not listed here, but um, Marvel's Midnight Suns also suffers from that. Where the gameplay fucking slaps in that game, but like the the mansion exploring the island stuff, pretty much sucks. <laughs> like I hated like anything that like that says, "Hey, go explore the island." I'm like oh, here we go again. Like, but when it comes to like actual gameplay in that game, ace, awesome. But yeah, Samuel bad. That's my thesis. <laughs> yeah. So if you're wondering why Engage is not on here, and I kind of agree with you in terms of the moment-to-moment, chapter-to-chapter, straight Fire Emblem-ass Fire Emblem combat, really good. Just some of the trimmings are kind of eh, in terms of... The Engage system is decent in some ways, but kind of way strangely tuned in other ways. And then I agree with the uh, the Somniel. But moment-to-moment gameplay, like map design, all those other like boilerplate things, really good. Now, I have a question. Uh, Why is Like a Dragon Machine on here? Like, that's actually a genuine question. Like, how is this highlightable? I honestly don't uh, know. I, I mean, obviously, like, I put it on here, but it's not... I I, I, I put it on here, like, um, I knew it was going to win it. It's definitely, like, a, a product of its era. It's very stiff. It's very early Yakuza-type mechanics. Um, but I, I just wanted to, like, it was pretty cool, like, seeing, like, you know, the different, like, Sword stance styles and like the wild dancer brawler styles, um, just kind of like that. Uh, the way they adapted the yakuza formula into that uh, time period is nice. Yeah, you know, it's pretty, I think it's pretty, pretty cool. 
there's something to be said for, you know, putting games on a list like this for the nomination, you know, for, for a, a particular aspect or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess so. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it doesn't have to stick around. It's okay. No, and I, and since I also played a Shin, um, I do think it's just kind of, even though this is more of a credit to the original game than the, than the full global release, yeah. it's just kind of fun where they're like, let's just take these characters from our series with their, you know, they've got the likeness of, likeness of, you know, famous voice actors or actors. And we're just going to say, okay, now we're just going to transplant them to this completely other story. Why not? We're going to do that. If, if there's, one, if, there's one thing that's like it breaks it. Like I don't, I don't like the decision actually of uh, getting those battle cards that were exclusively for that battle dungeon mini game, but then they expanded out into the in the full full game. I just don't like like it's it's very absurd, but it feels like it's very out of place. It's funny, but also I kind of wish it was only still in that battle dungeon mini game and not the whole game for those battle cards. What about a? So I'm looking at the list here and. Like Baldur's Gate 3 and World of Horror, I'm going to table those for now because those we've kind of discussed at length already. Uh, I guess Wandering Sword as well. How about Fate Samurai Remnant when it comes to, uh, when it comes specifically to design and immersion? Um, it's, it's, I wouldn't like say it's like a, a top three here. Like it's not, it's, it's probably the, the best way, best Fate video game in terms of like emulating like you being a master in that, uh, war. Like you have to, uh, Get this mage workshop base. You have to like uh, build up upgrades to it um, and all that sort of stuff. But if there's like moment, moment to moment, like gameplay and design and immersion, it's like it's like it's not as spammy as like Dynasty Warriors because you do have like these different sword stances that all have like their own uh, pros and weaknesses. And there's like a, there's it's very distinct and varied in terms of like their specific move sets. But it's like it doesn't like break new ground. It does. It's not super revolutionary. And like, as an overall package, it was a it's a it's a nice game that's fun to play. It's nothing like new. And we've had a, we've had a handful of people that have played that game. Anyone else have any other final thoughts on Fate Samurai Remnants design and immersion and what it does well? All right, we'll leave it at that. Uh, another one on here, Silent Hope. Uh, once again, it's just one of those things, uh, a, a smaller game to call attention to. Silent Hope is a nice, like, um, very simple, like, it, it's, it's oddly enough, like, if you've ever wanted, like, uh, like, if you have someone younger that, like, is interested in, like, playing an action RPG, but, like, it, but feels like that, like, current offerings are too daunting or too complex, Silent Hope is actually a nice, like, beginner, like, action RPG, so, sort of like how Super Mario RPG is a nice beginner turn-based RPG. Like it's it's mechanics are simple enough to grasp onto that you're not juggling like like seven or eight different cooldowns, um, kind of like FF16, right? Where like there's a lot of things happening in that, and that it's harder to like recommend like FF16 to like someone younger, um, to like you know they like action paced gameplay, but they feel like the mechanics are too are too overwhelming. Like Silent Hope is a nice sort of like dip your toes into that, um, but it's it's nothing like I said super revolutionary. Kind of like a nice sort of like pick up and play game. All right, so now we're kind of back to other games that we've talked about in previous categories. Like for instance, we talked about the art of Baldur's Gate three and World of Horror in terms of are we talking art or are we talking design? Kind of a very thin line there, and they're both here for design and immersion. So I think uh, for for me, tricky. Go for it. 
Um, Baldur's Gate 3 um, has a lot of the same kind of shenanigans as you can do on Tears of the Kingdom, where people are, like, barrel stacking and, like, jumping and, like, just beating the mechanics to do whatever they want. And then it's also partly in design and being a CRPG where you're, like, manipulating the um, special items and, like, your conversations and things like that. So I think that that's also just, like, the, the how the player itself is actively engaging and not just the um, other aspects of design, where it has that similar... Um, I don't know, freedom to it. Oh, so that's kind of a good point ways. because... Go ahead, Quentin. Oh, I was just going to... to agree. I mean, there are quite a few ways to tackle quite a few things in Boulder's Gate 3 and um, the delivery of it on so many levels. Um, most of the time, it feels so organic and natural no matter which route you took on a given quest. Um, and that in and of itself, I think, is is given the, the quantity... Um, the the fact that it's deep enough more often than not where I, I didn't feel like the developers were kind of pushing back, you know, on a given moment. Um, they were just like, well, heck, someone's going to do that. And I did it. And um, I think that's one of Baldur's Gate 3's biggest triumphs is pulling that off. Yeah, and I'd say, like, Baldur's Gate 3 is impressive because, um, like, obviously can't diminish all the work that Nintendo put into the underlying systems to make Tears of the Kingdom work. Baldur's Gate 3, it wasn't just, oh, they make the systems and then they let the game play out. They had to account for all of those permutations. So I'm not sure, like, what I would consider more impressive of the two, if you're thinking of it that way. Well, I remember before Paige compared the two and then you followed up, I never really thought of Baldur's Gate and Legend of Zelda in like a same similar mindset like that, other than both being good games that are likely going to be in consideration for many outlets games of the year. But Baldur's Gate 3, like I remember like learning how you can use certain, in in a similar way, we talk about Zelda having so many verbs. Baldur's Gate 3 is kind of a similar take on that, where it's like, I can't unlock this door without being caught or without busting it down it's like well have you tried casting gaseous form and going through the mouse hole you know things like that where it's like of course you could try that you should have um in terms of having like an intended solution having instead of saying like you have one intended solution and 10 alternate solutions it's like how about we have 10 intended solutions for each individual little puzzle yeah exactly I think the way, yeah, I think the way to look at it, right, is with, with Tears of the Kingdom, they give you the tools to create and make, uh, your own solution. But the only restriction is, you know, you have to conjoin these items at specific points, right? Like that's kind of really it. There's some items you can't pick up and, and, you know, fuse to one another. But generally outside of that restriction, you have the freedom to do to, to build kind of whatever you want. Uh, you know, like you can add jet thrusters and it'll kind of work maybe. And you know, that's kind of your limitation with Baldur's gate three. Your limitation is five E, right? Like, right, right. okay. You have gaseous form. You can go through the keyhole. You have pick lock. You can pick the lock. You have, um, you succeed a strength check. You can break the door down. Uh, you succeed an investigation check, you can find a hidden passage. There's a lot of different solutions to opening the door, but you can't make a solution, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is still impressive, but it right. is yeah, a yeah, little absolutely. bit like, did, did the developer account for it? It kind of goes back to what uh, 
what James said there. So definitely Baldur's Gate 3 and Tears of the Kingdom in design and immersion here kind of neck and neck. How about, uh, how about World of Horror? We talked about its art and how it really, like when we talk about its design and immersion, it's more, hmm. It's more of a tabletop really RPG. Does. Like, like it, 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 it owns a lot of its design decisions is uh, based on the Call of Cthulhu tabletop game. So I wouldn't really necessarily say that like design immersion is like its strongest suit, like compared to like its art, um, because a lot of, a lot of its design uh, is owed to that uh, inspiration of Call of Cthulhu uh, tabletop game. Like if you were to search up like how the Call of Cthulhu tabletop game works, it's like oh, World of Horror does that, uh, you know, and it's like oh, okay, like. I- like Go for it. I'm sorry, I totally didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you were yeah, done. Yeah, that's fine. I, I'm going to disagree a little bit. I haven't played World of Horror, obviously, but I have been looking at the screenshots while we've been yeah. talking about all the other games. Yeah. Um, and I would say that its design and immersion actually is basically at the same level for me with its art in terms of how they function together uh, to provide you know the entertainment that's offering i'm like i want to read a line from the screenshot i'm looking at right the mad god (sighs) i can't talk the mad god favors astronomers and magicians granting them its gift of power that unknowingly brings atlatzoth's bloated body closer and closer to earth like you were mentioning cthulhu mythology and that's basically what this is tapping into but the immersion and design of that, when you look at the screenshot, you're looking at a telescope, you see a shadowy figure standing in the distance, you see some candles and a sigil on the ground, all in this, uh, you know, like old style one bit Macintosh type art. So they blend together, I think, to offer that immersion. I still don't think that the, from a design perspective, it's as good as Baldur's Gate 3 or, or Tears of the Kingdom, but I do want to like call it out that this is probably the most engrossing thing i've seen mm. yeah like uh, i'm just thinking of like uh because I, I didn't think of like that that single like like uh frame but like i was talking right because i'm thinking like more of like gameplay because the the game itself like you, you started you play through it's like a, it's a roguelite um, oh yeah 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 and it's um you but basically when you start a new playthrough you have these five mystery cases to solve and they have uh multiple endings to that, but the, the, the moment-to-moment gameplay is you can like visit like usually for most cases you have like the central town area, um, and it's it's circled very like which locale you need to visit to uh, advance like the the investigation of that mystery and um and every decision that you make in the game like costs doom so you have like basically three health bars in the game stamina reason and doom. You don't want stamina or reason to ever go to zero. That's a game over. You don't want uh, Doom to ever go to 100% because that's a game over because that it, that means you you failed to stop the ritual in summoning the Eldritch Order that's going to wipe off humanity and the world, essentially. So, okay. your, your, yeah, your main, your main goal in every playthrough is every time you solve a case, you gain a key, and you need five keys to open the lighthouse that you need to ascend to stop the ritual. Um... For it, and every time like you do anything in the game, it costs doom. So you're kind of it's it's sort of like part health management, part reason management, part time management in terms of like what are you willing to give up? You're making uh, it's all it's all of checks and balances because like you need to also make sure that your character 
is capable enough to uh, tackle on whatever you need to for these cases and also ascend that tower because after or ascending that lighthouse because as you're ascending like that lighthouse it'll have like various stat checks uh as well and that you'll incur a penalty when you're going up of them um so there could be like last minute like oh shit i'm very close to like getting 100 percent doom if i don't like answer this correctly or if i fail the stat check that might be game over at like at the last stretch of it so josh was literally watching me play this yesterday and i was doing good like it, it's kind of you know what's what's at the core of many rpgs it's resource management of some form or another and i was doing good on reason on stamina i had a really good weapon i was doing very well but i was going too slow in my doom counter like i was being too a i was being too slow and b i was wasting time and like going to the roof of the school and wasting a lot of time uh but it i mean that's 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 i i kind of agree where it's like it we we gave the game its accolades for its art not too long ago, and it's right. and that inherently ties into its design and immersion in a very direct way. Uh, compared to the it. other two, I I don't th- I it's, don't it's, think it quite. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying it's like it's like as you're putting more hours in the world of horror, it becomes very mechanical because you see that like you know certain events like when you when you answer certain events like everything is pretty linear. Like like say you go to this. If you run into this event in the game, and your um, option A will give you uh, minus five stamina, while option B will give you like you know plus five exp. Option B will always for that certain event will always give you plus plus five exp. So you already will naturally memorize it the more you run into it. So like in that way, as you put more hours into World of Horror, uh, weirdly enough, it becomes less immersive because you've seen the gears you see how um, the cogs fit together yeah right. exactly um while, while say something like zelda you're kind of finding always like something new to interact with because of like how you're opening up more mechanisms verbs throughout that game to kind of bolt onto like inventions I remember like months after that game release and probably still ongoing now people are like did you know you could do this <laughs> like, oh, yeah no, yeah, like, yeah you'll, you'll always find like there's like endless interactions it's like wait that interacts with that in that way oh <laughs> what about yeah. uh adam what about wandering sword how do you feel about this one from a design and immersion standpoint okay i'll be very brief here i don't think this wins it's just that it's it's a basically a pixel art open world game in that once you get past like the opening sections of the game you can kind of go whichever way you want to go and like where are your party members well just go out and talk to people and maybe you'll find one so that's one aspect of it another aspect of it that's perhaps a little bit more unique is how you level up your characters and josh talked about this on the pod on the regular episode of the podcast last week but rather than like getting like levels and like regular exp you basically talk to different like sect leaders different people of different like combat styles it's very wuxia um focused and that like they'll teach you different methods that are like for different weapons and different combat styles that are literally in the game. And by powering these styles up, you can basically raise your stats that way through a meridian system. I won't get into all the details, but what it boils down to in the end is that like, rather than just like, uh, you know, grinding levels like in a typical RPG or whatnot, you're like literally trying to seek out masters of the craft to like get their cultivation, cultivation methods. methods so <laughs> josh told me last night i was basically going goo goo for cultivation methods like oh this person is looks cool Does, do they have a cultivation method yes they do hell yeah i can power up my character now 
But uh, if they don't, it's like they're worthless to me. They don't have the cultivation method. Then what am I supposed to do with them? I'm being a little bit cheeky here, but <laughs> the, the, it's like the way you approach the game and like leveling up your character is like different that way. In that you're trying to seek out NPCs who are powerful and useful because you can they can you can use them to power you up versus just like grinding away against honey badgers, which I did a little bit of that, but. Um, but, but, that, just, but, that, but that, but that, but that, like loop of like you know seeking out new martial art techniques is very um, expressive of its setting, right? That's a, that's a very Chinese wuxia trope. Of it's very like uh, like a child. You can attest to this because you watch a lot of wuxia as well. It's like they're always very marsh martial arts focused of like trying to like perfect your form and like seeking out new more powerful forms to, like overcome adversity that like of tragedy that you experienced. Uh, early on in the film, the same thing in this game where you experience tragedy. Yeah, I see like game. all the tropes in there. Like even like they take certain story beats from like a renowned like uh, Wuxia author like Jin Yong, like the mm-hmm. beggar, where they gave him like some gifts and and he basically teach like, the, the protagonist some martial art. You know, it's just like there's a lot of tropes like the, yeah. You know, but I I just think it's very cool that like there like uh, there's an RPG this year is able to like like able to express that feeling of like like playing out a Chinese wuxia film and that's really powerful that's because it's so it's so novel in this space that like no one's really been able to really tackle it that well and the last one here that we haven't talked about yet is uh Labyrinth Galleria I think the uh, main thing about uh Galeria's uh design and immersion that really gets me is the uh, kind of uh we we touched on it a bit when talking about storytelling, how like there's that like shift uh about thirty, forty hours in where the game it it was it turns out that you were only in the tutorial. Uh one of the things in the game story that's kind of showcased in the gameplay is that it takes place across two neighboring worlds, one that's like astral aligned and one that's lunar aligned. And you actually can see that in the puppet units you can make for your parties. When you start up the second section of the game, you are starting from scratch. And literally every single character class that you could make before is slightly different. It's a different form. They might have different weapons they can equip. They might have slightly different stats, different skills. And not only that, but you also have a shift from... It's not just pre-made dungeons anymore now there's like a mi- there's dungeons that are a mix of pre-made as well as like procedurally generated floors and it's really fascinating how that kind of really ties in the fact that it's like no these are similar and you're gonna see characters that look strikingly close to characters in the other world but it's a different reality altogether and it really kind of like mar- like merges that like design and storytelling in a really interesting way. And again, one of those things where we talked about how with World of Horror, you can't separate the design from the art, and for Love McArthur, you can't separate the design from the storytelling in those ways. So we have five games left on design and immersion. We've got the recently talked about World of Horror and Labyrinth of Galleria, Remnant 2, which we kind of pit-stopped from the start. And then, of course, we've got Baldur's Gate 3 and Tears of the Kingdom. In the interest of being efficient with our time, is this going to be between Baldur's Gate 3 and Tears of the Kingdom for winner and runner-up? Yeah, I assume I so. so. I think so, too. Yeah, but yeah. But, but we gave it it's uh, a good 
a good call out to games like World of Horror and even like uh, Fate Simmer Remnant in terms of what they do do well in this space. So now we obvious. I still think maybe this is a, a more straightforward decision than some of the other categories. Picking a winner between Tears of the Kingdom and Baldur's Gate Three. Uh, do we want to just make this a vote? I can't. Re- I can't really decide between the two really because it's like, yeah, uh, I, I think they're both good for it. But then Baldur's Gate sort of has the design tying in to the writing and, like, the role-playing, like, uh, actually, you know, all-star role-playing aspects of, like, going to quest lines and things like that, where that's an aspect that Zelda doesn't have at all. Yeah, that, that, that's, the, that's, that's the thing. Like, there's there's RPG factor of, like, uh, yeah. of, of the Baldur's Gate 3. That... You can you can, you can can adopt a dog and adopt an owlbear cub, and then your reward for doing so is being able to pet both of them at the same time. Oh, Baldur's Gate 3 wins. Sorry. They got rid of the flink, so. There was a category between them on which game gives you the greater rewards on average. The owl bear and the dog alone would, would solidify it. Yeah, I just thought, like, uh, like, I I think, I think it, like, based on, like, design and immersion, like, between them, like, I think, personally, I would pick Zelda just a little bit over Baldur's Gate 3, but if you're factoring to, like, you know, the RPG aspect, the X factor of these, Baldur's Gate 3 is more of an RPG than Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, in the spirit of the game. Well, it's not what the category is about, but it's just that it, it's another factor of the design of, like, how that all combines together, and it's all... I'm just talking about, yeah, I'm just um, talking about, like, wider outlet thing, like, right? Because, and like, I don't know if RPGs. any other D&D video games have really made it feel more like D&D, where you can do all these alternate options and things. Because I think they're a bit more, like, older and stricter than this is. This is actually a very tough, tough vote because I feel like it's like this. This game design is taking the like the right direction, and this other one's taking the left direction. Both the pinnacle of these two extremes, and you're just like, huh? Would I go? So, with? I know we've said it already, but what a year, right? We have this left and right pinnacle going on. So. Yeah. So, if I would say Zelda over Baldur's Gate three, if it's it, it uh, seems like, just based on the people speaking, that it's leaning Zelda, but I don't want to just state that without being careful. Paige is voting for Baldur's Gate. I think I'm leaning Zelda just a smidge. Is anyone else leaning Baldur's Gate? Okay, uh, I have yeah. to lean Baldur's Gate. But... I have to lean Baldur's Gate by default because I haven't played Zelda yet. Sorry. Uh, and Paige, what were you saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like, I want Zelda to win that category, but that's also partly because I want it to win something, and like I do think this sounds really good, but yeah, I do have the other point about Baldur's Gate where I'm like, it's really hard for me to Choose. Yeah, it's, it's like a one A one B. I feel like this just comes to like favorism now. You know, yeah, it's just you like think it is. <laughs> it's just bias of being like favorism now instead of like which one's better. And one thing that I haven't said yet on this episode of the uh, this version of our game of the year cast, which I've said on previous ones, is that a lot of this just inherently is who shows up. Because if we had like Paul Scott Colin here, it could have flip the switch you know it just depends on who's available to participate uh but obviously we have to work with the imperfect nature of getting as many people's voices heard as possible based on the deliberations that we've had and the defenses that have been made it seems like we have a winner of Baldur's Gate 3 and a runner-up sorry I said that backwards my bad Mm. a winner of Tears of the Kingdom and a runner-up of Baldur's Gate 3 sounds right to me yep we have for best design and immersion. Wait, our start over that section. Game. I had to edit a bit out because someone clicked the YouTube video. Oh, 
And then our winner for best design and immersion for RPG site 2023 is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, followed very, very closely by Baldur's Gate 3. And then our last category before going into our main list, this is probably the most, uh, I guess, fun category. It's all fun. But this category is best music. So how we've done this in the past is we've got a list of soundtracks, music tracks for several games here. We do not have the time to select all of them, but hopefully we can select one and two highlights from every game. We'll discuss over them. We'll record them so everyone here in the chat can can hear these. And discuss, you know, best music is very, very subjective. It's, and it is, it's, you know, people depending on which games they played and haven't, whether they've experienced what event the, the track is backing or not backing. This one can be kind of contentious, but it's also a very fun one. So it's okay. We'll deal with it. We have a lot of entries here. Let me just go through the game titles first. For best music, we have Chained Echoes, Final Fantasy 16, Sea of Stars, Octopath Traveler 2, Genshin Impact, Lies of P, World of Horror, Fate Samurai Remnant, Fire Emblem Engage, Small Saga, and Lunacid. So a few new entries there. Um, we've got Lies of P and Lunacid making their first uh, first showing. Oh, Chained Echoes as well making its first showing. Again, in the running because it came out last December. Uh, so uh, where do we want to start with this? I'll just take... Uh, I'll take... Uh, okay, um... Do you have the lies of... So, first of all, for this category, uh, we'll be able to play some of the music and the recording so we can all listen to it together um, and the listeners can listen to it as well. Um, it might be a little bit uh, weird here and there making sure we get the uh, songs playing or not. But here's a track from Chained Echoes that someone started playing for some reason. Anyways, stop that. Um, <laughs> here, I'll take control. I'll take control of the sound. Okay, let me take control of this. Okay. So yeah, this is going to be a little bit of uh, us playing the music in the background so you guys can listen. But uh, we'll start. Do you want to start with Liza P then? Yeah, I want to start with Liza P because I wanted to not leave it out, but I think it's actually disqualified from winning. And for a kind of like a like a fundamental reason, I guess, or like a rule. Because some of the... So here, I'm, Liza I'm going to start the, playing one of the track while you're talking. Okay, did you do you have them lined up? Yeah. Hey, let me, let me get just make sure the volume is good here. Give me a second for me. Okay, so Liza P. Um, some of the rewards for winning, like or completing different quests, are these records you can get, and they'll play different songs. And some of these songs are really really good. They have different vocalists, different styles. Um, this track that you're listening to here, um, the vocalist's name, I have it written here, where is it? Uh, Korean singer Xiao Jiang, I apologize if I mispronounced that, but um, these tracks, uh, they don't, they might be disqualified because they're actually remixes from DJ Max, which is another game that, or game series that Neo is, owns, and so by like some technicality they may not exist but we'll just listen for a second here where does this track play um the rewards for quests that you need oh. so they, they actually play in your home base to this I see 
Are they like diegetic in terms of like they're actually playing like out of a speaker or something in your bass? Yes, they're uh, playing on a record in your bass. That's really cool, actually. Here, go to the other song. This is how do you pronounce this? Kixotic. Um. Yeah, that's the one we're listening to now. Well, go to the other song called Feel. I am updating my uh, copy of DJ Max uh, Respect V just to double check if they're actually in that game. Uh, this uh, it is. Well, this one is for sure. Uh, or it's I in one like of the games. You know, remixes from other games don't count. Then some of sixteen soundtrack. Oh. I like this one. Uh, let's just listen to it. This is the same vocalist. Yeah. It's very evocative. Right. Like, I've not played this game, but when you say, what do you think the Lies of Peace soundtrack is, like, I probably would not have guessed this. Well, does this play at any other part of the game besides just like as a reward for a quest? No, that's the thing. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's so kind of, so kind of not, not in the running, but you wanted to shout it out, which is very, yeah. which is valid. All right. Anyways, those are Liza P tracks. There's more tracks that play like during the game that are also very good, but I think just sort of by like a technicality point and um, just kind of how they're played in the game and they are remixes. A lot of the tracks from DJ Max. Uh, it's just I don't think it'd feel right if these won. So that seems fair, yeah. All right, uh, we'll go ahead then to back to the top to uh, Chained Echoes. So Chained Echoes came out last December, and when I was thinking of tracks to play, this is one I had actually forgotten to list that someone put on our little note sheet here that I was playing before the podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This was uh, this is Roland Field, which is one of the very first field areas in the game, and it's just very evocative of this like era of JRPG. It almost feels like nostalgic, even though this game came out less than a year ago. This is, I think, like the first open world area when you first leave the city. Soundtrack yeah, composer is Eddie Mariana Grove. I won't have all the composers, but if I do have it, I'll make sure to shout them out. So one thing about Chained Echo's soundtrack, which kind of lies into a strength or maybe even a weakness of the game itself, is that the inspirations to a lot of the points in the game, including the music, are sometimes obvious, maybe maybe even too obvious. This track sounds a lot like Xenoblade to me. Which is probably original. Me too. Um, yeah. that's, our, that's, what, that's what James called out having not played this. He's like, this sounds like Xenoblade. Uh, there are other tracks that sound like tracks from like Final Fantasy VIII. There's a very clear inspiration from Final Fantasy VIII and a lot of other games throughout the game, um, throughout Chain Echoes. And uh, I think the music is really well done. Uh, and there are some tracks I think like if you recognize it, you recognize it. But I think they stand well on their own as well in terms of, like, emulating different styles? Honestly, being able to emulate so many different styles, like, well is... I'd argue that's, like, more impre- like more impressive on its own. I'll go and just click one more. I'm going to go ahead and just click Sky Armor Battle. It's just going to have to do that here. 
So Chain Deck was just like a battle system where you play as basically mobile suits. We got a feel for Chain Echoes, and it sounds like this one's going to stay on the list for a bit. The next game that I have on the that list... Last, that last bit there sounded like it was straight out of uh, Get Over the Barrier from Trophy from Zero. <laughs> so this next one, I was trying to come up with songs for, uh, and this is Final Fantasy 16. And correct me if I'm wrong, did this one win Best Music at the Game Awards? Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. it did. Okay, and but I was I was trying to find tracks for this game, and I uh, I struggled a little bit. It has a, a couple key iconic iconic tracks, but I struggled to find ones that like really were memorable to me. Uh, editor's note here: uh, in post, we're gonna edit out any ads that might pop through here. But as I was clicking Final Fantasy 16 soundtrack, I was having a very difficult time finding any that don't have ad plays. So for the for the for the people in the live recording here, uh, I'm gonna do "Find the Flame." This is kind of like the the trailer music. You don't even put my favorite song in there. Oh, if you've got one, uh, give me a link. I'll throw it in. Ah, uh, it's a way. <laughs> it's, it's the boss one. So the scene here, play this plays in a few a few places, I think. But the key one is when he is. Uh, Really taking control of the uh, the E3 icon, and he's fighting like his shadow. Um, hence the title, "Find the Flame." And this is probably like the single most narratively impactful moment of the game for me, where Clive is saying, "Like you are not E3, I am," and it's it's very you know energetic, pumps you up, epic, whatever whatever verb you want to use. The Sail Forbidden Seas is the one I think that I think not. I think that's the one with Garuda. Let me see if I can find that one and get it in the link here. It basically plays in all the encounters where you're fighting... For the, there's a few encounters it plays in, in addition to this, but it plays pretty much every time you fight a dominant when they're not fully primed, basically. Alright, let me see if I can play that. Oh, so, yes. The first time it plays is when you fight Garuda. Um, but it also plays when you fight uh, uh, when you fight uh, Hugo. Uh, Hugo, yeah. In the first, in the first time when he doesn't turn into Titan completely. Oh yeah, that was a really good fight. Something very personal, despite the, the epic sweep of this particular song, that, that I think reflects that not fully primed uh, sort of aspect. I think one aspect I, just, I like about the fights are they're more brutal at the beginning, but they seem less kind of brutal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I yeah. think the, the the reason this song stands out, this this track stands out to me is, I actually think it's one of the best boss themes uh, in Final Fantasy. To be honest, um, yeah, and I think it 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 it, it takes real, real something, but. Pumping with Final Fantasy boss themes for something to stand out against Umatsu's work and Tenryu's work, and especially coming off the bat of 15, which is, I think, Shimomura's finest work, and she's been so amazing. But this melody right here. 
that melody is still stuck in my head, you know, uh, six months after I played the game. So, um, the thing I will say about this soundtrack, I find it deeply frustrating that there's so little live orchestration in this game. There's so little live music. So, what you're listening to now, pretty much everything other than the choir is not a real instrument. It isn't. Um, this is how Soken has worked, generally speaking. Um, I sort of was asking some people who I know who worked on and around the game about this, and uh, the impression that I get is basically that Soken quite likes to uh, compose late. Um, and obviously, if you're composing, he likes to compose against near final game, I guess. Um, obviously, he was composing this game also under pretty difficult, you know, a lot was going on for him personally at the time. And this has been well documented um, with his illness and stuff. But even then, even when he was well, he apparently likes to compose quite late. And so that means on the production timeline of the game, you don't necessarily have the time to get in a live orchestra, stuff like that. So when you compare it to Final Fantasy XV, for instance, a hell of a lot of the music in XV is live. It's played by real human hands um, on a real instrument and recorded. Uh, the same is true for 13. 16 takes a bit of a different tack. There's a lot of sim. And for me, that draws it back where I love a lot of the composition. I love a lot of Soken's work. Um, and the, the, the composing he's done. I don't necessarily love the production where I, especially when you stand this side by side with 50 or 7 remake for that matter, there's just a huge lack of live. Uh, of live music and I think the mileage on this will vary for a lot of people which I think is why this game has managed to sweep quite a lot of music related awards um, you know I think a lot of people can't hear it I'm just one of those people where um, you know I did uh, a lot of music production training and stuff when I was younger and I can spot a sim at 60 paces sort mm-hmm. of thing <laughs> a friend who um I was I was showing off some some of Soken's work in 16, and uh, kind of a similar story. Um, the first thing that he replied with after listening to the uh, I don't remember what to be honest uh, was there's a lot of synth going on there. That's weird. Um, mm-hmm. You know, before we got into anything else, put it this way: more live musicians work on. You can check this in the credits of the games, and this was one of the things that I I sort of had a bit of a peek after finishing 16. There was more live musicians playing on Stranger of Paradise than there was on 16. So on a weird little spin-off that had a fraction of the budget, we had more live musicians. So to some degree, it's not like it's a budget thing. It's not like they couldn't afford, um, you know, to, to, to get the musicians in because they absolutely could. It was clearly a choice on Soakin's part in relation to how he wanted to compose, when he wanted to compose, the work he wanted to do. So I totally respect that. Uh, I, don't love the result and I feel like for me it drags the soundtrack down even though I really really do like a lot of the soundtrack and obviously there's the traps in the game that are really stand out that you couldn't do with live musicians anyway the titan theme has a load of you know uh, techno sort of stuff going on in it that is quite deliberately synth but I think the funny thing is they sort of have this dark fantasy game where a lot of the music is more dark fantasy than even past final fantasy games and yet, um, they, you know, it's, it's, it's fake. 
And, you know, 15 years ago, that would have been the norm. Very little was live on Final Fantasy X. A little bit more was live on Final Fantasy XII. You know, obviously, in One Winged Angel, the only thing that was live was the, was the, oh, was the vocals. Um, <laughs> similar to the track we just heard, right? Um, obviously, simps have come on a long way, and you can, it is more difficult to distinguish them, but I do think there is a, there's a heart and a there's soul. opportunity. Yeah. To real playing. Uh, it's an yeah. opportunity in lots of senses. It's like, I don't know if you remember in the run up to Final Fantasy VI, uh, 15th launch, but they held that, lovely uh orchestra concert in london um and you know so they performed all the music from the game live well not all but they performed like an hour an hour and 20 minutes of music from the game live and part of the reason they could do that is obviously the orchestration already existed but a lot of tracks from the game a wide range of music from the game because they had you know done the orchestration as part of the production process whereas for 16 they did have live performance, but it was all of one song, and I imagine that is probably, in fact, it was this song, and I imagine that is probably because that was likely the only one that they had full orchestration for, and they had it done specifically so they could use that music at a concert, in a trailer, whatever, whatever. Um, because uh, it's a weird thing, people might think it's cheap, but um, I've had many conversations with uh, Arnie Roth, who runs Distant Worlds about this, like getting orchestrated stuff is getting stuff orchestrated is really expensive hideously expensive so if you wonder why like Distant Worlds the Final Fantasy concert here can only add like usually three or four songs a year it's because it's drastically expensive to get stuff orchestrated um and maybe maybe that's why Sony's not doing it but yeah I'm slightly bummed out about it I really look forward to the 16 orchestra album which I think is inevitable because so people have done it for 14 done a couple of them for 14 um, but yeah like this Sid's theme right or the, the hideaway theme it's a bit of both a lovely classic feeling Final Fantasy track and this doesn't suffer as much because it's not really reliant on that orchestra so I think this is where the soundtrack sort of at its best but where I think tracks begin to show is when you get the big big bombastic track uh, for the icon battles and stuff like that and the boss battles where I think when, she, when you've got it blaring and you've got the live chanting over it as well I think the simp shows anyway that's my rant right, so it sounds like um, in the running for now or should we say we don't think it's going to be top two I think it's in the run- we'll put it this way I, I would not put it to win but I could see it because of what I just said but I could see it as a runner-up also because of what, because of what I've just said. Because I think if this had, you know, beautiful live, uh, performances, I would be fighting tooth and nail for it to win. So, you know. I, obviously it's all subjective, but, and I do like appreciate live music when it's done well, but I don't necessarily think that a game not having live music should be such a demerit, to be honest. Because, like, live music itself is a very big limitation what, for what sorts of sounds you can make. So, yes, but this is, yes, but this is the thing. You listen to the track we're listening to now. Extremely fake brass. Stuff like that. You know, extremely, extremely, extremely fake brass action. And my issue Oh, yeah, with this, is, would be, this would what, be 100% better if it was live, yeah. What they are doing here is this dark fantasy music 
that could absolutely be performed by an orchestra. And what I'm saying is, what percentage of the Final Fantasy 16 soundtrack is music like this? And it's like 80%. So what I'm saying okay, is, 80% you, of the soundtrack you. would have been better had it been performed live. Had it been, you know... Uh, uh, and sometimes it's not even performing live. Sometimes it's just... You'd be amazed, like, Final Fantasy VII Remake is, is exceptionally good at this. Octopath Traveler is especially good at this. You can have tracks that are 90% sim, and you just have that one live soloist, and they bring it out. And... That one live solo is transformed back, and just for me, it's it's for me. Sixteen music sounds like something that Final Fantasy music has never sounded before. In my in, in, in my opinion, sounds cheap. Production sounds cheap. The the, the composition is as good. I think Sokin is a is a perfectly um, valid you know successor to the throne from. Uematsu from uh, Shimomura from Karazu from some well, of the lesser known people that we don't talk about like Gimi Tanioka and, and I Ichimoto gonna, I was gonna actually say that I I'm more of a Mizuta guy but that's neither here nor there but um, you mentioned Octopath Traveler 2 and I think that's for me that's my soundtrack of the year and I'm not even sure if the if the uh, songs that we have on the uh, list are what I would have chosen just because I don't think there's a single bad song in that entire soundtrack I, I I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna play the, I'm gonna play the best song of the year right now so you guys know <laughs> alright continue I was gonna say I think the Octopath soundtrack is vastly superior to, to the FF16 soundtrack I, I feel that it's like it's just kind of like generic so it's like you could hear this in Final Fantasy XIV really often, and it's not even like it. I feel it pales in comparison to the fourteen tracks. So that's just, just, just to finish the just to finish the the, the sixteen ports on my part. I finish them, but you know the thing, the thing for me is I was really excited as someone who has fallen off fourteen at this stage. Um, really, I, I've got to be honest. I I played thousands of hours of 11 I sort of did my time I played a lot of 1.0 and then a bit of 2.0 and a bit of the first few expansions and then I pieced out I'm too old for this shit now <laughs> it's hard to play MMOs uh, with a family and stuff but um, that said I continued to religiously listen to the soundtracks and when it was announced who was doing 16 it was clear that Sokin was going to be the, the composer I was really excited because I thought it was going to be a chance to hear Sokin sort of with the, the, the freedom and the time and the money that comes with doing a big single player game, i.e., I, basically, I was always assuming that the 14 tracks sounded the way they did in terms of the synths used and stuff like that because he was composing music quite quickly because it was for an MMO and he was having to compose music for patches and you're not going to be able to book out orchestras on the regular. Um, and the disappointment is that Actually, it was clearly just the way he likes to work. And so I didn't get my wish because he basically, I compositionally, he does a lot different to what he did in 14. I think that's really good. And I think he does a great job of sort of channeling that Western fantasy sort of vibe. However, um, the production is exactly the same as on 14. And that was, that was the disappointment. But I do also hold my hands up while, so it, it's weird. It's one of my favorite soundtracks of the year, but I wouldn't call it the best just on principle in a way but also i i hold my hands up that i am a music nerd and perhaps a bit of a music snob um but the flip side is you know i went to i went to france to 
watch the um watch the recording of of one of the uh of one of the Final Fantasy fifteen DLC um uh soundtracks and I cried my eyes out watching that. So you know Uh, programming note: If you get ads in the recording, it's because of the YouTube ads. Sorry yeah. about that. And 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 it's it's only certain. It's Final Fantasy and it's Sea of Stars and a lot of other ones. People don't upload with ads. And yeah, Discord, Nitro, YouTube Premium don't help. Here we go. This is a way. Might be that might be Square. You know, they did a copyright claim and put an ad in front of a video that oh, someone yeah. else uploaded. But anyway, I digress. I actually agree. Um, my favorite soundtrack of the year is Octopath Traveler 2. All I will really say about that one, because I've spoken loads on this award already, is just to say, um, when I heard the opening theme of that game, it made me emotional. It sort of, and it made me emotional because in a weird way, it sort of um, evoked an era and a memory just through the tone and the timbre of the music alone. It, it, as In the same way the game with its 2D, HD 2D art style evokes the Super Nintendo era, that music sounds like compositionally and the, the way it's been produced even though it's a lot of uh, either very realistic synth or, uh, or actual live music it sounds how you remember the SNES sound ship sounding in a weird way <laughs> yeah right, I Brian, play an Octopath track uh, which one? Well, one of them um, I played the title theme the title theme it's, uh, I don't think it's I, have, uh, here. I don't think we have that one. Here, here's the, here's the Agony of the Dancer. I'll see if I find the title theme. Oh, so good. There's not a single bad song in this game. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have the same exact feeling as Alex. You know, it's like when I boot up, it, it kind of reminds me of Era, and I would not skip the opening. You know, I would just kind of make sure I hear that theme before I hit the new game or or the continue button on the screen. And the thing is, is Octopath Traveler 2, the thing that it does really well, and the first game did this too, um, is that each character will have its own instrumentation, and there's like, this sounds very nerdy, but it has like a light motif for the character, where this is Agnia's theme, and then, we already talked about her final boss, it's like a concert stage, where they just take this and they run with it, so it goes from this to this. Rack it up to 11. You have to let this one play for a bit. Yeah. Where all the brass, where all the, like the high brass, heavy brass comes in. Soundtrack that makes you say holy shit sometimes. Like boss starts and you go, fuck man. The final boss theme, both the first half and the second half, is just incredible. Especially with the way it like like lands alongside with the gameplay. It's just man. Man. And they and they modify it based on the traveler. So here is um here is the uh Ochet. Where spoiler for the story, you fight the familiar that you don't pick in the in the opening. So there's there's that emotional tie to it. You think that's it so this player. is Ochet's final boss for her story. Yeah. 
And it's like bittersweet. It's somber. It's poignant because it's not someone. It's someone that you have to fight, but you don't want to. And then compare that to Hikari, who is someone that you absolutely want to fight because he's a douche. Starts the same, but then it feels completely different after the first like verse. in a party scene too. And then here, since you brought it up earlier, the main theme that Chow, uh, I believe this is it. Let's see. We're trying our best. This, this podcast brought to you by Suicide Squad, apparently. <laughs> Damn, I hate Suicide Squad. <laughs> oh, so we get different ads then. Yeah, oh, so that's what I'm getting. getting. It works even better in gameplay when you can just switch to nighttime immediately to hear the slower version. Yeah, I, 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 that's one of like, the strengths of the uh, OST as well because of that uh, the time, uh, daytime change to nighttime. Like, you can like, hear like the transition from uh, the tracks from their daytime to nighttime theme and see how fluidly that all comes together. Yeah, it works out I, so good. I used to like flip back and forth to like make this weird. Hybrid <laughs> if you buy the official soundtrack, it actually starts with the with the lady humming first, then it switches oh. to this upbeat version. Nice. So seems like Octopath Traveler Two is definitely going to be a uh, strong one to defeat. We'll earmark that. Uh, play the Particio theme for a little bit. You played it a little bit before, but we kind of got sidetracked. Well, oh, okay. Want to get a better listen okay. at it? Because each character has like their theme that plays like in their cutscenes. So a little less of the, uh, little less of like the combat stuff, but just like each character's, like you mentioned before, the instrumentation. And Particio is very uh, saxophone. Is his instrument? Do you hear this theme? You know you're gonna get fucked by his ideals. God, <laughs> they're cool. Uh, yeah, really big props to Yasunori Nishi. back and close this. Incredible. I'm letting it play because right here is the server part. As much as I would like to let that keep playing, we have other songs to It reminds me of like late 80s, early 90s, like movies in, in the US, and but in like a good way. I couldn't even tell you that I have any like major favorite films from back then, but like that 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 exact part, that melody is just like 
feel good cheer mix oh no ideal like what's just brought up it does feel like a montage for like the ending of like a soap opera from the late 80s or something but yeah, exactly. I say that with no judgment yeah all right what do we want to move to next uh let someone else speak who hasn't taken the wheel yet uh, let's do, do Snars. I haven't heard any of okay. the tracks in there, so someone help me def- defend this. Okay, so here's my, here's, I think, my favorite track of the game, Path of Ascension. This is like a dungeon track. Yeah. What's the composer's name for this? Give them credit. Uh, they they got they got Mitsuda to do, do some guest tracks, but nothing. Those are primarily is Eric Brown. Eric Brown, he's in it. You have to let this one get to the bridge. Stars just its visual and audio identity. It, when I remember when I played it for the first time, I was like, "This feels like did I play this before?" When I was that was that was, that was basically that uh, Paul's review. Like this game just gets the feel perfect or very very good. All right, here is a very popular track. From what I can tell from YouTube views, it's the most popular track, which means it probably has an ad on it. There's one part of the game, I believe, where you're in like a, mu- a more futuristic setting, and then they mess with the uh, instrumentation of the song a little bit to make it fit. Totally fun. But again, yeah, it's really nostalgic. It really feels like it belongs in the era that it's that it's trying to evoke from. And I'll do this one because it's not a combat track, it's more of a character track. This is Dance of a Thousand Suns. This is basically Garl's track? Yeah, basically. How does that give you a good feel for uh, these cars? Yeah, it kind of captures like those 16-bit vibes, but it's not going to be my winner, though. I like the 16-bit vibes going on here. Yeah. Oh, it's too soon. I'm sorry. That was a joke. <laughs> Alrighty, what else do we want to go to? Uh, get some chip tune in here. Well, let's try the Fate Revenant one. Okay, 
Uh, Fate Samurai Remnant. Uh, I saw someone else had put this, had nominate not had Liba, had nominated this game, but then they had like a couple tracks listed, but they actually didn't list the track that I wanted to list, which is uh, Distant Bonds. Which, if you played the game, this is the track that plays when you face off against Miyamoto Musashi, and that's like a critical moment in the game, like probably the most critical moment in the game. So, this is a battle track. This sounds like those oriental stages in like Soul Calibur or something. So, kind of the backing of this track is this character that you're facing off against at this point is your master, basically someone you've never beaten, never had a hope of beating. So this is basically the student surpassing the master point of the game. So it's got that all that feel encompassed into it. So. I really think more games should do the slow backing track to a high energy moment. That juxtaposition just has never failed. I won't say never failed. Works really well. well and when you're playing a game, you know, you're not like um, sure, a big fight, you're usually hearing a lot of the sound effects. Um, so having mm -hmm. something a bit more subtle works because you can usually hear it a bit better. Also, one of the things I thought with the CSR's boss theme, I could usually make it out even despite doing a bunch of real-time actions. Having this play every day is a good day. I really like this theme because it's, like, it's kind of like it's your, kind of your standard calm theme and as you're exploring new places. Um, every day game, is a good day. Yeah, it's, it's a very bubbly but like very relaxing, comfort comfortable um, song that like you just feel at ease, at peace, and it really drives home that point that like this is kind of the, the peace that you're trying to protect. Um, this this atmosphere of people going about their day wistfully as you're just kind of traveling around town seeing all the sights you know as Saber for the first time is like seeing this era of Japan it's like sparkles in his eyes going Iori come over here you know check this shit out um, I, I just love like the, the the instrumentation identity that they instill in this game a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of flutes, a lot of uh, wind instruments, yeah. um, a lot of uh, instrumentation on the strings to accompany that. And, like, they find really, really creative compositions to just back, like, the, the sound design of this game. Uh, I really like it for that. This one's really good. Like, I could see listening to this one, like, at work as, like, focus music. And a, and a nice, really uh, nice uh, little nod because the 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 person who did the character designs for this also did the the art for the an arc for Fate Go, like the manga adaptation for an arc in Fate Go was sort of this Edo Japan Go play Bloodwind Samurai Remnant version. Hmm. One second. So this is actually like a remix of uh, of one of those uh, uh, of a Fate Go theme. Uh, uh, where uh, Musashi first appeared in, so there's like a really nice like, like nod to like uh, fans who like who dabbled with Fate, uh, a, a, another Fate property, and seeing Musashi there because Musashi comes from Fate. So there's like a really powerful remix. It's that that plays uh, whenever you take control of Miyamoto Musashi uh, in the game. It's, uh, it's a beautiful remix uh, of her track. I've not. I don't have. 
the history of Fate or like the nostalgia for the original version, but this this slaps. Once again, like the instrumentation identity, like it's got the wood flutes, yeah, or whatever you call those, on top of the guitar. But I, for me, I would keep it on this list because if there's anything like like an aspect of uh, Fate Summer Remnant that it does very very well, it's its own Steam for sure. Yeah, I really like that. All right, let's change tact and go to uh, World of Horror, which is going to be more like chiptune kind of focus. I think I preloaded some in here. Go drop it yeah, shop. Shop. So the incredible thing about this game is the uh, it's chiptune uh, listing is it, 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 it's pretty varied despite having this horror. Um, back into it. As you can hear, like, at certain points of the game, when you, uh, go visit locales, like, uh, and visit the shop, um, this tune will play, and the, and the, sh- and the shop owner for one of these shops is a dog. So you can go buy, like, a shovel Cigarette. from a dog, buy cigarettes from a dog, and just chill it out, just vibe it out, it's like, hey, you need anything? It doesn't speak, it's just, like, just sitting there over the counter. Um, you know, it's like, sure, uh... <laughs> You know, I do have a little bit of uh, limited amount of funds, and, and, and what I really like about this OST um, is just it can uh, hit this like energetic, like urban j- Japanese like atmosphere to it. So, but it can like it can like flip on a dime in a very versatile manner. So, like go uh, go uh, play School Mystery. This is one of the very first tracks you hear in the game, and you'll and you'll recognize right recognize this right away, Ryan. Like exploring the school uh, for the school, yeah. the, the scissor later lady mystery. I don't it know. Like, is uh, that melodic while also being very uneasy at the same time? Yeah, and it's not something like it's not, like the sound design is not there to like scare you. It's like it's like as you mentioned earlier, Brian. It's like it's that feeling of dread as you're you don't know what's behind like the next corner. What kind of like monstrosity you might encounter? Not to jump scare you, but you're just like you're just, like you encounter it. It fades to a black screen as it describes what you encountered, and then into the battle screen. And then you're just like it's you just see this monster in front of you, like, oozing uh, as mm-hmm. it's like you know you're de- doing this combat encounter with it. Might and sound then, weird, but that first track kind of made me nostalgic for Pokemon TCG on the Game Boy. I don't... <laughs> I can't explain why, but it just did. Well, it's a similar, like, sound font or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and just kind of quirky a little. Yeah, so I just I just think it's like it's a, it's a really phenomenal um, OST that accompanies the, this little game. Um, I'm not sure if it, like, it'll, it'll stand toe-to-toe with like some of the heavy hitters here. I just wanted to call attention, like, this is such a really cool OST to come out of uh, this type of game. It reminds me of, like, what Harry Cavanaugh did with, like, VVVV, or whatever it is, this game with all the spikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spikes. Yeah, this reminds me of, like, Game Boy, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, exactly.
Did anyone ever, has anyone, anyone ever decided how VVVVV is supposed to be pronounced? Okay. Well, you know, you know me, Adam. It's just, yeah. All right, let's go to let's go to Small Saga. So these uh, I didn't see these on the doc. They must have been late editions. But uh, we talked about Small Saga, of course, a lot with the art, and I'm interested to see what the music sounds like. Uh, yeah, I, I which of these tracks should I hit first? A good one is um, Deep Sea Denizen. I think like uh, there, there's a very like there's a nice versatility to this OST. So yeah. it is actually uh, like based off like uh, a character theme of um, I forgot the name of the the was it the Scottish? Bruce? Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, like that, that. Go for it. I bought the soundtrack as soon as it released on Steam because it's just got that good variety of. You know, it's gone for the fantasy theme, but we're including bagpipes. We're including his flute because we've got a bard character, so we're making that part of it, but then we're still doing some, like, rocky tracks or. Yeah, so there's like, there's like an alternate, like, more amped up theme of that uh, character's uh, theme. Uh, because, like, the, the, the boss that you encounter. As an introduction to this character is a kraken because you're going through this like sewer system um, as a, to, to find an alternate path into like the a town, an early town that you visit. Um, so it's, it's very I added fun. The, um, the regular battle track to the bottom of it when I saw it because I was like, oh, gee, forget that one for. But there's like there's 83 songs in the soundtrack because most of them are about a minute long. Yeah, um, and, and think about it, it's 83 tracks for like a game that's barely six and a half hours. Yeah. There's a lot of unique themes in this game for every for a lot of shit. Well, the, go to Showdown of Circus Minimus, and this is like the track that plays when you're at that toy town uh, getting Vern back, and it's on top of, on top of the cars. Pause and say, here we go. Well, basically, setting the stage is like as you're trying to get your friend back, there's like this uh, the, in the middle of this gladiator arena. He finally, uh, like, he's kind of lost his will to fight, and then, like, as seeing his friend in trouble, he regains the will to fight, and then you're up against like this like kind of like competitive like last competitor in the gladiator arena, and like you're trying to escape because you know this person's trouble, but then like so you kind of like there's a like there's an ongoing car and like you just get into the car and let's go, and then so you're just making laps around this gladiator arena on this car uh, and this uh, and this uh, competitor chasing you, and so you're so you have this uh, duel. Good burn in this uh, character on top of like moving cars around this gladiator arena. So it's very fast, like you know, very fast paced. Like the the background is always moving, uh, you know, as the crowd is cheering on. And then the the, the last one that I play is uh, Manus Domini, and that's the 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 OST that plays during that like really dreadful like fight with the god that I uh, um, described earlier. It's like basically a, a pair of human hands. Um, and then this is the, the OST that plays for that. It's re remarkable at that moment. Definitely has the like the the right organ instrumentation. Yeah. But I, I think that the, the strength of the small saga OST is like, despite being just like a small little indie game, it has such a flexible 
buried OST. Yeah. And then it, also, it it ties into what instruments are sort of like around too, because like some of it's Bruce, and then like one of the some of the areas you go into have other things. So it's quite varied and also just really, really, really good. All right, looking on the list, we still have a couple more to go before we have to make some decisions. Uh, we have a handful of uh, entries. I won't be able to play all of these from Fire Emblem Engage. Mm-hmm. So I'll be honest, uh, I go ahead. Fire Emblem uh, like Engage's like uh, OST is actually pretty solid. It, it, it is a celebration title, like that. That's how I put the Fire Emblem theme. You can uh, pull out the Fire Emblem theme. Everyone remembers how the Fire Emblem theme normally sounds, but mm-hmm. this one is is very much. Well, this um, is the theme that they sung in uh, Tokyo Mirage sessions, right? That was, yes. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 this one, you can feel like that this is a, a celebration of how many years of Fire Emblem, um, you know, going into Engage and really much paying out, like, you know, thinking back on, like, your memories with Fire Emblem. So it, it, it like it is kind of like the like the opener of the of the game to like celebrate that and you know introduce it as a celebration you know, for the series. Oh, I recognize this song from a Dragalia Lost event. <laughs> <laughs> Only with oh. Dalco singing it. Fire <laughs> But it's it's, it's, a, it's a nice like. Yeah, this is one I added because it's like when you you just start an encounter with one of the four hounds, which you fight quite a few times in this game, and I was just like, whoa, what is that in comparison to like the rest of the soundtrack? And it's just, it's like one of the two tracks that stuck out in my head. Um, the other one I didn't put down, but I think, to me, I think like part of the final boss scene kind of sounds like a Splatoon song. <laughs> like a Splatoon one time. Well, I was expecting to hear Splatoon mentioned in this podcast. I think perhaps like this sounds like a final one to play for it as a contemplative princess. Like, in my opinion, I don't think there's any bad modern Fire Emblem soundtracks out there. Like for me, a lot of these themes, a lot of these, the, the game stuck out when I when I played it because like it's it's kind of the th- like the themes are like what you what you listen to as you're like trying to think of like okay how do I get out of this really really weird bad spot. <laughs> I remember the battle music and the uh, combat music that kind of accompanies it in like the desert country is really nice. Was that this one? No, yeah, those are gross. No, I don't it may not be this one exactly, but it's similar in this thing. And Fire Emblem Engage also does that thing where when you're on a map, there's like a map theme, and then like you go into battle and it goes into like the it smoothly goes into like the active version of the map theme while you're in battle, then it like goes back. So there's some kind of neat transitions too between like combat and non-combat on a map. Assuming you have animations on, of course. Mm. Like a little cherry woo in the background. <laughs> Alright, here's one that I have no idea what to expect here. We got a couple entries from 
game that hasn't shown up on the podcast yet, really, uh, Lunacid. So did James add these? Yeah, that would be me. Yeah, which one should I play first? Oh, we're still on fire. Uh, let, let me take a look at the ones I listed and which one would I recommend. Um, how about uh, Dead Department and then Washed Away? Gotcha. Here's Dead Department. So Lunacid is like a dungeon crawler, uh, King's Guild-like, right? We haven't really introduced it before now. Yeah. Well, basically, uh, the, yeah, the I, RPG, but, yeah, uh, you know, it, it definitely inspired by Kingsfield. Yeah, I kind of picked it up uh, really, really late into the year, so. This seems really chill. I like this a lot. Again, I can see this like being you to like add some focus music. You put this on the back while you like write your report or whatever. baseline here. Mm-hmm. Alright, I'm going to go over and switch to uh, Wash It wait. Away. Uh, sorry, uh, wait. Sorry. Wait. I can wait. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad I waited. Face goes hard. All right, now I'm going to go over the last way. Yeah, this is the one I added to the list because I saw um, the game was there and I'm like, why is this not in it? Because. My husband's been playing it, and I often have like relaxing Nintendo girl game music compilations on to try and get the baby to nap. And I hadn't actually realized it was paused because this was playing, in, like, he's playing on the computer. So I just thought it was part of the just that very chill music. Yeah, like the overall vibe for Lunacid is uh, like a lucid dream, and the soundtrack definitely kind of uh, matches up with that vibe, I feel like. Yeah, like, I was actually going to say, like, having not played the game or really watched a lot of it, I was introduced to it when we talked about it on the podcast. I'm like, like, hot tub. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> like, sauna music. Hot music. Put that, that, that back on the cover. Yeah. And honestly, and honestly, maybe play a little bit of the other one I posted, just because it's a little bit of a different uh, type of song that uh, I feel like gives a better example of the kind of range... That the soundtrack goes for. Okay. So this is a full arrangement of the hub theme, and it's like randomized whether or not the two characters in the hub that have like a flute and uh, another instrument will actually add to it. So it's like rarer that the full arrangement will play, but this is what it is. It's where music interlinks with design and immersion. 
Alright, uh, last but not least, it looks like I'm, uh, I'm guessing Chao, but maybe not, uh, put on some tracks from Genshin Impact's Fontaine update. Um, I actually like the soundtrack a lot. The thing is that, uh, one of the things that happened with the soundtrack is that, you know, they put it all out, new region, and then they later on said that their main composer has left before this started so that people wouldn't have like this bias saying, oh, the soundtrack sucks now because the main composer's gone. Or, you know, stuff like you know, that. Alright, so I'm gonna go ahead and play Fontaine. I, I'm guessing this is a city track. I just I'm getting an ad. Same as one. Bye next year. Here we go. Earlier in the year, Square Enix wouldn't even leave Octopath Traveler True tracks up anywhere, so we'll take what we get. I like this track. It's cool. Classic. It, it feels like a, it's like it feels like a, a track that plays like in one of those like like uh, mid nineties uh, films that like a, ca- a child getting lost in the city. I'm thinking like Disney movie. Yeah. It's the kind of Disney movies. <laughs> there was one. Play the battle theme. I hear that. Oh, here's another ad. Nice ad. Apologies for ad. We'll clean up what we can, but yeah. We've heard a little bit of everything, I believe, and now we got to make some decisions. So, um, obviously all of these are great. That's why we spent the time to click through more songs than I anticipated. But it seemed like some of the kind of front runners, and this is my interpretation, so I encourage other people to speak up if they felt otherwise. Uh, it seemed like they were Octopath Traveler 2. Fate Samurai Remnant had a really strong showing. I think Small Saga had a really strong showing. Those were the three, to me, that really kind of stood out. I, I don't I know like if uh, other people really I like took that. Yeah. Else. <laughs> I like I... That Small Saga clears. <laughs> My, I think the, the, the thing for me is... Uh, Looking, and it's, and it's impossible to get the, the feel for this with just a few small, uh, small samplers of a soundtrack. Uh, the thing that makes Octopath's OST so 
excellent to me is that the entire thing is just so cohesive. You, you can like, it's very, it's a very easy soundtrack to listen to in one go. And it's like, it's, it's very, there's different sorts of songs and whatnot, but it's like one cohesive product. I don't, I don't know if I'm getting across. Uh, well it, it really, it really strongly adheres to character motifs. Exactly, yeah. In a way that really feels rewarding. This is just a, this is a sea battle song that I'm just playing here to have a backing track. Kind of in the boat to to put Octopath as the winner. But the hardest part is finding the runner up. What would the runner up well, be? Would, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of been the theme of the day. Is like <laughs> deciding who who deserves runner up. I just want to add real quick the fact that Octopath Traveler 2 has a sea battle theme the way that it does in and of itself. Like, I kind of forgot that. Not uh, to mention the uh, the strong uh, random encounter theme, too. I'm going to put, put this out there. Octopath 2 takes it. Fate Samurai Runner. I can agree to that. I yeah, that. I played both those games and I agree. I feel bad because that's Small Saga being in third place twice, but that's yep. a really good showing for Small Saga, though. For it's being tough, kind of a, a single, a single person tough. project that released later in the year. Yeah, we'll give it. A, we'll give it a shout out that we can right here, so it won't, it won't show up uh, explicitly on the like the results. But Small Saga is fighting tooth and nail with some of these other bigger. I entries. kind of have sure. a. Uh, I have a question born out of ignorance here. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, Go ahead. So no one nominated any track from Tales to Azure, from Azure, which whatever one, or Reverie. Is it because people played those like years ago? Yeah, kind of it. And I don't really <laughs> like the direction of the soundtracks for the Trails games since uh, Singa became a staple. That's for Fair. me. Yeah, I'm, I don't. I don't. Uh, Azure has some nice tracks, obviously, but Reverie. I, I don't really like many of Reverie's tracks. There's some nice tracks there, but. As an overall like audio identity, it's kind of all over the place. Okay, fair enough. Singa has some very high high tracks and some very low low tracks. So, Adam, was your Nayuda nominee? Uh, oh fine. fuck! <laughs> I oh man, Nayuda's probably one of my favorite Falcom OSTs, and that is a really really good like uh, soundtrack. Shit. Yeah, I think <laughs> the problem was it's just an uh, old release, and now we're not thinking it's twenty twenty three. It, Oof. It's it's still it's still the, I feel I feel like I, li- I like really like the Yuda's OST. It's it, uh, it's hard to stack it up to some of the games here. <laughs> but yeah, the Yuda good OST. I was listening to some of the tracks, and I think a lot of my favorite tracks are from Zero, not from Azure, which would have been last year. And honestly, Reverie, I played it this year, didn't really leave an impression in terms of soundtrack. Page, page, I I know Paige put the the Shoban the falling down. Uh, Sprite, but think about it like this: There's probably no like very very few other outlets, if no uh, like unlike or maybe no other outlet that mentioned Small Saga <laughs> in their running. All right, so we listened to a lot of different sampler sounds from a lot of different soundtracks as we were listening through them. Um, I thought Sea of Stars would do better, but as I listened to the track, it's good, but just not as good. As a lot yeah. of the other entries, so Sea of Stars worth shouting out. Same with Small Saga. Definitely impressed by just the variety on display there. And Chain Echoes um, too. Octopath, you know, all these indie yeah. RPGs have really like outstanding soundtracks. Like considering we're comparing like these 
small team projects to Square Enix and Octopath, you know? So yeah, and, and even that, like Octopath. like like uh, even big hitters like FF16. Yeah, FF16. Know. I think no one's really pushing for it to be runner up here. So mm. just that I I feel like I'm listening to the other stuff here. I feel Dirt is much better. Sorry, that's just my opinion. No apologies. So we have the winner for the best music or soundtrack for RPG Site 2023. We've got Octopath Traveler 2, followed by Fate Samurai Remnant. And that covers us for all of the categories. So how do we feel about this so far? So go over our winners again and run it. All right, yeah. Summarize, summarize. What, so our summarize what we have RPG done. Site- Yep, you know, it's it's only been several hours, but we have decided our winners for our five category awards for our best remaster or re-release. We said that Star Ocean, the second story R was our winner with our runner up being Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion. And if we had a second runner up, it'd be Super Mario RPG. Writing and storytelling for the best writing and storytelling in 2023, our winner was In Stars and Time. And our runner-up was Baldur's Gate 3. For best art or artwork, we have our winner being World of Horror, with our runner-up being Baldur's Gate 3. For best design and immersion, we had our winner being Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. And runner-up, Baldur's Gate 3. Turns out Baldur's Gate 3 just does a lot of things pretty damn well. Uh, Best music or soundtrack, our winner... Octopath Traveler 2, our runner-up, Fate Samurai Remnant. I'm, I'm good with this. I think we had a lot of really good discussions. We had some surprises and then some that were expected but deserving in a way. I'm feeling really darn good. This is going to be a tough list once we get to the master list uh, in a bit here. All right, we're going to be moving into the last major section of our long Game of the Year podcast. This is basically for the top of the list. This is the final RPG site RPG of the Year Deliberation. So how this works is I have a list here of basically every game in consideration. It's not absolutely every game that we've covered on the site, but it's the vast majority of them. So we are our goal here is to pick a top 10, and then from those top 10, pick a like a, a runner-up five and a top five. And then from our top five, we pick one overall winner. So while there are some games that, as I read them out, might not say, like, is that really going to be a a game of the year? Maybe not, but it could sneak into the top 10. So we're trying to cast a wide net here because sometimes people who have been on this podcast in the past can attest to that deliberation between positions like 9, 10, 11, 12. Sometimes it's the most contentious. Uh, and then the game of the year might be simpler, but it all depends on the year. So just to be clear, just to be clear, we're not ranking them. It's like a tier system. Just right. You're you're either in the top ten or you're not. Like there's no number seven, number eight, number nine. So yeah, I, I guess I shouldn't have worded it that way. But basically, decisions like this one belongs in the top ten versus this is the last one we took out of the top ten. Yeah, the last one out. So so this is gonna be a, a bit of a long list. I'll try to read it at a pretty brisk pace. So these are all of the games that we have listed in the running for our RPG site RPG of the year. Here we go. We have. Atelier Marie Remake, The Alchemist of Salberg. Atelier Rise of Three, Alchemist of the End and the Secret Key. Atlas Fallen, Baldur's Gate Three, Chained Echoes, Cry Machina, Cyberpunk 2077, Phantom Liberty, 
Demon's Roots, Diablo 4, Disgaea 7, Vows of the Virtuous, Dragon Quest Treasures, Barry Fencer F, Refrain Chord, Fate Samurai Remnant, Final Fantasy 7, Ever Crisis, Final Fantasy 16, Fire Emblem Engage, Forspoken, Front Mission 2 Remake, Fuga Melodies of Steel 2, Hogwarts Legacy, Honkai Star Rail, Infinity Strash, Dragon Quest, The Adventures of Die, Jagged Alliance 3, Labyrinth of Galleria, The Moon Society, Lies of P, Like a Dragon Ashin, Like a Dragon Gaiden, The Man Who Erased His Name, Long Gone Days, Loop 8, Summer of Gods, Lords of the Fallen, Lunacid, Marvel's Midnight Suns, Miasma Chronicles, Mon Yu, Defeat Monsters and Gain Strong Weapons and Armor, You May Be Defeated But Don't Give Up, Become Stronger, I Believe There Will Be a Day When the Heroes Defeat the Devil King, Octopath Traveler 2, One Piece of Odyssey, Persona 5 Tactica, Remnant 2, Rhapsody, Marl Kingdom Chronicles, Sea of Stars, Small Saga, Star Ocean, The Second Story, R, Silent Hope, Starfield, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, Street Fighter 6, The Legend of Heroes Trails into Reverie, The Legend of Heroes Trails to Azure, The Legend of Neuta, Boundless Trails, The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Theater Rhythm, Final Barline, Wandering Sword, War Tales, Wild Hearts, Wolong Fallen Dynasty, and World of Horror. You'll probably explain to people how Street Fighter 6 made it in here for... Yeah, uh, in general, there's a lot of games in there that we have not introduced yet. And a lot of these games we're going to only introduce at the highest level. Uh, Well, unless it stays in consideration, then of course... Well, let me be clear. There might be a few of these games that we haven't really talked about that might make it into the top 10 because they just maybe not excel at anything, but they might just be solid all around, you know? So, who knows? So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through the list of participants here in the chat just in order top to bottom, and have each person pick a title and say, this is a game that is definitely in consideration, I'm promoting it. Or, this is a game that is definitely not in consideration, I'm taking it out. And then, if it's not in consideration, we can kind of give it an, one sentence, and I literally mean like one sentence, to say, this game was X, but it's not in consideration. We either agree. If we don't agree, then we might table it and say it's got to be decided on later. But I think there's a lot here that we can easily push one way or the other um, pretty quickly. And the one that Chow brought up is definitely one that we'll have to talk about a little bit once we get to it. But uh, without further ado, I think I've set up everything I need to. Let's start with Alex. He's the first one listed here in the channel. Uh, pick a game and either decide to promote it into consideration or uh, say it's not worth and we can take it out. Uh, Cyberpunk, Phantom Liberty, oh, promote. That's It's great. It's. I would go so far as to say... It is the best expand, the best, one of the best expansions of all time. And I think in the console space, because when I think of expansions, I'm thinking of, you know, Yuri's Revenge on stuff like that in the PC world, which is a bit different, RTS expansions and stuff like that. But, um, when I think of like console expansions, I think of things like Shivering Isles and stuff like that, it's the best ever. So, Cyberpunk. Alrighty. Josh. Uh, Josh won. Uh, Fate Samurai Remnant in consideration. Based on the discussion we had for the categories, that seems good to me. All right, I pick one. I'm going to take one out of consideration that we haven't talked about yet. That is War Tales. So War Tales is kind of like an open world. uh, It's basically a CRPG, isometric, turn-based game where you take a band of soldiers across a bunch of neighboring uh, countries and you solve, like, Micro quests. There's a lot of different quests involving bandits and plagues and cults. It's a really fun game that's really easy to sink a lot of time into. 
it's something that if you like that sort of like strategy CRPG ish type game that I would recommend. But with all that said, I don't think it's consideration versus uh, all the games we've already talked about to length with the categories. Next one is Paige. I'm I'm just gonna go through all my I can just like pick, pick out pretty much everything I reviewed and just say it's not in consideration. So I'll start with Dragon Quest Treasures. I probably overrated that a little bit, but I did have like a heap of fun with it while I was playing it. But it's definitely it's just you know not particularly good, and the boss fights were especially let down considering they were pretty much exactly the same, and just some things like that where it's just not hey. great. Brian and I have played this, and I think we kind of had similar thoughts in that it's kind of like a casual, kind of relaxing, sort of enjoyable game, but it just is not necessarily excellent, you know? And one thing I didn't notice when I was reviewing it, there's actually, like, very few monsters in the, in the game. Yeah, it's, not yeah, not it's surprisingly limited. This, this sounds more harsh than I intend, but it doesn't do anything super well. It just does everything fine. Like, it's fine. It does everything fine. Uh, we'll go to um, we'll go to Quentin. I'm going to take out of the running um, Front Mission Two remake. Um, it's I, I think the thing that I keep coming back to every time I think about the game is the uh, the localization, the the translation. Yeah, I didn't get that. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. It's just almost it, no. It is incomprehensible at certain points, um, and then there are other points where. Uh, you understand the gist, but it's 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 so poorly done that um I don't know. It just it hurt my brain. It you only get you yeah. only get the gist, yeah. and that's it. I remember the very first time I was on one of these game leader casts. It was 2017, and I argued for Ease Eight to not be on the list that year for pretty much the same reason. So I I'm in agreement. If any game releases with a localization that bad, it it should not be on our list, just, like, out of principle, honestly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, My turn? Yeah. Uh, I'll take an, I'll take one that's just kind of going to be kicked off by default, Monu, with a long title that you just know. Monu? I don't know of a game called Monu. Okay. Are you sure it's the, the full I'm, title? The game I'm thinking of is, oh, you deleted it. I don't remember what it was. Okay, the no, game don't, I'm thinking of read it again. is Monu to read it Okay, okay. Uh, this is an <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to. This is an experience dungeon crawler, and I've played, and I think James has played pretty much all of them, but yeah. I was not interested in this one. I just, it looked, I don't really like the art style. It came out a bad, at a bad time. It just didn't, wasn't that interesting to me. And no one played it here, I think, so it has to be out of consideration. That's it. All right, James. Uh, let's see. One, I'm gonna go for. Let's let's kick off uh, Wo Long. I don't think that's gonna make the top ten. So I like Wo Long, but it's kind of uh. I like Wo Long, but it's mostly just I kind of accept that, like, I just like this style of game, and I would pretty much play any of them, and I like all of them. So, I, yeah, I think Wo Long is, like, in my biggest one of my biggest disappointments this year, because everything about it, like, in its marketing and when it was announced, it's like, oh, shit, this is, like, this is a really cool-looking my kind of game. I really love the Three Kingdoms era and the period, and it's, you know, made by the Neo team. So, you know, this is a excellent. Yeah, and, the, and they're trying out new stuff, but when it came time, it was just like... 
very clear that the uh, main Neo 2 team is on uh, Rise of the Run. Excited for that next year, but uh, as for Will Long, it's fine. It's like, good. It's, like, it's, it's a it's a game that like you have to really master your parry timing down, and then you do that in at infinitum. The magic stun, the magic system is kind of not well thought out in it. It also um, feels like the parry timing is just so generous that it the game just becomes really, really. I don't know. It it, it just it goes to show that when people say stuff like "Oh, Sekiro is only a game about parrying," it's like no, you also had the stuff that you needed to like to counter and then also the stuff that you had to jump over. It's like, and it feels like Wolong is kind of like the proof in the pudding that those sorts of elements were the glue that held that game together. And there, and the absence of a similar system here by the end of the game, I was just, I didn't feel anything. Yeah. Bummer. Uh, Josh too. The, if I'd like to try in, in the vein of uh, what those types of games, such as Wolong, I'd like to add Lies of P for consideration. Um, mm. Of the many I've sort of tried, um, I well, think... Uh, consideration, right? You put it in oh, the wrong... Sorry, I, just put, I, just, I, I just put it in the wrong thing, not intentional. All right, go ahead, Josh. Yes. Uh, I, I think it's like um, one of the best-tuned ones of those games I've seen. And, like, if other than differences in the... Uh, um, what do you call it? What other than differences in like the the writing and the mood, um, you could easily convince me that this was like a from software joint. So I mean, and that's one of the some of the highest praise I can give that style of game. Yeah, for sure. It. it was a it was also a real surprise. Like as I mentioned in my review, um, my initial reaction to it was very like, "Hey man, I haven't finished." I mean, I'm not done. I'm not all the way done with Bloodborne yet. Why would I try this? And I'm glad I did. I also just want to point out when this game was first announced, it was like from the studio behind like Bless Unleashed. And that game was like widely panned. I don't even know if it exists anymore, if it got like retooled or renamed or I don't know. It was very strange. So like when this game was first announced, there was like no confidence in it. Like, oh, this is from some junk studio that made a junk game and didn't turn out that way at all. Yeah, and people were even saying like, hey, Steel Rising is coming out earlier, so you've also got the kind of steampunk puppet vibe going, but it uh, As someone who's played both, uh, this one is way better. Almost all around. Yeah. So right. it was more a, talking on out of nowhere. Yeah. So more consideration on that one down the road, I'm sure. Uh, we'll go on to Chow. You know, I, I find it hilarious that Loop 8 survived longer than these titles, but I don't want to waste my vote just to kick it off. So I, I'm going to kick off in, in our consideration is Persona 5 Tactica. I feel this is... I won't disagree. Like, I won't either. Yeah, I, I am for it. I feel like this is kind of like an expensive budget title where it has some good ex- ideas, but it's just constrained being, you know, just being a budget title in my opinion. Okay, I'll just right, say one. Well, then... I'll just say one thing about Persona Five Tactica because it's going to be the only time we ever have we have time to talk about it at all. It has some interesting Good. components with like how movement and turn order works in the game, and it's very different from most strategy RPGs in that you can like move a character and then have a de- different character act, and where your secondary character's position might affect like how the action takes place. And then with like the tri attack system, you can kind of do some cool things with that. 
Um, but besides like this one component that's kind of neat, it doesn't really have anything else going for it. Yeah. And the I story, like, I think the story is actively bad. Like, yeah, it's bad. really bad. It's like, I didn't, yeah, nothing more to say about it. The order of the game sucks. That's, yeah. <laughs> this just stated all right. All right. Okay. Persona 5 Tactica out of the running. All right. Back to the top of the list. We'll go to Alex. Let's just, uh, get it over with and move Baldur's Gate up. There yep. you go. The easy ones. Yeah. Okay, Josh. Um, I, I, I take out obviously Street Fighter Six. I mean, Street Fighter Six was on here because it, it's single player mode was an RPG. It was really a really really cool novel thing that they did. Uh, it's a pretty solid, you know, single player offering out of a fighting game. But obviously, it's that's not the main mode for that game. Excellent game. That's not the main reason you're there. No, it's one of the best games of the year, but not but not. For the purposes of this website, yeah, right. but exactly. the single player mode is really fun for RPG. This is a generic game, so I, I would put that as my game of the year. But that <laughs> it, was, it was, it was not RPG site. It, it is my game of the year too. So yeah, so people listening can take that as they want to take it. But I think it's fair to not take it off. Definitely going to be in my top ten for sure. Yeah, it's in my top five. All right, whose turn were we on? Is it my turn? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, oh no, Josh, I'll talk to you right Never mind. All right, I'll just take out, um, uh, Loop 8, cause Chow kind of already brought it up. Uh, as far as I can tell, no one had anything really decent to say on this. We were hoping for kind of like a Persona-like. And we didn't really get that. And it had a lot of kind of cheap budget, low, poor design things, so we'll just take it out. The question uh, is to make Gun Parade March happen properly. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Uh, page. Alright, uh, I'm take, uh, One Piece Odyssey, it takes 20 hours to get good, and it's a 40 hour game, so it can get out of here. And I hear it has a high barrier of entry, even though they said uh, non, non One Piece <laughs> fans can, uh, get into this. Apparently you need to be on episode 575 to it's understand. Like, I think it's more they, like 700. They recap stuff sort of, so it's like you could, but then it would just be so weird to experience it that way, because it's all about going into the memories and changing things temporarily, like, you know. So, I told you, man. Yeah, all good. games based on an anime franchise blows. I think I think Chow is still uh, recovering from Fairy Tale. <laughs> uh, I think we're on uh, Quentin now. Yeah, I didn't even play this, but what the hell is it doing here? I'm going to take out uh, Infinity Strash. Oh, Infinity Strash, bros, it's over. More, we, we more, got, more, we more like Infinity Trash. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, it's Straight great. to the trash. Well, maybe maybe someone was hoping it would sneak in as top ten from a big DQ fan. I'm not sure. No way. <laughs> like I, 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 all I'll remember is uh, I when I previewed it at AMA Expo, I tried to be charitable and I said this is a very competent anime arena fighter, and that I'm not even sure and, if that's and, uh, there you I, go. I, <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Um, Adam. Uh, take out Cry Machina. Uh, I'm taking this one out because I'm the only one who's played it, I think. I, it has a few good things I do like about it. I reviewed it, I gave it a 7. But it's it's just like a couple shining spots in an otherwise just sort of average, mediocre game. So it's like worth a playthrough if you like that sort of stuff. But I could not make it a broad recommendation at all. James? 
Uh, kind of a similar vein, though I liked it, uh, liked it quite a bit more than it sa- than it seems like, uh, Adam liked Cry Machina. Uh, Remove Fuga Melodies of Steel 2. I was the only one that played it. I played and, it. And, uh, oh, you did? Yeah. Do you agree with removing it, or? Yeah, I do. It's, it's, it's very strange in that it's probably better than the first game, because it just polishes it up, but it's also very iterative. Um, where yeah. it kind of feels like I've already played it. <laughs> so, it's like better yeah. than the first game, which I think made our top 10. But it's just yeah. so much more the same that it's almost disappointing. And who knows if okay. that third uh, game will ever get made. Yeah, and, and like the last uh, publicly uh, English-speaking uh, member of that team left CyberConnect2 like earlier this month. Well, so it's like, I don't know. Last time I interviewed Miyaza- uh, Miyazaki over at CyberConnect2, he basically implied that... Uh, Fuga 3 is not under active, de- like active development, so might not get anything for that uh, secret movie, which would be a, a damn shame. Right, I believe we're on uh, Josh 2. Uh, yeah, I'd like to push uh, Forspoken out of consideration. Um, despite being on the record for liking the game, I just don't think it has the juice this year. I don't think you're going to get a lot of pushback for that. I'll just say a sentence, one sentence. (laughs) I reviewed it. Uh, I actually felt very similar, this game, compared to Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I know might be a weird comparison, but, like, they both had, like, kind of very tedious open worlds, and I felt like I was just fighting too many enemies in, like, a barren open world. And the one thing about Forspoken that I felt was, like, the weirdest thing to me is, like, all, like, the major story beats in that game don't take place on the open world. They kind of take place in, like, a castle or an alternate place. So it kind of felt like the open world is almost, like, disjointed from, like, the actual game. And, like, does that make sense? Like, none of the stories yeah. have actually took place in it, which is very strange. Yeah, it's like a dead world, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in, in fact, that kind of fully undermines some of the uh, the, the good ending. Where the good ending is, um, I guess I guess we can spoil it or something. But where yeah. the good ending is, I'll stay here and help fix stuff. And there's like, what's there to fix? And also, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I have a pet peeve here. I there is the, the villain is never given any clear or satisfactory satisfactory motivation for what he wants revenge on. He's just like, I want revenge. I want revenge. I want revenge. And it's like, for what? You never say it. I even looked into the lore. I'm like, am I missing something? Is it hidden? And no, it's just never explained. Games writing is just all over the place, even from the very beginning with the way they introduce a phrase like, oh, come on. Is that really how you're doing it? It's like, I will say that, uh, the, some of the early scenes that made around, like with the, like the English voice acting, it wasn't that bad the rest of the game, but it wasn't good. It just, some of the stuff that went around like social media when the game first released was the worst of it. I think Forspoken's a good, like, um, it was a good illustration of, how a game is more, I mean, the experience of a game is like way more than minute long clips uh, that get circulated on Twitter. But at the same time, mm. that doesn't necessarily mean it's way better than that. <laughs> Still. Mm. So to give it some fl- some right. flowers, I do think the combat is pretty good. I think it is a strong suit, but I also think there's just like almost like too much of it. You spend so much time like mowing down mooks that it almost gets boring. It takes, it takes a long time to get the fire. Spell. <laughs> and then, and then you get, and then you get the fire spell, and it's like, oh, that's the first of the, of the, uh, three. Uh, obviously, I, I still have a lot of the game left. It's like, nope. You're basically 60% of the way through the story. 
All right, that's enough on Forspoken. So missed opportunity. It was kind of a high-profile game. Unfortunately, didn't quite pan out to compare to the contemporaries. I think we're on um on Chow yeah. now. Uh, I'm gonna take out Atelier Mari remake. Um, mm. it's a pretty expensive title for what it yeah. feels just like a PS1 title that's just giving a facelift. That's basically it. There's not enough quality of life, like you know, like from the Square Enix remixes, you know. So I'm taking off this one. All right back to the top. We'll go to Alex. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm the only person to have played any of this. Uh, obviously it's a funny old game because there's just other stuff surrounding it, but I would say let's take off Hogwarts Legacy. It's basically if we just put the, uh, art and the artist thing to one side, um, it's a pretty competent, decent clone of a Bioware game, circa 2010-2012 with a few things pulled from more modern games like you know got a more seamless open world and things like that but basically it, it doesn't really do much of anything new um, it's it's basically a, 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 a like a, a strong 7 out of 10 um, if you if you take it away from whatever you make of the surrounding situation if you take it away from that that's the sort of game it is it's like a, a solid a solid seven sort of thing um and yes with the quality of this year especially and many of the games on this list i just don't think a solid seven makes the cut whichever way you slice it even if you are removing external factors yeah in some years a seven can might slip might slip in but i don't think this year is that year uh we'll go on to um to josh one take out diablo four Kind of, kind of a marquee release that we've never really, that we didn't really touch on much, but I'm not sure. Well, too, I guess here's our last yeah, chance. I mean, like, while the single player comp campaign is like, okay, that experience, everything outside of that feels very hollow and boneless. Like, the open world aspect of this is like, it's a very weak thing. Like, you're just going from point A to point B in this open world, and there's nothing really to like see or like do that's like interesting in that world. The way that this, the, the seasons have like panned out for this game, like the the post launch support have been it's sort of horrid now it's like somewhat almost decent but overall it's just it's just a it feels like a big big step down from um what I love about the Diablo series it's just it's a really just yeah see I'd keep that a bit longer but mm. realistically will it make the top ten well, I don't think just, so I think there's... In, we can put it in like limbo for now there limbo mode. All right, uh, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna just do a quick, quick one. Octopath Traveler two. I'm gonna put it in, the, in consideration. Obviously, yeah. All right, Paige. Um, I'm gonna kick Atelier Riser three because it has really tiny text, and I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this I, one it does. It does. Okay, I liked Riser three, but I liked Riser two more. Like Rise of Three, Rise of Three does a lot of really cool stuff, and I'm very interested to see what the next mainline Rise is. I'm not counting the mobile game; that was purely marketing. Uh, especially if it's on the Switch too, because I feel like Rise of Three is one of those games, like the first game I played, where I could just feel that the game as a whole was held back by having to be able to run on the Switch. Maybe that was just me. I don't know. 
But I, uh, I think I agree with that. I mean, I feel the open world's kind of barren, probably because they had to compensate mm-hmm. for that. And then there's also localization issues when the game first started. I'm not sure how much it's been fixed now. But. Apparently they put out a patch. I haven't gone back to check it because, I mean, Rise of 3 is already a pretty long game, especially for an Atelier game. It's like, I think it took me like 60-something hours. Crazy. Oh, uh, Ryza. And any other year, I'd say that it would have a spot in the top 10. Just too many other games this year. All right, uh, Quinton? I'm going to push to take um, Atlas Fallen off the list. Um, Adam, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, it some of its DNA feels like um, almost like the developer was was banking on Forspoken being the next big thing. <laughs> it's hard to describe, but it's, it's like there's a lot of similar to Forspoken. Yeah, like like they were hoping to to kickstart the term Forspoken, like, and obviously that's not going to really go anywhere. You know, um, I I found. Uh, Speaking of very barren open worlds, um, thematically, I kind of get it here, but it's just not at all engaging to me outside some of the combat. And even then, it's kind of a give and take. Like, sometimes it, it gets very samey. Sometimes it's fun. Uh, it depends on the situation, which, I, I mean, I guess you could say about a lot of... Well, RPGs, the combat but... in this game specifically, um, the weird thing about it is I think, like, it was well-tuned for, like, fighting multiple enemies, like, groups of enemies but not for bosses like they didn't know how to do bosses so what they what that means is almost almost all bosses in the game summon groups of enemies so you can fight them because that's what the combat is designed to do so it's like yep. they didn't know how to do like a boss fight like a one-on-one action combat fight so it there's a weird and like there it ties into like the the morale or the momentum system and whatnot it just it like the mechanics they put in place like did not work for the bosses, and there's plenty of bosses, and they just don't work. Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer too because like the momentum conceptually is like a pretty cool system, but it it falls flat at a lot of places some somehow in that game. Exactly. Yeah, and the story is just very flat. Yeah. All right, uh, Adam. Uh, I have a quick question: Are we considering Star Ocean or no? I saw it on the list. That, that's uh, it should be removed. It should be removed. Yeah, because yeah, it won our other category, and we're not crossing streams here. So, all right. So let's see if there's an easy one I can take off. Uh, come on, it's not that hard. Here, Miasma Chronicles. Um, I've, the Miasma Chronicles is a tactical game from the Bearded Ladies, I think is what they're called. Uh, like a Norwegian, I think, or some European developer, and it's uh, from the team behind Mutant Road Zero, and it's a pretty good tactical RPG, but, like, everything involving stories and characters are, like, actively poor, so it really holds it back. So, like, if you're mainly playing these games for tactical RPG reasons, it's totally fine. It's just, like, but nothing else. So... Yeah, they're based out of Sweden, bearded ladies. Sweden, not Norway. Okay. Mm. All right, uh, James. Uh, I'm going to bump Wild Hearts up to uh, consideration. I can see that. I don't know if it'll be top ten, but I'm okay holding on to it for now. Yeah, yeah. It's like I I really liked it, 
I still really like it. And I feel like it hasn't gotten enough appreciation for the good stuff, like all the good it does. So I, I do want to argue for it for at least top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you. That was funny because I was going to, uh, um, draw, I was going to drop Wild Hearts next, but anyway. <laughs> uh oh. So while we're putting up, um, while we're putting up games for, uh, while we're promoting for consideration, I'd like to, to, uh, promote Remnant 2. That was, it's a really interesting, to me anyway, I mean, to someone, as, as someone, maybe this is less surprising to someone who has played the first Remnant. But it was surprising to me how well tuned it is for being like a sort of a sort of gun souls like I guess in 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 some ways. And the class system is um, I mean like it's it's classing. I mean like it's it's power system, however you want to put it. The arch, I think it's archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the archetype system is really interesting, and the way it was kind of mixed up and stuff. Um, and James and Josh have said a lot of good things about it too. So yeah. Yeah, and I'm not Definitely. I'm not even all the way done with it yet. Nice. All right, uh, ciao. I'll be a hero. I'll take off Honkai Star Rail in our consideration. Dang, what a hero! He's so talented. I was leaving it for you. Primo gems have been removed from our accounts. <laughs> Wait, in or out of consideration? Uh, the reason I'm taking it out oh, of consideration oh, is I'm, I'm just not paying attention to where I'm putting. I, I feel like we're we're being drip fed way too long and the content is kind of like starting to kind of run into the drought. So it's just been like, Ooh, it's been running too long. It's we're falling into the miHoYo trap. So I'm taking out consideration for that because you can't, how can you drag out this story that had hardly anything for, for six months? You know, at least that's how this, I'm saying. This is only speaking personally. And, and again, stress, this is only my personal opinion. I just always feel bad at like giving any sort of accolades to gotcha games because I feel like it's an inherently predatory system. You're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I think that's a valid principled stand to take, definitely. Even as someone who is all the way in the in 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 the Behoyo Sarlacc pit. <laughs> All right. Okay, I think we'll we can do maybe again. one more round, and then one or two. Yeah, it gets, see, it gets trickier when we get out. to those games that are like borderline. Yeah, and then or games where one person's played and no yeah. one else. All right, let's let's do at least one more round and go from there. Uh, Alex, um, I do think Final Fantasy 16 belongs in the consideration. I so, yeah. We can talk it out later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's get to it. Yeah, that one's going to be a decision for a few places, but let's just go through some more of the obvious ones first. Um, Josh. I want to bump up Marvel's Midnight Suns in consideration. Mm-hmm. You've yeah, gone, been, you're on record. I was either gonna I was either gonna demote Midnight Suns or promote sixteen, so that's interesting. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll do an obvious one. It's Tears of the Kingdom. I'll put it in. There you go. Oh, dang it. That was my... <laughs> um, um, I'll just put World of Horror into consideration because we brought it up in a lot of other categories. Okay. Wh- which one? World of Horror. World of Horror. Ah. Oop. There we go. 
Quentin. Can we go ahead and get rid of um, FF7 Ever Crisis? Like, I don't hate it. I'm I'm playing it, um, which is more than I can say for gotchas in general. But um, it still has a lot of those, you know, inherent downsides. Um, it, it's it's fine. It's just not top ten. 2023, 20, fine. Adam? I'll put Final Engage in consideration solely on the strength of its mechanics. James? Uh, put Labyrinth of Glory in consideration for, well, everything we already talked about in the, the categories. Josh? Two? I would like to um, promote... St- uh, this is going to be the this is a borderline case, but I'd like to promote Starfield into consideration because we haven't said anything about it, and I'd like to see what we have to I'll, say. I'll be honest. I until I saw it like ten minutes ago on the long list, I forgot that I'd even played that game, and I put over a hundred hours into it and did guides. I'm I write. Want to forget about it. I, I still have guides that I'm writing, um, and I was gonna get rid of it. I like it. Okay. But, or maybe, yeah, well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about in the in-consideration list, for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, ciao. Um, I want to get rid of, um, was it Like a Dragon, the man who erased his name? I feel like this entire oh. game is carried by its ending, and I don't think that's enough to fight <laughs> uh, all I mean, these it's, it's, like a de- it's like a decent Yakuza game. I, I fight it in limbo, to be honest. Yeah, I don't think it ends up in the top ten, but I do. It was nice to have a brawler game starring Kiryu. It, it does serve. It has like a, a fun little niche that it's in. I think we can go one more round. Yeah, one more round, maybe. All right, and Alex. Uh, we're trying to those guys up, right? I think so. I will drop. Um, Trails into Reverie. Between the two Trails games on the list, it's the worst one. So, I'm just going to take this one out. Good taste. I like Reverie, but it's like one of those things where it's like, two of the routes are good, one of them is so bad. It's like, God. I haven't played Reverie, and I think I'm like one of the only people in that Trails sphere who hasn't. And my, my, what I've, what I've gathered is that one route is good, one route is okay, and one route is bad. (laughs) That's sort of what I've understood. It's the least route that you expect to be bad. Uh, who are we on? Paige. Um, I'll put Small Saga up. That little guy fight. <laughs> Fighting. Support the little guy. Did I skip? Did I skip Josh one? I think he did. did oh, my bad. Oh, we skipped Josh one, and he didn't say anything. My bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, can, can I say something? He's fuming. Yeah, go uh-huh. ahead. I'm going to promote Wandering Sword in consideration. Oh, good choice. Uh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, Quinton? Well, I was going to promote uh, Small Saga because at this point, like, come on. Uh, but Paige predictably beat me to that. Um, I'm going to promote uh, Trails to Azure. All right, James. This is a tough one. Wait, if this did is you skip me? You skip me. 
Oh. <laughs> By the way, I just okay, counted. We had 18 them. games in consideration, I think. So even half of these, roughly half of these mm-hmm. games, we're gonna have to kick out eventually. Uh, oh boy. Uh, okay, James and Adam. No, wait, James and me. Okay, Adam and James. Okay, Adam and James. Adam and James. Sorry. I'm gonna just. Go. I'm gonna kick out Jagged Alliance Three. I. It's borderline, but I think I'm the only one who's played it. I think it's a really good like tactical game. Um, its strengths are in its like tactical elements and squad management and things like that. It's really good in that regard. The story and character stuff is like kind of intentionally tongue in cheek. You have like literally character who is like a Schwarzenegger like who I gather has been in other games. Um, and, uh, very 80s action movie ish kind of over the top. But, um, it's a good game if you like those sorts of games. But yeah, considering we already have like 18 games in consideration that we're already going to have to kick half out of, like, nah, this one, I'll, I'll say it's it's good yeah. if you like those sorts of games, for sure. Yeah, like, character-wise, it's like, it, you either get it, you'd like either totally get it as a sort of, uh, as a as a spiritual success, I mean, like, as carry-on from Jagged Alliance 2, or it's completely rancid, and then, like, there's no other, there's two ways to go about it. Okay, uh, James? This is a tough one. Um, I'll just ask, do we consider Star Wars Jedi Survivor anywhere close to enough of an RPG to be even be in consideration? Unfortunately, I, I think it's out of consideration for me, personally. Okay, okay. Yeah. Can, okay, then will that count for mine, or can I pick a different one? Go ahead, go ahead and pick a different one. Okay. Uh, let's... Uh... You need to pick Fairy Fencer, because you're the one who's played it. Knock it down. Knock it down. Well, it would feel bad for me to say knock it down when I'm not the one who played it. Well, okay, now James, do you have a real choice? <laughs> not someone make a choice for you. No, I'm not picking three okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna do it for Lords of the Fallen. Knock it down. Knock it down. Oof. All right. James with all the power doing all yeah, three of them. All those are right. games. Holy shit. <laughs> Do you want to use your 50 50? All, right. all right, Josh, too. Um, I'd like to try knocking. I mean, I'd like to knock down uh, Long Gone Days. Yeah. Paige played that, right? Yeah. I remember right. your criticism in your review was that you thought the writing was fine or good, even. But I remember you said, like, the puzzles made you feel like you were an idiot in terms of, like, they handhold you so much. Yeah, it was, like, they had to make sure that, the, you know, the character had to comment on something, even though I'd already figured out a similar thing using that same, like, draft. And, like, you know, they just had to, like, it was really annoying. It's like, what's the point of having puzzles if you're going to tell me what to do? Exactly. Um, at the oh, I forgot about Rakarok. It. Got it. Hmm. Oh, that reminds me of an event in Honkai Star Rail recently. There's like a puzzle, and there will be like the solution immediately pops in the screen before you're even allowed to figure it out. God, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? All right, ciao. Um, let's see. I would like to knock down Rhapsody Morrow uh, Kingdom Chronicles out here. It's just because I feel just compared to what we have right now, it's just it's hard to compare. And these are the ports of old games. Quentin, did you end up playing right. these? Rhapsody? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, like, I just give a quick them. sentence I mean, on I... those. I am legitimately curious because this is like two games from like the PlayStation era that were never localized um, before, and finally get one. 
beautifully cheeky, um, eccentric. Uh, what what else? What what other good words are there in spell for this? Um, are they girly pop? Oh yeah. Oh, very, very. Um, you know, I mean, it has the flavor of like PSY or a girly pop, so it would might not be very noticeable in the the broad spectrum of what we think about today. But um, yeah, no, I I like all three. Um, I'm so glad that these two are here now. It's certainly not like top thing of the year. Mm-hmm. All right, we're now kind of in where we just have a few kind of like stragglers that we need to make a decision on, kind of as like a group. Just to make our final like shortlist that we're gonna need, then dissect. Uh, I feel like Sea of Stars can go up for now because we have yeah. kind of already spoken to it. I think Sea of Stars is worth places. considering in our twenty top games or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for I feel bad for the Sky of Seven because I feel like everyone I know that's played it really likes it, but the only person that could have uh, fought for it was Junior. Junior, and he went to sleep two and a half hours ago. <laughs> well, it uh, comes with the territory, unfortunately. Yep. Okay, so I'll knock knock down. I know we're, we're basically just, we have, we have what, six, seven games left that we haven't decided on. Knock down Nayuta, Boundless Trails. I think it's a actually a pretty darn good game. Um, Not enough of an RPG. It is more like action platformer. Um, and it's it's great for people like me who, you know, uh, it's like very, it's, it is a PSP game, literally remastered, uh, kind of like that PSP era action platformer, charming, cartoony kind of game. The story is kind of overdone, but that's fine. Yeah. I, th- I think just like for the, you know, the, just everything but Lunacid on this remaining list, you can knock down, you can knock down Demon's Roots. I don't think it's, it's going to make our top 10. You can knock down like a Dragony Shin. Um, I don't think it's a top 10. Um, Silent Hope, neat game. Uh, it won't make our top 10. Theatrhythm, not really an RPG. It's a, not, it's a phenomenal rhythm, uh, a game with RPG progression. It, we gave it a 10 out of 10, or James did, more specifically. Yeah. I, I agree with that score. It's fucking awesome. It's definitely on my top 10, personal top 10 this year, but it's not really in the spirit of an RPG. Yeah. For people listening to this, if you're still listening, thank you. Uh, yes. Us being a genre site, we kind of have to make that consideration. Like a great game may not do as well on our list just because it's not really in our scope, or maybe barely is in our scope. So, oh well, theater rhythm is kind of like its own thing, yeah. where it's it's in our scope because it's so tethered to an IP that's in our scope. Yeah, but it's not really an RPG. Mm. It's a rhythm. Yeah, an excellent like game. Put in per- we gave it a ten. Yeah, like to put in perspective. We weren't even going to review it until Square reached out to me and offered a code, and I was like, ah, sure. Yeah, we should. And then you uh, knocked down Silent Home, uh, Silent Hope out of consideration. And some of these later games we are good games. Just, oop, I, I knocked down the wrong thing. All right, there we go. Too many. There we go. All right. So the last one that we haven't put either way is Luna Sid. Paige, you said you you haven't played it, but you're uh, yeah. Um, well, I do have to say he did get a ring that lets you summon a snail. So yeah, it's okay in consideration. I, I, yeah, I would say it's worth at least talking about. <laughs> okay, so how many games do we have uh, in consideration? Like twenty. <laughs> all right. First of all, before we do that, 
we parked, we kind of parked two games between in limbo, Diablo four and like a dragon guide. Then do we think these have a chance of jumping halfway through the consideration list or should oh, we just no. say, I, yeah. Not. Okay. But so cause we kind of made those decisions early where we weren't sure what the, what the in consideration list would look like. And it's a long list. So these ones go down. Alrighty. So we've done kind of like the rough, the rough first pass. And let me, let me do a quick count here. It looks, I think if I did count it right, it's exactly 20. I might not count it right, but it's around 20 titles. Let me just read them off here. These are the games that are in consideration that we are going to try to, for the next pass, pick a top 10 in no order, just top 10. So we have in consideration Baldur's Gate 3, Chained Echoes, Cyberpunk, Phantom Liberty, Fate Samurai Remnant, Final Fantasy 16, Fire Emblem Engage, Labyrinth of Galleria, Lies of P, Lunacid, Marvel's Midnight Suns, Octopath Traveler 2, Remnant 2, Sea of Stars, Small Saga, Starfield, Trails to Azure, Tears of the Kingdom, Wandering Sword, Wild Hearts, World of Horror. So, just like before, this will be more of a group thing and less of a round robin. Uh, I think there's some obvious ones that we can push up. Uh, less so obvious ones to push down, because if they were, we would have already pushed them down. But there's a few obvious ones we can push up. Um, so, I'll just go ahead, just to not waste time. I'm going to go ahead and push up Baldur's Gate, Zelda, and Octopath in the top ten. Yeah. No complaints yeah. there. No complaints, okay. yeah. No objections. All right. While well, I type in this in, take, take it away. Um, uh, Starfield. Yeah, someone say something about Starfield. It's, it's, it's really good. I think it's um, really good. I mean, the, the designs. I mean, some folks make, made fun of them trying to coin NASA Punk, which is funny. But the starship designs, starship building, um, some of the, the, the like, I guess like, it, it, it looks really good in those respects. Um, I also like the, uh, um, the, the character creator. They did a good one there. Lo- allows for a lot of like body type diversity and stuff. Um, in a way that's not really, you don't see in most games with character creators. Um, how about the game itself? I think it's just fine. I think it does some things really well, but it's like one of those things where it's like, what's the term? Uh, wide as an ocean, uh, as as deep as a puddle. Yeah, shallow as a puddle. It, it really just, it's the thing I was afraid of when they announced just how many fucking planets there were going to be in that game. There's only a handful of them that actually matter in the grand scheme of things, and all the rest of them are basically just, Oh, it's procedurally, uh, procedurally generated content that's just nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. I think in nothing. many ways, I think in many ways, it's in, in almost all of the individual systems, it's the best one of those games that they've ever made. Um, in 90% of them, you know, the shooting, um, the sort of like the, the extracurricular stuff, like the scanning and crafting and cooking and all that sort of stuff. All that is more competent than anything they've done in Elder Scrolls or Fallout. But in a weird way, nevertheless, it's somehow like less than the sum of its parts. Yes. The way in which it's been stitched together is, is, is not that satisfying. And it yet, feels- for me personally, it would be on my top 10 of the year. Um, but it's sort of, it, uh, James sort of summed it up when he said he played it for hundreds of hours and, sort of doesn't remember any of it, 
um, I wouldn't go that far myself, but it is funny because it's one of the games I've put the most time into, and I know it's one of my favourite games of the year, and yet, I don't remember it very well. <laughs> I would I'll, I'll kind of... Go ahead, James. I would say that... Between Starfield, because this is the obvious comparison, because it's the two like exclusive RPGs here that isn't Zelda. Between Starfield and Final Fantasy 16, I think I preferred Starfield over 16, but I didn't. I I don't. I don't think either of them would be in my top ten. Neither of them. So I would, I'll, I'll I would put it at the bottom that, of the list I'm not sure now. About the others, so. What about a? Well, I would have 16 over. I would have 16 over. Starfield, and I would have Cyberpunk over both of them. And, and not even close. Like, that 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 Phantom Liberty campaign is, like I say, I said it earlier, um, it's, it's the best expansion in a very long time. And, um, you know, if it was a standalone game, and it wasn't attached to perhaps some of the reputational stuff around Cyberpunk to begin with, um, I think we would be saying, this, I think it would have been a shoe into the list in the same way that Borders Gate, Octopath, and Tears of the Kingdom are. Yeah, I haven't even gotten to it yet, but everyone I've seen that's talked about both the 2.0 update that came like right before this and Phantom Liberty absolutely loves it. So, I mean, like I'm not going to tell anyone to not put it in top 10. It obviously deserves it. All right, so this is starting to come into focus. So we have a, few, a lot more decisions to make. Are there any games here that we say are like a weak, like weak link that needs extra support to, to remain? I guess. I, well, these are all strong games. Yeah. I, I, but I mean, like, we need to start cutting shit. So, Sea of I Stars, let's just this, this make this top 10. Sea of Stars, I actually was about to say similarly. Um, okay, here's some criticism of Sea of Stars. Uh, the writing side of it is very strange in that, like, the main two characters almost feel pointless. Like, it's not even their they story. They main characters, to be honest. I the the I story is, like, the archivist guy. It's his story. And then, like, the, uh, the main two characters are, like, along for the ride. It is very strange. And then, like, at the end of the game, they're like, my planet needs me, or whatever, and they leave. <laughs> and yeah. It's, it's, it's very, like, the writing side of it. Like, I like the game's, like, art and style, and I would actually recommend this to, like, people who are fans of that era, because it does invoke a lot of those feelings that we mentioned before. But when you come down to, like, some of, like, the narrative details and writing things, it gets very awkward. I think I, I took the wrong lessons from Super Mario RPG and Chrono Trigger. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, I, I just I don't, I don't. There's a lot to this game that I don't like. That 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 I will I won't list them if it's not making top ten. That's so. I I I just don't, I just don't want it in top ten. I just think there's no, some at this game. And then Sea of Stars. I just thought its ending was. I don't want to just judge a game on its last hour of story, but it was so bad that I was like almost like angry at it. Oh just yeah. Like, oh, oh god. <laughs> Final right, boss is so like, okay, just... you beat me, bye. It's like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so Sea of Stars does a lot of things well, but doesn't come together to be in a top 10 of 2023. So, uh, how about, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, um, I think, I think we should compare with Chain Echoes. I think that's probably the games I was like trying to fight for that spot between the two. Both, between both of them, I, I wouldn't nominate either of the, the, the top 10, to be honest. 
I, I think Trey Jackals and Sea of Stars are both of that weird uh, spear where, like, they're indie RPGs that try to, like, you know, pay homage lovingly to their inspirations. But both of them, honestly, kind of, in their pursuit of that, they get things so fundamentally, like, wrong. <laughs> like, for example, like, Chain Echoes, for me, is like a Frankenstein monster with no identity of its own. Uh, I, I, will, I will quote, um, um, they go by Eero on co-host because they do a great comparison of, like, this is a game that's like, uh, it's an extended X meets Y of, like, uh, I quote, what if the plot from Xeno Gears, the party dynamics from F6, the geopolitics of the uh, Evilist Alliance, the event scripting for Chrono Trigger, the giant babble from F, uh, uh, F, uh, FF4, the Mana Fortress of Secret of Mana, the final act from FF, uh, 7, the introductory missions of Wild Arms, the Yevon Church of FF10, etc., etc., and then mixed with this and that. And it's like, it, tries to combine so many things that it loses an identity of its own, to be honest. There's not even touching, like, how much of a mess the story is. Um, especially the final bad guy. Oh, God. So, so. And then, this is on top of, like, the battle system, the overdrive meter kind of sucks ass. Because I like the overdrive system. I like it. I don't, I don't like the overdrive system. To be, to, for people who don't know, basically in this game, every fight, there's, the, there's an overdrive meter at the top left. It's color-coded. It's like, Yellow, green, and red, and you're the, you get bonuses if, if you're in the red, uh, the green zone. The green zone is you're good because that means you do more damage, yet you take less damage, and your skills uh, take less um, or TP to do. So actions that you take will uh, steer you into this green zone. You have like a little cursor uh, for it. If you but you don't want to overshoot it into the red zone because if you go into the red zone past the green. That means you do less damage, and the the enemies will t- uh, uh, will do more damage to you. So you always want a magic cursor to be in the green zone as much as possible. Uh, there are some skills, marked skills, arbitrarily that will be highlighted. Uh, that'll say if you do this, you'll move the cursor to the left. Um, to, that so you, there's you're more into the green zone and less into the red zone, or run the risk of doing that because normally actions will move your cursor to the right. Um, that will, you know, you're get closer and closer into the red. So what this means is, like, for some battles, you will have to take pretty much dead turns on your characters where they cannot do anything, because if they do an action, it'll get you into the red zone. So you either just, you know, defend with it, which will, will minusculely put your cursor to the left, um, if they don't have any, like, mark skills at all to, like, move the cursor to the, uh, back to the left, that means, oh, I just can't do anything. Sometimes, if your party is, like, at full HP... And like the the game arbitrator decides, hey, use a use an HP spell to uh, move to the cursor to the left. It's like, okay, I guess I'll do this healing spell, even though my art party is at full health, just to move that cursor to the left. Why? Because the game told me to. It's like kind of the rules in the game. It's not really engaging in that way. It's not even touching like the the really bad mech implementation into the game. Where I'm a fucking mech fan. I love mechs and shit. Somehow, Chain Echoes fucked up every part of like mechs that I like. Uh, in RPGs into this game. So, it's just like, for me, Chain Echoes is like, there's so much more I do not like about it, but for me, both Chain Echoes and Sea of Stars, in their pursuit of being loving homages, which, you know, I can, you can on its surface, look and sound and, and you know, great on the surface, there's some very, very fundamental underlying problems to each of them that just really, really frustrate me and rub me the wrong way 
And I, I, I agree with you on Chained Echoes in terms of how it toes the line of banality in terms of like its inspirations. I agree with you on that. But the one part about Chained Echoes that I actually really, really, really like is that your character building, there are so many passive and active and different skill setups that you can use for each character. You can have eight of them in a battle, four of them in your party, four of them as reserves, and then four other characters to choose from that are all pretty different from each other. So I was really compelled by just like the level of party coordination, like party construction, putting together these builds and characters and abilities that basically create like an engine of combatants that works really well for me. And that was actually the part I reviewed this game. I gave it a nine that that was the part that kind of felt like here's the novelty. Like a lot of the story mechanical stuff felt like, okay, this is just borrowing from something else, which I agree with. But, like, I hadn't really run into a game that had, like, the same level of, in terms of its mechanics and the overdrive system tied into that, of being, of, rather than just putting together characters because they have a strong ability in terms of just, like, all the different, you know, supporting abilities and uh, buffs that come into play into different situations and things like that, I felt that was cool. Now, I I am defending this game to be possibly top 10, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to be too upset if it doesn't make top 10. I'm just thinking, I'm just saying, don't kick it out yet. Sea of Stars, I agree with. That one, I, I, I made this comparison earlier. I don't know if this is real or not, but like, Sea of Stars feels like a JRPG written by liberal arts majors, or uh, Chained Echoes is an RPG made by like a STEM major. It's more nerdy, a little bit more math. Um, and also, Sea of Stars, that's that, this is one thing that I really hate indie RPGs doing that they're paying homage to is like, Especially the dialogue for that game, like especially like we don't know one of the 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 seaport town. I forgot its name, but like one of the NPCs you go to, up to them, it's like, don't you just hate it? Like you know when uh, weapons are like uh, just get linear, like you know become uh, uh, more more powerful with uh, ta- over time with like uh, towns that you visit. Uh, you know, some, something like that. It's it like kind something of like the, they get, the, the blacksmiths get more more uh, skilled the further north you go. Yeah, and then and then another one is like like the end of like the first act of that game when like the the big betrayal from your mentors happen in that game. Like the NPC that you have to talk to to go back to town because a catastrophe uh, has happened. And, like you know, your 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 characters feel kind of shitty. It's kind of the first time that they know that like you kind of get any ounce of personality from Zale and Valer a little. Um, because of their the betrayal of their mentors, you have to go to like talk to this pirate NPC that you know you've uh, made a uh, made friends with to like go to that island that you are, and that they the, the, once again waking not in the JRPG dialogue of like oh man you why do why the long faces that did you just like uh, suffer from the uh, let me guess the the trope of uh, your mentors betraying you and it's like that that it's like oh it's that isn't it and it's like come on man. A little like bit too self-referential. Yeah, it's like it's so frustrating. Indulge in it, indulge in it, or don't sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. All right, so we'll keep Chain Decos as kind of like a fringe. Maybe we'll see what else can leapfrog it. Sea of Stars, I put here at the bottom. Uh, what do we feel about Lies of P, Adam? I I support it top ten. Like I think it'll make top ten. Uh, like I will defend it. Um, I'm sure. Josh we haven't really touched on it too it. much. Uh, in this podcast, it's. I think in an earlier podcast I mentioned that I didn't think the enemies design or enemy variety was that great. But then, like, I was actually thinking about it after I said that. I'm like, there's actually quite a good enemy variety in terms of like different humanoid enemies. There's a couple of different mech enemies, a couple of different like like zombie-ish sort of things that you fight. Um, I forget what they're called in the game, but 
Uh, there's, I feel like a pretty decent enemy variety, especially for like a debut title. Um, I feel like level design is really solid. The combat's solid. Um, it's got a really novel and neat uh, weapon combination system that um, I actually tinkered around with it when I ran into a couple bosses that I struggled with. Like, okay, this boss, I think I need to have an acid weapon, but I want to have a longer reach. So I was kind of putting together weapons to do that. Uh, I think it has some interesting NPCs and sort of like side quests going on. It's got a really great tone and art style uh, and music, like I mentioned earlier. Um, I think it's top 10. And based on what you stated now and what Josh too stated when it was being promoted in the first place, definitely seems like I haven't played this myself, but based on the strength of your, your two's argument, I'm on board. Uh, two games that we've talked about at length on some of the categories that I anticipate being top 10, just based on the strength of their performance in the later sections were Fate Samurai Remnant and Labyrinth of Galleria. How do we feel about those two? Let's start with, uh, Fate Samurai Remnant. I, I really agree. I'm in favor of this uh, making the top 10. I think it just, it, it, there's elements of the game that just come together in a really splendid way for that game. Um, like so, uh, learning the different sword stances and learning, like filling out your, uh, not even like your your personal uh, skill tree, but also you also have your different servants' skill trees. You have Saber's skill tree. You have all the other, you know, minor servants uh, that can join you in your journey. Like progression of that game feels really satisfying when you like, you learn new skills together and like how you call, uh, Incorporate into your core, like, um, ba- like, uh, battle, uh, strategy maneuver because there's a lot of skills that you can learn together, like, as a separate skill, or you can learn it, um, like, skills together that you can work with Saber, and that all feeds into, like, this, like, the big encounter system in the game where, like, more powerful enemies have, like, this break gauge that you have to kind of, uh, work towards shattering it before they, um, are able to do, like, an ar- enrage attack. I just think, the way that they uh, incorporate the era the, of uh, of Pan uh, in it, along with the battle system, just works really, really wonderfully. Uh, it flows really well. The, like even though, like I, I know that Adam like had like an issue with like kind of like how the different different locales. Um, kind of. Oh, you mean like the cities that you just r- r- yeah. wander around in, and there's a fight yeah. there, here and there. I, no, I I, I kind of like like uh, just how they were able to distinguish like you know different towns in that game, like the, their layout of them, and like just like environments in that game. Like even though they're all within like on Japan, like you still get buried landscapes uh, as you visit each of those uh, different towns. Like for me, like I kind of like the touring aspect of that game of seeing different towns, uh, rural towns throughout that game and also i really like the story structure and the way that it's not a, it's not a linear oh story beat dungeon boss like usually like chapter endings that i get are very messy because they kind of turn almost into battle royales of like multiple master servant groups kind of get roped together and like kind of meet each other uh, in one spot almost so like chapter endings that i get are very are, are a very climactic moment where like it's almost a scramble and like for example, when you uh, Saber learns their noble phantasm for the first time, you know, and it's because it's a um, there's a a rampaging um, noble phantasm from assassin that um, Ryder uh, kind of took control of, you know, and it's like it's a very scrappy situation of like trying to do with the most that you have at that moment, uh, sort of deal, and then like Musashi also gets uh, uh, is is working with you in that specific event. So I kind of like the story flow of like it's a very very scrappy sort of like 
it, 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 it perfectly encapsulates how chaotic these sorts of like fate stories can get with, with everyone having their own agenda and ha- having this general atmosphere of uneasy alliances of like, who could I tr- actually trust in at any, any given time? Well, I can go ahead and kind of slide it up here as, uh, squarely in the 10 for now. And I mentioned uh, Labyrinth of Galleria. We kind of talked on both for design and story. This is going to be, again, just kind of like, do James and Adam feel this belongs in the top 10? It definitely deserves at least top 10. I'd like to see it in top five, but uh, top 10, definitely, at least. How do you feel, Adam? I am okay with that. Okay, we'll kind of set it here, potentially on the bottom fringe, but... Right now, we're just trying to see like where the line's going to have to fall. So again, not ranked. Let's try. So, okay, looking at what we have left. So right, we have like eight games that we have basically placed like in our tentative top ten, um, and we have what twelve games left or ten games left. Fire Emblem Engage. Yeah. I reviewed it. I think it has excellent combat. Josh talked about that too. But I think when we're talking about top 10 games this year, I think two things are basically big black marks against it that are going to hold it back. One, there is like absolutely nothing to latch on to with story or characters. Don't even try to argue mm-hmm. this with me. There is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. There is. And two, and I think this is kind of where it like compounds itself. Everything involving Somniel and that like home base vestige that they kind of brought back from three houses just doesn't work. It's very strange. So like, I kind of wish they, well, first of all, I wish they just had better writing and like a better story. Um, but two, just that Somniel stuff, they, like it would have been better if it was just like a chapter chapter thing or even like Path of Radiant style, just base dialogue menus or something. Yeah. If they, like even if they chopped out Somniel, like you can almost like I, I would almost like kind of fight for it for top ten if they just, if they if they just didn't have Somniel. If, 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 if Somniel was just a menu, yeah, the game would be like a point and a half better. <laughs> So fuck, man. Like, I really like Engage, like, playing it. And when you're, when you're, when you're in battles, it's like, fuck, this is awesome. And it, it really hurts to, like, it not being in the top 10, but I, it definitely has a lot working against it. On a similar vein, uh, I, I'm, I'm just gonna be the person to say it. I do not think Final Fantasy 16 should be in the top 10. For a lot of the same reasons you just said for, Fire Emblem Engage and how, like, uneven the entire package is. There's definitely, like, strong points of 16. Points that I love, like some of the boss fights. But the thing that gets me, and this is the thing that I was really thinking of a couple of weeks ago when I was trying to, like, get it, get my thoughts together and prep for this. The main thing I keep coming back to with 16 is it's a game that doesn't feel like it has a, a direct vision. It doesn't feel like enough of an RPG or enough of an action game. Yeah, it's Identity Crisis. Every time people ask me what they think about it, yeah, like, and, and, that's and, Identity and, Crisis. And, and, and I'm going to say something here. Here's a comparison because I was like, it reminded me of, a sp- of another game I played, and it took me a while to realize what game it was. It reminds me of fucking Astral Chain, but I'd say that Astral Chain was a better game, like a better action game and a better RPG than Final Fantasy sixteen. But it had all the same issues where it was like lost between two different things and, and it suffered for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily, I don't think it's as egregious an offender in that as Fire Emblem is where, you know, I, I don't understand how you go from free houses and the lessons you take from free houses 
lead to Somnial. I, I don't, do not get it. They probably um, was developed at the same time, so they probably didn't have yeah. to be as refined over. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's probably the most likely thing, right? Is that they went, shit, this stuff's really popular. People are really latching on to these characters. We need to, we need to make a place where you can lines, hang out yeah. with people. Yeah, we need, we need to crowbar that in when maybe this game wasn't. Anyway, that, that's, that's engage, and I don't think engage makes the top 10. I have a complicated relationship with 13, like, with 13, with, with 16. Um, I have a complicated relationship with 13 as well, actually. But, so, for me, um, I think bits of it that stand out, stand out so well, um, that I do think it sort of, Squeaks into that top ten sort of top sort of territory. Um, I wish I felt like, the same way. The thing, like the, the stuff that it does well for me, is just it's just really really strong. And for me, that sort of goes over, uh, say, I'm, and I'm going to be reductive here, but it goes over sort of Midnight Suns, which is a um, uh, uh, XCOM 2, but... Midnight Suns is like, not like XCOM. But, let's, but, let's, not, let's not be well, reductive in that. Midnight Suns well, is a very, very different game than XCOM. It's a, it, it is a very different game, but what they basically do is they, they try to take the loop that they established in XCOM, is what they try to do. And they muddle it with a lot of new stuff. If we're, um, if we're, like, like, okay, I can... Uh, if, if you were to take the angle, and I, I, I would agree with this, that like if... Midnight Sun suffers a lot of like the same conceptual problems Fire Emblem Engage, where once you're in combat, combat feels really good, and like, they they make a damn good job on making every superhero feel very unique with very clear strengths and weaknesses, and forming a party composition to make up for each other's weaknesses. And like that's where it really excels at. But, but it I even to, like, think they muddle the combat, though. I even think they muddle the combat. No, I really the like the combat. I really like the I, combat. In this game. I'm not saying it's bad combat. I'm just saying, but, but basically, what I'm saying is, is I just felt that um, I played that game, and I, I, you know, I put 80 hours into it. So it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but I sat back in my chair at the end of that 80 hours, and I sort of sighed. And this doubled when Jake left the studio and stuff. Yeah, and I, I mean, thought, it sucks. The and I thought, the no, 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 not that. I sat back and I thought, I wish they'd just made XCOM 3. <laughs> I, I sat back and I was like, making this was a complete waste of time. I wish they'd just made I don't think it was a waste the game of time. they should have made. Um, I, 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 thought, I thought it was a really cool it. game. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But anyway, I thought it was a really cool but game. I, but, I, but I'm saying that, like, I'm okay if you want to cut Midnight Suns down. Like, I would say cut it for, like, the same conceptual problems that uh, Engage has where, like, the actual gameplay when you're playing it feels real, like personally really fun to me. But uh, but in terms of like when you're everything out of it, like the island exploration shit and like decorating your hub and everything, like all that stuff, fucking sucks. Like it just doesn't it doesn't do anything for me. It's it's, it's, it's muddled, and I think and I think that's the muddled is the, is the is the term I'm latching onto because I feel like it it it, it gets it across well. And actually, you know come back to where we this this began. Like I do think Final Fantasy sixteen is muddled also. But the thing about Final Fantasy sixteen is um I think the stuff that's muddled takes up less of the game in a that's, way. You know that's you, actually 
No, I, I, I think there's so much about a 16 that's flawed. Like, I, 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 yeah, I was gonna say, there is so much filler. I, 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 I really like that game in terms of like when you're, when you're finally have like, you're constructing your moveset and like learning new icon abilities and like kind of theory crafting like your, what your like abilities are gonna be in your docket. But in terms of like, let's say dungeon design, for example, dungeon this game, dungeon design doesn't really exist that game. You're going pretty much in a straight line, like a DMC stage, because, you know, and none That's of the encounters are even like enjoyable because it's like trash mobs are not even worth fighting and the boss are always like recycled. It's always like the same big axe dude or this uh I don't know, like a uh, leopard thing. I forgot what I it think was, so. I think there's I think there's two main things with sixteen that really drag it down for me. One, I don't think that battle system is anywhere dy- anywhere near dynamic enough or interesting enough to, like, carry a game of its length. Yeah, for sure. Two, you know, two, the nice thing about DMC, it only lasted less than fucking 12 hours, usually. And had a better <laughs> battle system. Yes. And, and the other thing is, is that there is so much fluff that feels like the only way to explain it is is it's designed to try and counter criticisms that the game's not an RPG, and it would just be better if if that fluff wasn't in there to begin uh, with. I know Alex has made that exact same argument too. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. Wait, with that. I, think. I, I yeah, feel Quentin, like. Go ahead. What does Quentin think? I want to know what Quentin. Oh, thinks. sorry, sorry, sorry. Um. This is going to be kind of lame to say, but I, I think Alex and James are both right. I, I veer a little bit closer to Alex in terms of thinking it should stick around. Um, I love the cast, even if, yes, some of them are, are criminally wasted at times. Um, I, I love the world, the themes, even if a lot of that is tossed away in the third act. You know, um, the, the icon battles just on the, the pure visual spectacle of it. Um, some of the music, that sort of thing. At the same time, I could never, ever push for it to be in the top five because of all the fluff that absolutely James nailed it. It feels like they were just saying, oh, yeah, wait for those RPG elements. Here they are. Um, here's the mid quests, you know, like um, and and just, yeah, like the, the battle system. I get tired of it by the end of the game. I'm, I'm just tired. And, Can I? And that's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I honestly, I think if if we're all in agreement that the worst parts of this game are the stuff that's the closest to what could be constri- considered the RPG elements. It sounds yeah. like everyone's in agreement that this game would have been better if it wasn't an RPG and as an RPG, it's bad. And I think if we're in agreement on that, it can't be in the top 10. It's a bad well, RPG the- and we're called RPG site. <laughs> Yeah, well, top um, my thinking is is that it's definitely kind of on the outside looking in right now. But if we're going to keep it out of the top ten, let's find ten games that are clearly above it. You know, sort of thing. Very easy. That's very easy. Am I the only one who hasn't played this? I'm just I'm I am watching it amusement. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What what are some of these other games that are down here that we can talk to? Remnant two. Remnant two definitely. Wandering Sword, I'm kind of like not in top ten. I like it. Yeah, a lot. I haven't finished it. Gonna, it's got some cool gonna, mechanics. Oh, maybe I'm just being okay. maybe I'm being too oh, differential because oh, I like. I want to be I want to be fringe on Wandering Sword. Oh, okay, like, so here I think it's a really cool got, game. I kind of <laughs> got obvious. Likely I would fight for a Wandering fringe. Sword over sixteen. Like, like, 
Yeah, um, Remnant 2, man, I really like Remnant 2, but there's, like, other games on this list that didn't make it there, like, more. <laughs> but I feel, but as a site, like, if, if we're in agree, like, if there's more in agreement here for Remnant 2, like, I'm also down because I really like Remnant 2 a lot. I mean, I, mean, I haven't well. played this, but I know three people who have. James, Josh mm-hmm. 1, and Josh 2, and you all like it, so. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I'm totally okay. How about this is a hard one because I think most of us here played this years ago. Trails to Azure. Nah, it's 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 my favorite Trails game, but I just I don't know. Me with Trails is just so mixed these days. It's just like it's one of those things. Like it's like it was like it was like, it was like one of my favorites uh, X years ago. You know, in the modern time, uh, you it's know, hard to go against all the stuff. And uh, yeah. it's kind of like watching a Simpsons episode these days. You're like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Uh, that's that's the problem with uh, like the trails games with this group is that most of us play them in Japanese. So by the time they get localized, it's like you just don't have the passion for it as much anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I well, mean, I'm one or Daybreak tomorrow uh, next year might have like a real shot. Yeah, because that one the delay is not as long. But for this one, I played these when they first released in English unofficially with Geofront, which is then based on that, which the official translation was then based on. I always like Zero more than Azure. If this was Zero, I think did Zero sneak into the yeah, top Azure ten? Yeah, Zero wasn't our top ten so. last year. Yeah. Yeah. So like Zero I would like fight for top ten. Azure, which I played pretty much right after, I never felt as strongly about. I was like, eh, I don't like it as much as Zero. It's it's good. I'm not I'm not gonna say it's a bad game. It's good. It's one of my favorite trails games. It's probably like my third favorite. But I, I'm not gonna push for top ten and it sounds like no one here really is for Azure. I haven't played it, so I'm watching hey. it. I'll just say, um, I mean, I put it on here, but at the same time, I don't have any strong feelings about it, about it going away. Um, I get that I'm the, you know, the snail kind of here out of everyone that's, that's really into trails. Um, this was my first time with it. Had a blast. Uh, a little scared of, of some of the things to come with, with the commentary I've seen about, you know, well, looking back, I, I sure wish this panned out better, but you know, on its own, I, I think it's great. I also, think that there are probably 10 better games. Well, if, if you're the snail, know. then I'm just like a rock. I don't even move at all. Well, the thing is, like, with <laughs> this game is, like, I feel this game is actually better than Zero for me, but the problem with it, it's like, this is when the Trails formulas start to become formulaic. Like, it's keep repeating these formulas. Oh, we're in a pinch! What are we gonna do? Your friend comes out of nowhere and save you. Oh, you and mean then... the not-so-fast? Yeah, it, it's yeah. like, all the problems comes from this, and no one seems to Ciao. die. Ciao. Literally, you have people coming out of nowhere to save Estella and Joshua and Trails in the Sky first chapter. I know, All the but, time. But now All it's, the time. It's taken to, like, a next level. And then nobody actually, like, even dies anymore in this storyline. They'll die in a flashback. Or wait, we match a clone your make an extra clone so you can use it as a spare body later on. Okay, we're getting out, we're getting out yeah, of here. You're, you're, like, just, you're, just vent, you're just venting about okay. the state of the franchise. Okay, okay. It's we're, like, getting, yeah, we're getting out of here. Right. Uh, okay, okay. A good game, not top ten. Okay. okay, I'm just gonna ask it, I'm going to ask Brian about this because I know he's also played Wild Hearts. I really, really like it. It's, I would say it's top ten material, but I know that I'm not going to be able to to win that argument unless you agree with that. <laughs> so how do you feel I about en- it? I enjoyed Wild Hearts more than Chained Echoes or Final Fantasy. Okay, then we're in agreement. My main thing with Wild Hearts is, is that despite like any like performance issues at launch, it's a game that had a vision. Like the whole like Fortnite-esque like 
uh, crafting stuff actually really worked. And I loved how it was, uh-huh. it gave you another thing to consider for your like, uh, loadout and when facing different monsters and whatnot. It's strange because I wasn't expecting it to work as well as it did. Like when you talk about here's how you build a, a wall or a catapult or a, or a hammer. I was like, that's not going to work. Is that going to be fun? And then like, 20 hours later, my favorite thing is to do like the giant comically big the hammer fucking, that like fucking mallet <laughs> that slings down on a monster's head when you knock him down. Like, hell it's yeah. Like, it's like it's made out of wood, but it still goes rubber hose when it smacks down. Yeah. It's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, okay. hell yeah. Okay, switching gears. Looking at this list here, I'm actually willing to knock off Chain Echoes at this point because as much as I like defended it, I actually do agree with Josh that it does kind of feel like too much inspiration from other games where it's just like, this is just this from this. Um, I still like that game quite a bit, but I do think it is a little bit of a black mark that would prevent it from being like a best game of this year. So what does Um, that mean? I have a question for you guys. So if uh, Wild Hearts' only drawback is this performance issue, has all that been fixed now or is that still an issue? It's fine on consoles, and if you have a good enough CPU, like, they they did put a lot of patches in on PC that's in a better state, but also, I mean, probably not the best person to ask about that, so. Uh, yeah, I, so, I, I got I got past, like, the first, like, big boss, and then I, then I just, there were other things, but, like, from, from a little I played, I was like, okay, there's, like, a vision here that there's, it seems really cool with how they implemented building into, like, the Monster Hunter formula with this game, so I definitely uh, want to get back to it. So, a couple of games that were still sort of in the fringe category here that we talked about a bit already. World of Horror and Small Saga? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Paige had to step out. You know, uh, that's fine. Um, I, I would take down, I would take out Small Saga. It's a really, really cool RPG. A, a nice, brief six and a half hour ride. Uh, but, you know, it, it kinda, it's kind of hitting, like, you know, all, like, the, the greatest hits of, like, JRPG tropes in it. And that's fine, but it's like it, it, with a with a honey I shrunk the kids and twist to it. Based on but the arguments a, made in this long podcast, World of Horror just seems like a more unique, more interesting, yeah. better yeah. argument. So mm-hmm. of those two. Mm-hmm. So how many well, games like, do we World have? Of Horror we World of Horror we've given a lot of accolades to. I, so yeah, I'm gonna kinda I, put it Yeah, it's like I haven't played it yet, but for example, look at looking at the recent reviews on on Steam, it's overwhelmingly positive. So obviously, like I, I'm willing to 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 agree that that's top ten material likely. So I I don't know. I just realized yeah, we did not have did we not have in Stars and Time on this list? I I, I, I was just it. about to I was just about to say, but like both it, uh, Paige and like and Junior stepped out. And, I, oh, and then they, 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 they conveyed it that like the best thing about that game is that story and uh, writing and storytelling. And but then, they like, said uh, the but, gameplay but, was pretty bare bones. And so. yeah. Junior even said that outright True. that he wanted that game to win the category because he knew that it was his best his best shot to be represented. Yeah. So, so Luna, Luna, right, Luna so- said. Uh, Lunacid is very good, but also I'm the only one that's played it, so I don't I know how much it. my. I don't know how much my arguments will help. Uh, it's one of those, like, we don't get enough, like, real-time, like, uh, first-person dungeon crawlers. Like, we, I hope that, that this game doing, like, decent on Steam means that more people will be willing to, uh, make, uh, Kingsfield likes. Because honestly, I, I, I love this style of game. I love the secrets. I love the puzzles. I love the level design. 
The combat is like the one thing I have an issue with. The box fights are kind of eh, but it's it's great. I don't know if I can argue it into the top ten because I'm the only one that's played it. But and and because it's like very clearly just like aping Kingsfield. There's not too much that sets it apart. So, so what do we have? A All right, so here? twelve by my count. So. We have to knock out two of these games from our top ten. Baldur's Gate 3, Octopath Traveler 2, and Legend of Zelda are probably safe. Uh, Based on the arguments made, I would say Lies of P and Fate Samurai Remnant are probably safe. Phantom Liberty as well seems safe. I'm doing the ones that I've already had. I I agree with this so far. I would say those six are top ten. We'll have to argue top five later, but based on all the arguments made, I think those are those ones. Um, Remnant right. Two. I mean, no one's really said anything bad about Remnant Two. What's what's? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm for I'm for it. <laughs> so I, same. Uh, yeah, I would. Wander, Wandering Sword was kind of this fringe one. I I, I would rather knock out FF16 before Wandering Sword. To be honest, I am in the same boat. I I am kind of like in the FF16. The more you play it, the more you dislike it. Wandering Sword has a very clear identity of what it wants to be and pulls it off pretty admirably. I think I think the last like fourth of that game it has pacing issues for sure like the, the last region that you go into is pretty much a very it feels very linear in that in that way where they're, they're kind of wrap trying to wrap it up but the way that like that story manifests into into that game too you kind of become i don't want to say you know you become superman but you definitely become like a martial you feel like a martial arts master trying to stop like a like a a, a very inevitable war about the uh that's about to like ignite in that game Sounds I just like all of Misha Nall's endings. Yeah, whatever you guys I, I, decide on Final Fantasy 16, my hands are clean. And I, I just think it must that, be nice. <laughs> uh, I just, I just think the Wandering Sword is a, is a way more realized RPG in terms of like what it wants to do. It has a very clear visual of what it wants to do, and and, and I'm instilling, looking instilling, instilling that that feeling of like mastering martial arts uh, and like and, and building up your character throughout the uh, through your martial art like journey is such like a cool feeling in that game. Looking at cultivation methods feels so cool in that game. I mean, looking at the looking at the five looking at the five games that are left, we have four games that have a very strong vision and unique gameplay in at least one like one sort of form, and then we have Final Fantasy sixteen. I feel bad about it, but I can't say I disagree. And one thing we haven't talked about on sixteen that frustrated me as like a gearhead is you go through the game. And a very RPG, very common staple is that you defeat enemies and you get materials. Like, here's magic ash, or here's bomb ashes, or here's sharp stones, or whatever. And it's like, oh, you got 400 sharp stones, now you can do the linear upgrade to your to your one sword, or your one accessory. And it just felt like it's, it almost felt like a vestige of, like, an, like, a, like a more involved system in development that then got paired back really far. Because by the end of the game, I'm just like, I've got 1,000 magic ash, I've got 800... Do's yeah, it, and it, it, none, none well, at it one matters. point, at one point inside, at one point inside baseball, uh, it did have multiple weapons. So, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked. Each icon had a specific weapon. Shiva was dual swords. Titan yeah, that would have been great dual. for that game. That would have been amazing uh, for that. Game. So yeah. when you switch I icon, and five would also switch weapons, and they took that. That would have immediately fixed my problems with the combat. Same. You Same. know what's cool with DMC? You can have multiple weapons in the MC. <laughs> I also would not be shocked if there was actually elemental weaknesses at one point because they say, "Oh, 
your let, your the the view of the spells looks different, but they're all exactly the let same. Let me remind you, you when you fire a fucking fire spell into a bomb, it just does normal damage. There's no immunity. It doesn't fill up the bomb. It's just like it's just like off for aesthetic. Like tell, like how can I fucking vouch for fucking FF16 when it doesn't have like any sort of like elemental like interactions in this game? It's like what the I'm just gonna put it this way. Um, most gears, I'd probably be fighting a little harder right now for for 16 to be in like the you know the lower end of this. Um, I, I can't, you know, everything that's being pointed out. I agree, and just just the fact that like, and I think we all kind of suspected it at minimum that there was eventually, you know, at some point there was more going on with the equipment system and the upgrade system and all that. Um, even just without you know Alex just saying it just now. Um, thinking about that again and thinking about how damn linear it is going from sword to sword and everyone's going to go from that sword to that sword. There's absolutely no reason not to, um, you know, everybody is going to say, Oh, now it's time to upgrade to this type of, you know, uh, bangle or whatever. I don't even remember. Um, that's just not good. Yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's a few places where it seems like it's going to branch out. Like, Oh, I've got a few, cause you get like the icon weapon shards that you like put together. And it, First of all, it's like two stats, right? It's like attack and stagger, and that's it. I'm not saying more stats is better, but there's, there's not a lot differentiating the weapons. And then, like, at one point in the game, it's like, oh, now you've got whatever the name of his, like, iconic sword is, like the Invictus or whatever. It must, yeah. it must not be iconic if I can't remember it, but it's <laughs> like, oh, you had, you had a few choices in swords? Well, as part of the story, you get this one, and it's better than anything you've had so far. You just equip this one now. It's like, oh, okay, I guess I just equip this one now. Um yeah. The thing that stands out to me about the, like, equipment and the illusion of actually having a progression system there is that when you upgrade a in a piece of equipment you already have, you'll get, like, some health, and it's like, oh, cool, I get some extra health. You get, like, 5 or 10 HP when you start off the game with, like, over a 1,000. It's nothing. Actually nothing. I think you know what game actually like- did? Go ahead, Chow, then I'll go. I was going to say, like, the only sense of progression you feel is, like, unlocking icon abilities. But in the end, there is, like, nothing involved to it because you could simply reset it to assign it where you want to be, you know, because they don't want players to be screwed over because they assign the wrong abilities, right? So, I don't know. In the end, I feel it's just like this entire game just has no direction where it wants to be. And we didn't even cover the worst part about this game, which is the side quests. A lot of them feel mm-hmm. half-baked with... Mm-hmm. With only a few interesting ones that I could probably count with my hands, you know. And there's a number of interesting ones, but they're all at the end. They're all at the end, yeah. There's like six or seven that are pretty damn good, but it's like, oh, you've unlocked the final dungeon? Ignore that for a bit. Do the actual side quests. And And a lot of them require you to have done all the shitty side quests beforehand, too. I I always always dread... Anyways... Go actually. You know how many people just just go and and get to that end point? And by then, they're like, I'm too exhausted of this. Uh, There's no way that these are going to be a higher quality. And they miss, like, some of the absolute standout best moments of the game because it's, and it's not, you can't blame them. It's the, you know, it's it's just how they're trained to feel by that hour quarter mark. Exactly. And 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 like, like, imagine, like, I can't, I, I do not know a single person. That got to like the back, like last stretch of that game, and then when you finally got to like the lo- almost last part of that game, you got the final batch of fucking side quests that were like a billion pages long, and you're like, "Yay, I can't wait!" <laughs> you know, no, no, no one I know is like, "Yes, hell yeah, thank God, I have to do yeah. more side quests." <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think I watched one streamer. What they did was like, oh, they just go straight to the last boss, and they didn't fully understand the ending. And they're like, you should have done the side quests. I'm like, uh, it was just, I was exhausted. I just want to get this over with at this point. I have one question just for something that I did think was actually good with the game. But when I went to like read common, you know, opinion later, it seemed like I was alone on this. One of my favorite late game boss fights was the Barnabas Odin fight. Because it's a little bit more grounded, it's not just a full kaiju yeah, quick time event. I love that. I love that fight and the, and the first Hugo fight, but he's untransformed. Those are my two standout fights in that game. Yeah, everyone always says that the Titan fight is their standout. I, I, I did I, not I care like for that. Titan loss. I did not care for Titan loss at all. Yeah, it's a cool fight, but the thing is, once you see it once, you don't want to do it again. You just want to hit the or the Bahamut fight. fight, or not? Bah- is it Bahamut? Yeah, Bahamut fight yeah, Bahamut with fight. Phoenix and and Ifrit. My favorite, and even even when I was doing Final Fantasy mode, I got to Bartimus Odin, and it was a real tough tough ass fight, and I really really loved it. My probably my favorite fight in the game. And then I go to like Reddit, and they're like, this this fight wasn't as cool as Titan or Bahamut. And I'm like, eh, I liked it a lot more than those. Oh, I feel like the, the more grounded yeah. human, 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 human fights. Yes, I'm going to Reddit. Okay, well, unfortunately, I don't mean to like bag on Final Fantasy 16, but I think the argument's kind of been well made that it falls short. Yeah, and I, I, I yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, I accept it. Yeah, same as Alex. When I look yeah, at this list, I would not put Galleria in the top ten, but also I haven't played 16, so I can't like say I would actually do 16 because I can't. So. Well, you it looks know. like we're it looks like we're at eleven now, so we need to cut one uh, last one. Let me just I... say one thing about Wandering Sword, real quick here, because Josh put up a defense for it, but I also just want to say, like, I don't really care too much about like I feel like a martial arts master. Like, I don't really care about that. I just think it's. I said this earlier. This game actually reminds me a lot of Romancing Saga Three, which is a game I really like. So I like this game too, and that is just. Un, like maybe opposite or unlike 16, Final Fantasy 16, this game is just, it kind of just plops you on a world map and it just basically says, like, go, play, go somewhere, do something. I would like to play the video game. Thank yeah, you and, video like, game. you can just pick a direction and go, and you have, like, a main quest line, but I like just, it's very open-ended, it is kind it is open-world-ish, there are stories that you run into, similar to a saga game, and you the way you level up just kind of depends on who you run into because it's like which masters do you want to learn from and get skills from them and whatnot. And to me, that's just there's so many choices to make and decisions have, to make. And, and your main character have different weapons. Yeah, so like I'm using sword because I'm boring. I bet Josh was more interesting and did pole arm. I guess. I don't know. I, I, no, I, I did. I did swords also, but I, <laughs> I know friends who did fists, who did uh, the the pole arm. They could have a, They have a, a fucking hidden weapon category, which is like throwing knives and kunai. Yeah, no, I will say I'm going to tease you a bit. Adam, what was the weapon that you used in Well Long? Uh, sword. What's the <laughs> weapon you used in Neo 2? Sword. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, Adam what's the last game you didn't pick the default weapon? Type? Uh, I don't know. What'd what you use fu- in Lies of P? What's sort of funny in this game, in, in Wandering Sword, um, it's, uh, you can tell, like, I have, like, I'm an RPG, I have an RPG gamer brain. I was actually talking to Josh about this when I was like talking about like my gameplay and strategy. I don't really remember my character names. They're Chinese names, so part of that's on me that those those names just don't stick with me as much because I'm not as used to them, admittedly. But to me, when I'm playing this game, I'm like, oh, I have the sword guy, the spear guy, the fist guy, 
the sword girl, the evil face. and the saber girl. And I, my point is, is this like I kind of think of it just like me putting together a party of combatants, and I just think all the mechanics there are really cool. Some of the weaknesses to this game, it is like Chinese indie. A lot of the text you can kind of tell, like the text and the font and the UI is very basic. It's it feels like Arial font on like a black background. It's sometimes very basic. Some of the UI stuff is kind of convoluted and not elegant oh. at all. Um, the uh, controls get a little bit weird in terms of I'm using a controller. It feels like it might be better with keyboard and mouse. So it's kind of like that polish stuff isn't as good. But in terms of like the RPG nerd stuff, which is the type of stuff that I tend to lean towards, I like it. So. I was just going to say, like, the UI, for me personally, it feels like they put a PS1 game to a modern PC game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. The, 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 the inventory manager that I gave is pretty rough with controllers, so that I usually use keyboard and mouse for that stuff, but I think what it does, it uh, well, it does so, so admirable. Well done, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I want to root for that game. Yeah. So it seems like we have actually a fairly simple thing to to wrap up. We need to cut one from the top 10 and then figure out two other games to move up to the top five. Unless I'm yes. like misreading something. No, nope, no, that's pretty much it. Uh, uh, basically we haven't really officially moved on to top five, but we're pretty damn sure that Baldur's Gate, Octopath and Legend of Zelda are going to be there. But before cut we Galeria. get there, we, we, we need to cut one. I don't want to cut uh, Galeria. I, I said it in the design section. I said in the story section, it's a bold game. It's not without its faults. I'll be the first to admit it. But the way that it's structured is incredible for what it's trying to do. And I love how it, it basically just kind of turns the, the entire like a uh, dungeon RPG genre almost on its head. Like, I love the amount of different types of units you can get, and especially when you, like, uh, soul transfer, you can... It really gives you a lot of options for your party come the end game. And the story, again, I know it lost in Stars and Time. I still think it's incredible. The gameplay's incredible. Like, the, the one complaint I'd have, maybe, is that the visuals for the dungeons are a bit bland. Like, one of the strongest things from Refrain's dungeons is that they all had a very unique identity, and it's like you could describe which dungeon you were in, and people would know exactly which one you're talking about. In this one, it's like, which color of dungeon you're in? Except for the final dungeons, which actually look different, unlike everything else in the game. But I love Labyrinth of Galeria. I absolutely think it deserves to be in the top ten, but I also understand that there's so many other great games on this list, and no matter what, something's going to get cut. So I, I, I will, I, okay, I'll take the fall for this. I'll take the fall for this. I, I, I nominate World of Horror to be out of the top ten, just barely not making top ten because, at its core, it is a roguelike structure. It is not really like a like a like a big like, you know, from from beginning to end RPG. It is a, it is a game that, um, you know, it 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 encourages multiple playthroughs, multiple runs. Like you do, you do, you do start from like level one every time, and you're, um, you know, the, the most, the, the highest level you're going to get to a playthrough is like level seven, level eight at max. But it, it, it very much, you, you reach an end point to that game that like the more you play it, like the, 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 like you learn the ins and outs of that system, but eventually you reach an end point where like it'll become repetitive as you're trying to reach for new endings. Uh, you kind of tell, you kind of described as like you see the cogs 
Yeah, where it's like, oh, that's you, you. You do this first, yeah. and then this, yeah. because that gets you this, and this is the efficient way to do that. I, I think I think it's got its, its props at best art, um, and that, that's really no other game on this list looks like this. This game, and it's really just a, a testament to like you know the power of creativity. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, Oh, oh, what'd God. you do? Oh, there you go. For those I, listening, our document just disappeared for a split second. I stopped yeah, breathing uh, for a split second. It's like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, am uh, willing to take the fall on like uh, the, the, the reach a consensus, consensus, consensus. And I know that Vims feels very, very, very strongly about Galeria. And, you know, do you sung its praises throughout the podcast that we've done? I, I'm okay with leaving World of War out of the top. Um, I was going to say, you know, I, if James feels more strongly of Galilea, do you feel Wild Hearts is better, or do you feel Galilea is way better? I, mean, I think Wild Hearts is a really cool game, too. Like, I'm with them, that even though I haven't played yeah, with them, like, yeah. it, it, it is such a unique, like, sort of take on the genre that, like, it's not just merely mimicking Monster Hunter, like, you know, yeah. something Dauntless and other sorts of, like, Monster Hunter, like, inspired games do. It, it takes that formula and adds, like, uh, a genuine, cool twist to them that actually, like, like, like changes that like gameplay flow enough that like it brands out, it, it forges its own identity. There's not something that's like merely mimicking Monster Hunter. It's trying yeah. to find ways to enhance the formula and, and present it in a new, unique way. Yeah, it's the first like Monster Hunter quote unquote clone that I feel like stands on its own two feet instead of just trying to be another Monster Hunter. Okay. So, Monster Hunter with new hat. Yeah. So before we move on. We're kind of getting where the, the finish line is in sight. We've got a top 10 of all those games that I listed out earlier. Our top 10. So these are going to be the ones that are going to be published with short blurbs. on. If you're listening to this podcast, you've already read about likely uh, on, on our website. For 2023, our RPGs of the year, we've got Baldur's Gate 3, Octopath Traveler 2, Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Lies of P, Fate, Samurai Remnant, Cyberpunk, Phantom Liberty, Remnant 2, Labyrinth of Galleria, The Moon Society, Wild Hearts, and Wandering Sword, with our first out, not uh, unofficially, not not a real title, being like World of Horror and Final Fantasy 16, not quite making the top ten. This feels so right. So, like, like James surmised a bit ago, we need to pick a top five out of the top ten, and it's—I don't want to say it's by default, but I think it kind of is. Uh, we've got Baldur's Gate three, Octopath Traveler two, and Tears of the Kingdom kind of earmarked into the top five, and I don't have any strong feelings that anyone's feels against that. Yeah. So we've got to pick two others to be in the top 10. First, it might be easier just to say games like Wild Hearts and Wandering Sword were kind of fringe in the first place, so they don't get to go to top five, maybe. I'm wondering if it's easier to say, like, what doesn't go up? I think it goes up. Why doesn't everyone just say two, and we'll see what the most common two are, at least as a starting point. I want idea. to, like, from this list, I want to bump Fate Samurai Remnant to the top five. At least that's for me. I I, I agree with that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with that. So for, um, so for me, it's Lies of P and Cyberpunk. I want to hear from uh, Josh, told, Josh too, because uh, he's the one that put Lies of P in the top ten. Do you believe Lies of P goes into top five? No. Mm. It's really good, but I don't think it goes into the top five. Yeah, which of these games, two of these games, do you think should be in the top? Um, hmm. Which of these games? Let's see. 
Yeah, we have our top ten, and we're basically just deciding between how we split them in half, basically. I was going to say Fate to four, but I'm not sure about you. I don't. I would not put Fate in top five, but I might be alone on that. I personally think the structure of like going from city to city, doing just battle after battle after battle against like hundreds of mooks and like the same bosses over and over, it kind of wore on me. Like, how many times do I need to fight Berserker, like Samson? I don't know, I fought him, like, 20 times. I feel like Wandering Sword would go into top five. Have you I mean, like, it? the two I would pick, the two I would pick out of it, I mean, the, the two I think I feel comfortable promoting based on, like, what we've said here and what I've what I've seen and played would be Cyberpunk and Wandering Sword uh, into top five. Did you have you played Wandering Sword? Wandering Sword? That was unexpected. Well, I haven't well, I mean, played it, but like, I, like everything I've read, everything we've said so far seems like, I don't know, I guess I have a novelty bias, but it seems like a really different and interesting kind of RPG. I haven't played it either, but I will say, based on the strength of your argument, Adam, you, like, you've described it as what I would consider as a top five game, just, just the way, and Josh won as well. Like, I haven't played it, but you guys have really argued pretty strongly for it. I'm actually going to copy what was um, just said to a T. Uh, I think all of these sound great. I think based on the arguments, I, I haven't played any of these either. Um, it's Wandering Sword and Cyberpunk for me as well. As someone that's played neither, I think that seems perfectly fair to me. I I, I think that there could be an argument for Wild Hearts in top five, but it would be a weak one. So. So we kind of, these are the three that I've heard. <laughs> me, 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 okay, you have to understand, I pro- me and Adam are probably both sharing the same expression. We probably both have the shocked Pikachu face, but unironically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Like, I, I don't think me or Adam were ever expecting this here to see Wandering Sword at the top five, to be honest. I don't know about Us. you, Adam. So maybe, so maybe that's the first one out. Maybe we go to. Oh, I mean, I mean, like, I would be down for Marty Sword being tough. I'm just like, shocked, genuinely shocked, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, so all like... I, say is, I, I don't think it's a winner, right? But as in, I don't think it's the game. But I think I feel quite strongly about the cyberpunk thing because not only is Phantom Liberty amazing, but it's part of the whole thing about um, this is what that game as a whole, should have been to begin with, and they they got there in the end. <laughs> um, okay, I, 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 have, I have a proposition. So, split it up like this, and then people mark an X between Fate, Cyberpunk, and 2077, which one would you like to see in the in, in the top five? Oh, okay. I mean, I'm just going to say verbally, I'm voting for Wandering Sword, because I've played Fate, and i played Wandering Sword, I haven't played Cyberpunk, so by default, I, I mean, I'm not super hot on Fate, I have to pick Wandering Sword. Yeah, I haven't well, I haven't played Wandering Sword, but it. it's like one of those things where it's like, it sounds excellent, and also, it it's the underdog, it feels good, feels good to give it to the underdog. Okay, so it's looking like Wandering Sword and Cyberpunk are, bo- are both top five. Jeez, I was not expecting this, so yeah, the Shock Pikachu... <laughs> Like I said, uh, I've, I, I, need, I feel like I need to hedge this a bit. But like, Go ahead. Like, um, everything in the, so far, most of our top 10 is, um, very, uh, very strong entries in familiar genres. So I think, especially this year, um, novelty carries a lot more weight than it would, 
otherwise. That's absolutely year. true. I agree with that 100%. I do like Baldur's Gate, Octopath, Zelda, oops, Zelda, Cyberpunk, Wandering Sword. Have we even reviewed Wandering Sword? Out. Do you want to review it, Josh? Oh. <laughs> I'm not done I with it. I was thinking about reviewing. I was still, I'm still sort of plinking away at um, uh, Colony Ship. Actually, oh yeah, colony ship. Oh, so, and um, and and some stuff for 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 for. I mean, for I might review obligations. Yeah, I might be able to uh, do a bit of a review for Wandering Sword then, since I actually completed it. Um, um yeah, I want to read it. Yeah, I definitely. To be clear, I'm like 30 hours into it, haven't quite beaten it yet. I think I'm pretty close to the end. Uh, also, a thing that we really didn't mention about this game is like this game does offer both turn-based and real-time modes at its live alive format. So, like. Usually in this game, like in turn-based mode, it plays like live alive, where it like uh, battles take out uh, take place on this like kind of tilt-shifted grid, and you can like when uh, uh, your characters and your and your opponents both visually, you can see their action bar fill up, and once their action bars filled up, they can move to a space, go attack, uh, and so forth. And like when you, of course, when it's turn-based, it's fro- you know it's all frozen, but in real time, it actually uh, the, that limitation gets like. You know, it, it no longer exists. So as soon as like any anyone's action bar is filled in real time mode, they immediately get to act irrespective of turn order. So like, there's like a lot of one versus one duels in this game. So like, for us, like tougher one versus one duels, you can almost kind of cheese it with real time mode because you can actually actively dodge with this real time mode because you can visually see the the action bar gauges of your enemies in that That's game. Awesome. So <laughs> it's kind of a, like a weird little twist to it. <laughs> So it seems like our top five, in no order, remind you, uh, for RPGs of 2023, we've got Baldur's Gate 3, Octopath Traveler 2, Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Cyberpunk, Phantom Liberty, and then Wandering Sword, Shock Pikachu. And then not in, in the top ten, but not reaching the top five, to round it out, we've got Fate Samurai Remnant, Lies of P, Remnant 2, Labyrinth of Galleria, and Wild Hearts. That's another one that I wouldn't have expected going in, but I definitely feel like it feels right. All right. So I'm just going to ask it. I obviously would not be opposed to Baldur's Gate 3 being the top um, game, but I think the more I think about it, Octopath 2 is the RPG that I had the most fun with this year. I do feel like it's between those two games. Oh, man. Oh, man. I, yeah. Uh, first of all, just, just, just so we don't unceremoniously discard them, genuinely, does anyone feel that Zelda, Cyberpunk, or Wandering Sword deserve above those two? Let's no. do it, Adam, so that we're, we're uh, doing it. Wandering well, Sword. Wandering Sword. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Wandering Sword has a couple of flaws that hold it back, just mostly yeah. polished things. Yeah. Oh. We fooled everyone to stop making it to top five. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, oops, I, I ended up doubling some of these. My bad. Um, right. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, got, but yeah, that's fine. For Baldur's Gate 3 and Octopath to be the consideration for the winner, I, I think those are the, the top two for the to kind of fight over it. I do think it's obvious, and I do love Octopath. Um, and what's interesting, actually, I think, is... To some degree, what you have here is two throwbacks in a, in a weird way. You have kind of, a, yeah. a CRPG, uh, a, a very pure CRPG and a very pure JRPG, if you're allowed to use the term. And 
I guess, but I think the thing is, Octopath is a lovely game, and it's like a big warm hug of a game. Um, but the scope and scale, and just Octopath is a lovely game, and it's a brilliant game. Baldur's Gate is a brilliant game, and it has its moments where it's lovely as well. Also, moreover, it is just a fucking bonkers, astonishing achievement as well. Um, it's just, and, and although ultimately Wigridgen was the best game, of course, but I think in years to come we will look back and this game will be a turning point for the entire genre. Um, I agree. In the I sense agree. that it has, it has, it has it has changed the game and there there are many developers who are looking at this and going, oh, so we can make this sort of game. Um, and I think you'll even have companies that have perhaps thought about making games like this, like Bioware, for instance, who are probably going, holy shit, we actually could have made one of those rather than I- trying to find ways to make it more action oriented, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, I have to imagine right now. Yeah. Game. I have to imagine right now that there are probably people at Bioware, you know, like, I don't know what Dreadwolf's going to be like, you know, but they're probably, like, just thinking what Alex just said, just, oh, you know, well, food for thought for next time, you know. If there is a next time. If there I is know we're, time. we're at a point where we're kind of, ha- we have to nitpick one of, the, even though anywhere in the top ten we're kind of nitpicking, but especially here. When we were listening to the music of Octopath Traveler 2, I was thinking, this might be my game of the year. But now that I'm looking at it and I'm deciding between the two, Octopath Traveler 2, still, the individual stories are much more cohesive. We already talked about the varieties much better. As a nitpick, they are still largely segregated. The cross paths things that they did where it's like two characters, like that didn't really land. Like I I thought that was kind of honest. I don't mind the segregated stories. Sorry to interrupt. But the cross path thing, I actually like forgot that was there. Because yeah, those it, don't it, matter. It, 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 yeah, it's, it's it definitely like, like it's, it's a weak band-aid over to like a like a problem yeah. a response to the first game. I feel like the more important stuff that they fixed was uh, actually having like the battle shout-outs that actually has the characters interact. And I feel like the way that the um the tra- the uh the party chat stuff is integrated better and whatnot. But I, I do agree that the cross path stuff feels like something that was added as sort of an obligation because of people's complaints. Uh, I, but I'll be honest, like when I was playing through it, I didn't care too much about the stories being separated because it felt like everything else about the game, I was having such a great time with it. Like hell, yeah, like Baldur's Gate 3 side quests are obviously incredible, but there's some really good side quests in, in uh, Octopath 2 as well. They're more bite-sized. It's like, but I feel like it, it almost feels rare for like RPGs these days to have consistently good side quests. And I feel like we're looking at two games here that kind of both had really good side quests. And the best part is it doesn't hold your hand. You have to figure out your, yourself on how to solve these side quests. Instead, like and, most and games, yeah. you just, in, instead of like Final Fantasy 16, where you're like, 
there's an objective marker. Just head over there, talk to that guy, and go to the next one. And I keep thinking about, like, this one side quest, like, back when the game first came out. I think I was actually talking Future Hour. It was was someone where it was like, okay, there's this, like, sword in a stone. It's like, okay, uh... You can get a pickaxe to get it out, or you can get a full, like a group of eight people to pull, to manage to pull it out of the stone because that's enough force to get it out. So there's like side quests that have multiple different ways for you to to clear it, and it it happens enough that it's like really neat that they actually thought about that. Yeah, there's like so many side quests with multiple solutions. You're talk just about like the bridge. Can we talk about the bridge too, along similar veins? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. You have to have all those people, like the max number of people, like following your your party along, so that so that that wooden bridge collapses, so that you can get to like a super boss dungeon. Yeah, the, the super boss, which is phenomenal, just absolutely phenomenal. You can't do that in most other games, you know. I think what we're what we're saying here is that, like Octopath Traveler One had weaker stories so it's like man this game would be much better if only the stories interacted and then Octopath 2 has much stronger stories so then you're like you know what these are stories are really good on, on on par you know some are weaker than others but a lot of them are quite excellent and i don't really need them to interact so i think that was kind of a, a, a wishful thinking from reception of the first game and then they uh, they addressed it and it was like you know what i don't really i don't really need that anymore because what you've got here actually hits hits the mark Apart from the campfire scene, the campfire scene nailed it. I, I would, yeah, I, I need that. I need that scene in the game. <laughs> yeah, that like the true ending stuff, like it, like the cross path stuffs or whatever. But like the final conclusion, where everything actually does come together, and you see how bits and pieces of each story was part of a larger whole. Yep, I feel like, yeah, it's like I feel like it's the best of both worlds. You have the separate stories about different people's separate lives, and it's like, yeah, their stories don't have to be directly connected to everyone else's. But then at the very end, you realize, oh, there is that connection. It doesn't devalue each of their, like, individual character arcs. It just goes to show, it just, it's like something that thematically, after all the traveling they've gone through, it only makes sense that they would stand together to, like, push back the real big bad and it really makes that final like twist in the final battle like all the cooler it's like holy shit yep i do think it's if it's it's still a tiny bit superficial but i guess that's sort of a a, 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 it's it's a consequence of the structure of the game you can't really without changing the structure of the game even more significantly you can't really make it less superficial right um, but yeah, I, I, I respect it a tremendous deal and it is, it is a very rare example, especially for a Square Enix game of a developer truly, um, looking at the feedback from the previous game and absolutely nailing on almost to a hundred percent. I don't think it's, I don't think quite to a hundred percent in every element, but almost nailing on to a hundred percent and addressing of those issues. I really, I really value that they said, like, this is a game about eight travelers. Like, it's, we're not going to make it a single party traditional one. You know, we're going to make it what we want. We, we're going to still address the feedback. And I also do want to say that I've been talking at length about Octopath 2 here. I still think that Baldur's Gate wins. Octopath Traveler yeah. 2 just has the inherent, has the inherent kind of interesting nuggets to latch onto for discussion because you can compare it to the first game. 
Baldur's Gate 3, there's, there's comparisons you can make. You can compare it to, of course, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. You can compare it to Divinity. You can compare it to other CRPGs. Um, Baldur's Gate 3, when we talked about this on the podcast back when it came out in August, like, the thing about that game that is so compelling to, like, being a full-fat RPG for grognard nerds, and I say that with complete endearingness, is when you're going through that, comparing it to, like, Final Fantasy 16, where it's like you have a critical path and you have side quests, or even, like, Octopath, where you have a main story and then you have side quests, Baldur's Gate is just, like, you just have quests, and some of them are going to drive the story and some of them won't, but you they interact, they weave in and out, they're, they interlock, you don't know what this will this doing this task for this person is going to interlock with this one and some of them are more obvious than others like saving saving the tiefling that's being attacked by harpies isn't going to drive the story forward but going to the goblin camp might you know you don't know crazy player creativity right like it allows you to be you it lets you lead with your creative instinct which is really the best thing about a good dm in dnd right it's someone who allow players to be creative and lead with their creativity and let that creativity take them to weird and unexpected places. And that's a very difficult thing to nail in a video game because obviously you can't, you know, you you can't legislate for everything a player might do. And yet, it feels like they have. And that's the beautiful sleight of hand. Um, It's like the 2023 version of how, you know, uh, it, how in Mass Effect 2, it felt, it truly did feel like anything could happen in those final, in the, in the final stages of that game. Ten years later, twenty years later, however long, however long it's been, fifteen years later, you obviously realise it's, it's, it's quite narrow actually. Um, and it's all been well documented exactly how it all worked. But at the time, it feels completely organic and magical. And Baldur's Gate 3 is that just on a huge scale. Yeah. Well, every we talked a little bit about that world of horror with enough scrutiny, with millions of people digesting it and dissecting it. Eventually, you get to the brass tacks about how it's put together. But the the it's ability crazy to how like even that... sorry, carry on. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was gonna, gonna say, say it's crazy how. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you're I think you're on a delay compared to me or something. But go ahead, I'll let you speak. Well, I was just gonna say it's crazy how even even like creating your character, you think about. Um, this, this was mentioned in relation to Baldur's Gate earlier, Dragon Age, right? Dragon Age Origins, which was considered a, that was Bioware doing a, a spiritual successor to Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter, obviously to some degree. And they had, uh, at least in the first Dragon Age, they had the character origins and the races and stuff like that, and that was really cool. But, and actually, Mass Effect 2, right, with, with Shepard's backgrounds and stuff like that, and that's yeah. in Starfield too, Starfield's got the similar backgrounds and stuff. But all that shit disappears after a couple of hours. And if you're lucky, it, earlier in most cases. And then you might get one side quest, side quest come back that references it. In Baldur's Gate 3, that shit persists deep into the game. And it's nuts. It's crazy that to. like the tieflings that you're helping in Act 1 are still around doing things in Act 3, like Mole or... Uh, the one that ends up taking over with like Raphael's tower. And you're like, well, what if I didn't do those things earlier? And I'm sure if you digest it down, how it works, it's just like flag is character alive. They're here. If not, this person does, you know, it it, it can be boiled, but there's enough there 
where it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting to see this person again. Oh, I wasn't expecting this thing that I did in hour two to come back up in hour 22 sort of thing. It's it's quite remarkable. Yeah, I don't I don't want to be too cheeky here um, and, and in quoting this little snippet from my review when, you know, it's not exactly new information that I said this. And apparently I, I just learned that I may have described two games in reviews this year as a dance, and that's a little embarrassing. Uh, but the, the quote that I want to pull from uh, is, as I said, uh, Baldur's Gate 3 is a game that feels as reactive to you as you are to it. It's a well-scripted dance, a back and forth, that makes its world spring to life in a way that only the most finely tuned role-playing games can. And um, that, rea- that level of reactivity, to me, is always what I come back to when I'm thinking about my game of the year. Um, just the fact that it persists, and there's so much of it, and they, the, the writing never seems to lose a step. I, I you know, it, it boggles my mind how they pulled it off, but they did. So I think we're kind of clearly leaning one way, but we'll just make sure we declare it definitively. We're going to vote as our cast between Baldur's Gate 3 and Octopath Traveler 2. So let's see. I'm going to go ahead and vote for, even though I love both these games, and early in the podcast I was thinking Octopath 2 would win, I'm going to vote for Baldur's Gate 3. Here we go in order. Uh, just whoever wants to speak up first. I'm also voting Baldur's Gate for me. Baldur's Gate. Maybe we should. Maybe I should just sit. Uh, word it. Is anyone here going to vouch for Octopath over Baldur's Gate? I can't say enough how much I love that game, but um, but it's Baldur's Gate. But like Octopath, like I say, it was. It's a game that just um, it's a nostalgia bomb, and genuinely, there were moments in that game. Where it had my jaw on the floor, where it it it, it made my heart swell, where I felt where legitimately I felt myself welling up a little bit because it was evoking memories of. We talked a lot earlier when we were talking about Chain Echoes and Sea of Stars about the nostalgia, right? But Octopath Two is is almost an example of how to do that stuff more elegantly because it's not smashing you over the head going, "Hey, remember Final Fantasy Six? Remember Chrono Trigger?" It's but it, it sort of um evokes those games without without almost saying their names. Um so I love it, but I just Baldur's Gate Three is, is genuinely It's a genre defining game. Yeah, fantastic and, and brilliant and, and genre defining and I think it's probably going to be, we will look back at one of the most important games of all time. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's also it just feels like a, a healthy game to promote, like uh, as the award winner as well, because you know Larian Studios, you know, is they they manage themselves, they forge their own destiny, they're not beholden to like. Yeah, you know, it's a like higher, a higher like, company. Like I said earlier, again, I'm not going to share the exact number because I don't think they want people to know the exact number. But hearing how much money they put into that game completely from their own pocket, not knowing it would blow up like this. It's like, yeah, it was nothing but passion and hard work. They And and I'm glad to see that it's paid off. Yeah. They they really knocked it out of the park. This is definitely one of those games that's like, it feels good to just see it, like, succeed. I think it's like, the, even people who, like, who playtested the early access, like, they didn't like, like have, like, the highest, highest of high expectations for it. They're, like, even then it was still fairly in a rough spot out of like, you know, during the early access period, so people didn't know, like, what 
what to expect in the final product. And just to, for it to come out swinging uh, like this is um, astonishing. And it's it's crazy just to see, like, I th- when this game was first announced back in 2019, I believe it was 2019, PC Gaming Show. It, it, it's announced for Stadia first as a Stadia yeah, exclusive. I, yeah, I, that, it was announced in a Stadia Connect or something like that. That's so funny. Well, I, uh, I had an interview with Sven on E3 2019, and it was like, why did you announce this for Stadia? And the, the reasoning, and Sven is so down to earth, um, that he's like, well, he, you know, it, D&D is a multiplayer game. And some people don't really think of Baldur's Gate that way, even though it can be played multiplayer. But it's like the idea there was, hey, do you want to play a D&D session with me? Or instead, do you want to play Baldur's Gate 3 with me? You don't You don't need to download it. Just log into Stadia and let's go play it. So that there was there was some thought there. But, of course, that's kind of a tangent of what happened to Stadia. Wasn't it January this year where they shut down? I'm sure some of the thought um, was Google is going to give us a huge stack of money as well. I, I love Sven, but yeah. it, it, goes both, it cuts both ways, right? But... Um, right. I will say it's a perfectly viable game to play multiplayer though, because I've got some friends who are in a D and D group together, and they are playing Baldur's Gate as a group with their normal D and D group game, yeah, I play, I which is, I think is really yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it is perfectly viable to play that as like in, in a group from start to finish as well. You'll still have a blast. But it's just it's interesting because when it was first announced, it's like, uh, that's not real Baldur's Gate. You know, Baldur's Gate wasn't a turn-based game. Oh, this is just going to feel like Divinity with a D&D skin. Like, there were skeptics, and it's like, how are you going to bring in new people, etc. The, the Divinity games were well-regarded critically, but didn't let the world on fire commercially, uh, at least outside the PC space. But it just seems like Baldur's Gate 3, partially due to the amount of effort they put into it, the amount of resources they put into it, a very long early access period that not every developer can support, but they could uh, just kind of seem to bring everyone to the table. Veterans of Baldur's Gate seem to enjoy the game. Veterans of Divinity were willing to go into a new, uh, an IP that they're not as familiar with or didn't like as much and enjoy the game. And then I think this is the thing that James was talking about earlier. Newcomers, people who have not played Divinity or original Baldur's Gate would latch on to Baldur's Gate 3. Like they were able to reach, that's probably the hardest barrier that I have no idea how they were able to knock that wall down. But they were able to do it, bring in people. That's why Baldur's Gate wins. No history. Runner up in art. <laughs> Genuinely. Yeah. So. It's, it's crazy. It, I don't think anyone would have expected five months ago that Baldur's Gate 3 would have been essentially like the consensus game of the year for the industry. It's, it's insane. It's insane. My, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this tangent, but my girlfriend on her Facebook page keeps getting like Astari on fan art. Like, like that's where we're at. Yeah, I think people could have predicted that it might end up being our game of the year, but I think for it to to be game of the year on a more mainstream level as well is astonishing, and that's and I think that's very rare for for our genre. I think well. The, the last time it happened was what? The Witcher 2? And the last time it happened before that, I guess, would have been Mass Effect 2? So, yeah. you know, once every, the, once every seven, eight years or so. When was the last time, when was the last time a turn-based RPG was game of the year? <laughs> Sorry, yes, Elden Ring as well. Sorry, yes. That is, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I forgot about that one, but yeah, that, that almost doesn't count because from a, a, a monsters. Uh, well, this, this goes with Jane, what James was saying, the fact that Baldur's Gate is turn-based also, and not like an action RPG. Yeah, yeah you gotta be looking like over a decade back, like shit. Like, Final Fantasy X? 
Maybe. Yeah, I've Maybe I've got like a friend. Seven or ten. I've got a friend. He's played before Baldur's Gate three. He played only uh, two RPGs in his life. Um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, so obviously quite recent, and uh, I think it was Pokemon Heart Gold, somewhere around that era, and he picked up Baldur's Gate 3. I mean, the Zeitgeist is there, and it's 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 magnificent to behold that this happened to a game like this. Final Fantasy VII Remake knew how to, like, differentiate with different weapons. That's one thing 16 could learn from. <laughs> All right. I think that's a wrap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, okay, let's, yeah, let's, yeah, let's wind this down because we, we've been adding, we've been recording this for a while. So RPG site, RPG of the year, 2023. We've got Baldur's Gate 3. In our rounding out our top five, we've got Octopath Traveler 2, Cyberpunk 2077, Phantom Liberty. We've got Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, and then Wandering Sword. Let's fucking go. Then, round, then rounding Sorry. out the top ten, we've got Fate Samurai Remnant. We've got Lies of P, we've got Remnant 2, Labyrinth of Galleria, and Wild Hearts. Go back through the category winners real quick. For the category winners for Best Remaster or Re-Release, we've got uh, Star Ocean, the second story, R. We've got for the best, uh, I lost my place scrolling up and down. There we go. For best writing or storytelling, we've got In Stars and Time, followed by Baldur's Gate 3. For best art, we've got World of Horror, followed by Baldur's Gate 3. For best design and immersion, we got Legend of Zelda, followed by Baldur's Gate 3 as a runner-up. And music, we've got Octopath Traveler 2, followed by Fate Samurai Remnant. So uh, I'm going to keep the outro short because we've been at this a long time. Uh, but thank you all so much for listening. If you've made it to the end of this very long podcast, we appreciate it so much that you listen to us, hopefully weekly with the Tetracast. But even if you just stopped in to this one recording and listened all the way to the end, we appreciate it so much. Uh, we we love to see the feedback, the comments, the activity in our Discord channel. Uh, I guess I'll go round out through those. Join us on Discord, discord.gg slash RPG site. You know, bookmark our website, rpgsite.net, rpgsite.net. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram to search for RPG site, and you should be able to find us. And then it's, here's to a 2024 that's even half as crazy as 2023. I know we're not going to have really a lot of time to rest. We're going to be right back into it uh, for the rest of the year. We're recording this, like I said, back in December. We're likely going to have our first regular podcast for you guys either January 6th or the 13th. We haven't decided at this point. And then likely, hopefully, as we can, uh, weekly from that point forward. By the time you're uh, listening to this, we'll already be deep in the uh, early 2024 uh, RPG minds. So pray for us. Completely. Yeah. And uh, of course, like, you know, to our audience, thank you so much for just like supporting us throughout all these yes, years. Yes, thank you as always. Yeah, it's incredible. Like we can't, we can't do this without you. <laughs> uh, without you, we're nothing. No. And then we will see you in our Discord, we'll see you on our socials, and we'll see you in-game. So until you hear from us next time, uh, here, we, us that are recording, we're going to do some write-ups, and then we're going to take a well-deserved break, and we'll catch back up in 2024. Everyone, both in the recording and listening, until next time, stay safe, take care. We're going to talk to you all later.